Your journey begins on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 100 of So Many Insane Plays, our centennial celebration blowout. For this special 100th episode, we're going to have an extra large set of interesting and disparate topics. As usual, I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Make an episode that properly and appropriately commemorates this anniversary, Kevin, was no small chore for us. Because as we went back and looked at our older episodes, our previous episodes, we had some biggies in there. We had some gargantuan podcasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in particular, you know which one I have in mind. <laughs> That's right. The Kaladesh uh, set <laughs> review was just an, just an epic six-hour affair. That was our magnum opus podcast, where we spent an hour on Paradoxical Outcome alone. (laughs) Yep, that was a good one. Well, this took some time to develop because we had so many twists and turns this year after kind of a flurry of podcasts at the beginning of the year, right, Kevin? Yeah. we We were moving at a fast clip before the pandemic hit, and we won't go into all the details of what we originally had planned, but I think it's safe to say that the wait was worth it. <laughs> That's right. What we've got here is an interesting and I would say somewhat eclectic combination of topics, Steve. So we're going to start with our favorite vintage formats. And what do we mean by vintage formats? Well, we're going to get into that in a little bit because it's tied to one of your announcements, recent articles, etc. And then we're going to end with, and not, this is just us ending this episode, mind you, with a humongous topic, which is reviewing the limited edition sets, that is alpha and beta of magic. And we're going to start like we did for our Arabian Nights review and just go top to bottom on on those sets and give you a real historical perspective on them. That Arabian Nights review that we did before was very well received by many audience members. So we're hoping that you'll enjoy us talking about alpha beta in the same way. This is a podcast we hope you savor over a few days and try not to digest in one sitting. (laughs) Exactly. We're trying to get you a lot to chew on. So let's get started, though, with some announcements. Now, Steve, we've there have been a lot of developments since our last episode. And again, we must kind of apologize for the fact that we've stopped and started the planning for this 100th episode spectacular a couple of times. So, so we're not going to tackle all the latest developments in Vintage here and now. However, there are some recent things that have come about, like, for example, the addition of Sunday Challenges on Magic Online which are now a bit of a staple and doing pretty well. Steve, what's your experience with the Sunday Challenge, and have you played in one? Well, it starts at midnight Pacific time, so no, I haven't. Right. <laughs> I, I didn't figure, but I wondered maybe if you got all caffeined up one time. <laughs> uh, no, I I have to admit that I'm impressed that people like Justin Gennari, who are just machines, you know, can, can, <laughs> can double-queue these vintage challenges <laughs> a weekend. Unfortunately, uh, my stamina at my age is not 
what it was when it was when I was at Justin Gennari's age. So, <laughs> um, I I can't quite play until four or five in the morning anymore. <laughs> yeah, understandable. But it's a good thing these Sunday challenges because they give people oh, in yeah. other time zones, especially on the other side of the world, a better time slot to play in, and that's a good thing in my opinion. Definitely, totally love it. Yeah. And also, Steve, you have a couple of recently released articles. Can you tell us about those? Well, some big ones. So a couple of years ago, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to stop writing ad hoc banned and restricted list articles because it's so tiresome. You know, <laughs> When I was writing a weekly column, even for Star City, I would probably do three or four, maybe three or four a year, or maybe one article that would be you know, primarily about a different topic, but then I would tack on some banned and restricted list commentary. And I was so impressed by Magnus, who runs the Swedish 93-94 old school tournaments in in Sweden, like NoobCon, how he just says, you know what, I'm going to once a year make an announcement, what I'm going to change, if I'm going to change anything, with explanations. And I thought, mm-hmm. that's the that's the way to do it. You know, the DCI should be doing it, in my opinion, on a pre-scheduled basis. In fact, I'm par- we, we've spent a lot of time talking about the right way to do that. That's which, right. Lots which of we time. Can, well, we you know we had episodes where we you know in the course of our show, the DCI has changed its approach, you know at least two or three times in terms of how it does that. You know from bringing it, announcing it with set set releases to doing it at set intervals. Mm-hmm. I think it's better just to do it on a quarterly basis and leave it at that, as they did in the '90s, the late '90s. But that aside, for a commentator, for a pundit. I think the best way to do it is either if you're going to just do it on Twitter, do it on Twitter. But if you want to do something detailed, if you want to do something where people will look to it and, you know, that has a little bit of a longer tail, you know, something that quite isn't quite as ephemeral as a tweet. It kind of disappears into the ether, but something that people can go back to and use as a reference. Um, I, I think this is the best approach. And it really has panned out well for me because writing once a year, an article and releasing it in the summer, at some point in the summer, you know, June, July, thereabouts, means that I can, there's a continuity to it. You know, I can just once a year, add my update, see what I change, go back to my previous articles, amend anything that needs to be amended, direct people back to the previous one. And so I started this in 2018, then I updated my recommendations in 2019, and then I released my 2020. And Originally, it was just going to be vintage and 93, 94, 95, old school 95, old school 96, but I added Alpha League this time. <laughs> but I don't want to get into Alpha League because that's a that's a topic for a different segment for a different show. Uh, but what I did want to get into is what I recommended for vintage. So I thought just I could briefly mention the recommendations, but I want to remind people my 2019 recommendations my 2019 recommendations were just a few. I had said that I thought, and by the way, in this article, I lay out the principles for restriction, what I what I think should be the grounds for restriction, implementation principles, so how do you apply the 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 criteria, and then I have specific suggestions for these formats that I play. So last year in 2019, I suggested they restrict mental misstep. I suggested that they uh, restrict Mystic Forge. I suggested they unrestrict Fastbond and unrestrict Windfall and unban Shahrazad. And I said I thought they should take a close look at Karn or Grim Monolith, but before restricting Karn, I thought they should take a look at Grim Monolith. Um, and I, 
And then I also discussed why I didn't think they should restrict paradoxical outcome at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy to say that a lot of what I wanted came true, right? They unrestricted fast bond and they restricted misstep and mystic forge. And I think, Kevin, we discussed that article at the time. So for 2020, what are my recommendations? They're pretty straightforward. This year, I thought the first thing they needed to do was to unban Loris. It made almost no sense to me, Kevin, and I doubt it makes any sense to you, that you <laughs> ban a card, then you power level errata it, and let's mm-hmm. bracket whether it's actually power level errata, but <laughs> let's just assume that it's significantly eroded function- functionally, and then leave it banned, right? Right. Like, um, and we didn't record an episode while, you know, that glorious period when Loris was around, <laughs> but a lot of people really enjoyed that period, including myself, including Brian Kelly and Justin Gennari and a number of other players. So it was really sad to see it go so quickly, but not only go so quickly, to see it go, then be massively errated, neutered, and then to still be banned. I think we should have Loris back. So my first recommendation is to unban Loris. Mm-hmm. My second recommendation is to unrestrict Windfall, which is consistent with what I said in 2019. Mm-hmm. And my third is to unrestrict Imperial Seal. Now, it's interesting, last year I had some interesting conversations with people like Rich Shea. You know, what do you think is the safest unrestrict? Now, I have I thought that Fastbond and Windfall were the safest unrestrictions. Probably Windfall, actually. It was a little bit safer than Fastbond, although Fastbond yeah. was more intriguing. <laughs> but he thought Imperial Seal was the safest, and after reflection, I'm not sure that's actually wrong. You know, there's so many surgical extractions and sideboards these days that Imperial Seal, you know, is of uncertain <laughs> utility, especially with Gataxian Probe restricted. Um, so those are my three main main recommendations. But I also thought that again, Shahrazad should be unbanned. Look, I won't get into the details on this, but it was unbanned for many many years. It didn't really do anything. It was not banned. You know, you and I had, I think, a whole episode where we discussed this, so let's not we <laughs> get did. back into we that. We did. Um, but the, the one thing I recommended this year that's a little bit different and perhaps less straightforward is I thought that Mox Opal should be restricted. And the main reason was not because of the dominance of paradoxical outcome. You know, you and I have observed in previous episodes that paradoxical outcome has this really oscillating behavior in vintage, where right. it kind of spikes and then disappears and then spikes and then disappears and some of that is the weird ways in which they've managed to change mulligan rules right like last year when they tested the london mulligan paradoxical outcome saw a huge surge and then they brought you know they took it away and it disappeared and they brought it back but they brought it back with force of vigor and force of negation and it kind of had a happy medium a little bit my take on paradoxical outcome is basically this: we've we've had it now for four years. I think we've seen what it can do. It's the hive mind has tuned the hell out of it, <laughs> right? My issue yeah. is is not so much that it's this dominant thing in the format, but it's it's that twofold. First, that it has a slightly unhealthy turn one win rate, and that it's just a little bit unhealthy for people to be able to go mox 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 opal land paradoxical outcome. Mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit frustrating when you don't even get a turn. And I think it's reached a kind of level of of refinement where that happens an unacceptable amount of the time. But I also think the part of it is that we've just it's exa- it's exhausted. You know, we we get it, 
We, it can do good things for the format. It brings the big blue back. But, but the other, and so I don't want to see paradoxical outcome go away, but I would like to see its turn one win percentage go down a little bit. And just to underscore this kind of interesting dynamic, Kevin, and I think you've observed this as well, paradox, paradoxical outcome might not be a dominant percentage of the metagame, but on the biggest stages, on the vintage championship or, you know, when people are winning or, or competing uh, for in a large paper event, paradoxical outcome overperforms its kind of baseline performance rate, mm-hmm. which says to me that the best players in the format when the most important prizes or laurels, perhaps is a better word, are on the line for vintage glory, <laughs> there's a surge in PO, typically is the case. And and so I think that PO may have, let's say, a, I don't know, it varies, but let's say, let's just assume it's a 20% of the metagame or top eights baseline. In events like the Vintage Championship, that number goes up. The win rate goes up by, a, it ticks up by a couple percentage points. You see what I'm saying, Kevin? I do, I do. Yeah. And so I think paradoxical outcome is a general background condition of this format could be taken, stand to be taken down a peg. I don't want it to go away. I don't want it to be restricted. But I think restricting Mox Opal is almost precisely the right thing to do. It slows down its turn one win percentage. It makes it, a, gives, gives it a little less vigor and oomph and I think makes it a little bit more balanced overall. You know, instead of playing three, you get to play one. It just means, and I think that's the, I think that's the way to do it. I think that makes kind of like the perfect PO position in the metagame. So that's what I would do for vintage. And so far, none of that has happened, but that's what I recommended. Okay. What do you, to, to stress test what you've said a little bit there, what do you make of the fact that PO is sharing the limelight from a combo standpoint these days with a combination of Breach and DPS and Doomsday. <laughs> it, it's it's not yeah. the, the runaway combo deck of the format lately. Well, well, so the thing is, lately has almost no meaning in Vintage anymore because the <laughs> metagame oscillates so quickly. You know, so we could be speaking in one month and and the Vengevine deck is the best deck in the format and people are talking about whether something should be done to it. And then the next mm-hmm. moment, it's Doomsday is everywhere. And the next moment, it's back to Breach. In the next moment, so you know the oscill the oscillations happen so fast and furious that I'm I'm taking a longer term view of things. Mm-hmm. This is not about the last month, the last two months, or even going back to the period where Loris was legal. This is a four year view of the format. Where what is it that PO does? PO I think plays an important role in breaking up that at least it did breaking up the Xerox Workshop duopoly on the format it kind of opened that up and now that's obviously evolved in different kinds of directions we saw dredge surge and vengevine and you know bug decks and everything else you know rise except for the brief window when you know loris breach loris decks were dominant and it was just all po and breach decks at the top um but i think what i'm saying is that look mox opal is the best mox since alpha and at one point mox diamond and chrome mox were restricted in vintage um, and Mox mm-hmm. Opal is just way better than them. It's arguably, now arguably better than Lotus Petal, which is already restricted, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's plenty of grounds for that. I- I'm just thinking how, you know, let's set aside these kind of like week to week oscillations and look over like a six month range. PO is a constant player in the format and will continue to be. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So how do you get 
PO to be at the right proportion of the metagame. And not just proportion of the metagame, but I'm really talking about something different. How do you get it to be the right level of interactivity or counterplay, right? And I think PO is important to the format, but I don't think we want it. I think it's turn one win percentage or ability to go off on turn one is is just a slightly too high. And I think restricting Mox Opal takes it down just the right amount uh, of that. At the same time, slowing it down just a little bit more generally. Well, I think it sounds like what you're introducing here is a different philosophy about restriction policy. Well, I was trying to avoid going to my criteria because they're so elaborate. But <laughs> uh, just very quickly, the five criteria for restriction in my in my articles. Hold on. And Kevin, these criteria are things that we've discussed when I discussed my 2019 article. But the first is metagame diversity, which is really the quantity of competitive decks. How many competitive decks exist in a metagame? A healthy metagame needs to have a critical mass of competitive deck options. And I don't just mean like viable decks. I mean competitive, right? Can't be minimally viable. The second is competitive balance. And by the way, these to me are an order of importance. Metagame diversity is the most important. The second is competitive balance, which is really match win percentage. You can have a deck in theory that has a dominant match win percentage, but is a tiny percentage of the metagame. Right. And now there are usually going to be kind of structural barriers for that explain that. So for example, maybe there's like a card in paper that people need in order to play that deck. Like you might need a tabernacle or you might need bazaars, and there's just a limit to the number of those cards that are in existence, right? Right. Um, and so that's how you can maybe get that situation. But there are other barriers too, which are experiential or knowledge based that create a ceiling on how many people are going to play Doomsday in a format, in a, a tournament, right? Right, Kevin? Right. right. <laughs> um, the third is dominance, which is sustained win rate, which is different than just competitive balance. Competitive balance looks to see, you know, what is the distribution of match win rates? Whereas dominance looks to see specifically, is there a new deck that pops out with a very high win rate and then sustains that over a sufficient period of time, like, say, six months, right? Um, Exactly. Then there's counterplay. Counterplay is fourth on my list, which is not only must you have metagame diversity and metagame balance, but you also also have to have a significant amount of counterplay. So, for example, um, if you have a deck that, let's say, has a healthy win rate and has a healthy, you know, contributes to a healthy metagame, but let's say the metagame itself is all full of decks that are just Trinosphere-type decks, right? Mm-hmm. Then I don't think you can really say the format is healthy in a holistic <laughs> sense, <laughs> you know? This one, this one sounds like it's related to play patterns and play experience. Partly. It, it's yeah. mo- This is the principle around Flash and Trinosphere that, yeah. that I, I impute. And the fifth is polarization. This is the most complicated of all, but basically polarization, the the best way to conceptualize polarization is the game of rock, paper, scissors. It's a perfectly polarized metagame because you have in one match, 100% win match percentage and another match, 0%, which means (laughs) that, which means, you know, in the aggregate sense, your match win rate is probably 50, you know, whatever it is. I don't know what the math on that is. 50%, you know, it's some even number. It's, and the metagame looks diverse. You can play rock, paper, or scissors, right? Yeah. And there's no dominant deck, right? But the problem is that it's still not healthy because the format yeah. then becomes really coin flippy. So those are the, I think those are all five really reasonable criterion for restriction. 
But then I have these three principles for selecting a card or for banning a restriction based on operationalizing those. And the first is tame but don't kill, <laughs> meaning meaning that the, the goal of maximizing metagame diversity requires us to preserve strategic archetypes to the extent possible. So if That's you can be the ongoing challenge with workshop. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Xerox yeah. decks. Not that there's anything easy to target out of either of those decks. Perhaps a little. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Maybe a little bit easier in workshops case, but even restricting workshop, I don't think kills that yeah. kind of, uh, O'Brien school taxing strategy. The second is minimize splash damage. So if you have two options out of a deck, right? There's a deck that's dominant or otherwise meet these, these criteria, and you have two clear options. So take the Tezzeret example that you referenced a moment ago, right? Yep. There weren't a lot of options because Tezzeret was like a one-of or a two-of. There was Thirst for Knowledge and there was Mana Drain. Everything else was restricted out of that deck or a one-of, right? Yeah. So right. what's minimizing splash damage in that case? Well, it's hard to say, but the idea is restrict the card that hurts the fewest number of other deck building tools and other decks in the format right um and and that was the problem with the initial attempt to neuter mentor was when they went after probe and gush rather than monastery mentor yes those were other deck building options Mm -hmm. um and the third principle is preserve build around cards so uh, there are some cards that if they just are really open up unique opportunities for deck play like i don't know um (laughs) Bizarre Baghdad. Null Rod. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bizarre Baghdad is kind of an, you know, Bizarre Baghdad, D- Dark Ritual. Yeah. You know, those are really kind of, kind of cards that are unique to vintage that you can build different kinds of decks around. Um, so, so those are the, no, obviously they're not easy to apply these principles, but those are the, those are the principles I had in my article that have kind of been developed over, I don't know, almost 20 years of writing magic articles. Yeah. That's where I landed. So hopefully that's clear on, on, on why I, I came to those recommendations. I think that's interesting. I think uh, I would like to talk about that more, but not here in this episode. Although I am glad that for our 100th episode spectacular, we got a little bit more of a protracted discussion about ban and restricted policy to sneak in. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of action. I mean, there was a lot of action this year. This year, we saw the first banning in, you know, like 20 some years. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I personally agree with some of your recommendations. I had not thought about the Opal restriction until you mentioned it just now, so I'm not 100% there on that one yet. But Luris definitely needs to be considered. So I think that's kind of a no-brainer almost at this point. And uh, Windfall, I'm still big time in favor of Windfall. And I'll tell you, I know that you and I have discussed this before, and I don't need to restate my case, but I'm still in favor of unrestricting library. (laughs) <laughs> well, your case has gotten, I think, stronger in the era of uh, uh, Mystic, Mystic Sanctuary. San- Mystic yeah. Sanctuary, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't reconsidered my case any time in the last couple of months or anything. But you're right, Mystic Sanctuary is sucking up a lot of the oxygen that library would take, even an unrestricted library. And uh, I gotta agree that it only bolsters my position. So, um, do I think that's going to happen? No, but I think. If cost were no object, like if Magic right. Online's price structure were the only true price structure, unrestricted library in a, in a heartbeat, right? Yeah. But because we have to satisfy paper vintage and the economic considerations, I am respectful of the fact that they want to avoid making a decision like that. And I think the unrestriction of Imperial Seal follows the same path. 
Now, there's a big difference between those two in that library is reserved and Imperial Seal is not. Imperial Seal is at the top of the list of expensive, unreserved cards now. Mm-hmm. Is and, it really? It's at the top, yes, very it, top? The very, wow. It's number one on that list, yeah. And now that we've gotten a recent reprint of Grim Tutor, I think it's only a matter of time, and probably not much time, mind you, before we get an Imperial Seal reprint. We've already had a Judge reprint. It's been yeah. a couple of years now. But that's just, that's a red flag right there. There is going to be an Imperial Seal reprint, at which point I think it can be unrestricted in vintage. You know, one of the things about Imperial Seal is that there are just so many tutors now that exist. Personal tutor is unrestricted. You know, not even all <laughs> yeah. the top deck tutors are even played. You know, Merchant yeah, Scroll, Merchant Scroll is kind of, it's, it's like, you know, 15 year nadir. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the, at one point, I was hoping to see Demonic Consultation Unrestricted years ago. When I realized, that can't happen anymore. <laughs> no, no, it cannot. But it, it was based on an observation that there were basically two kinds of decks in Vintage. There was blue-black decks that had tons of restricted cards and relied upon them, like Yawgmoth's Will and Tinker. And then there were non-blue-black decks or non-heavily blue-black decks that were full of four-ofs, like Workshops and Dredge. Right. And, 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 and frankly, also... Hate Bears decks, which where I thought Demonic Consultation could really shine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, you know, there are arguments around other cards, but though, that's where I'd like to start. You know, we, look, if people want to go back and listen to our earlier episodes, which we encourage them to do, I recall us discussing library in probably somewhere around the 30s of our shows. Um, yeah. If they want to yeah. find those, they can they can listen to those conversations from years ago. We've discussed it on more than one occasion on our show. It's not not just one time. Fair enough. Yeah. So then, Steve, your other article, your timeline so, of vintage? Yeah, so this is something that I've been working on for a long time. So everyone knows I have this compilation of chapters, The History of Vintage. Well, hopefully you know, uh, <laughs> the, which I had been working on. And by the way, I finished all the chapters, and I'm just waiting on the editor to compile them into the book. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> um, but I, I have a number of sub-projects that kind of arose out of that project. And some of them were a number of free articles, like the history of the Star City Games Power 9 series. One of them is I had encountered on Wikipedia a timeline of Standard, where someone had put together every iteration of Type 2 and Standard that had been in existence. I thought, this is amazing. This is an amazing document, an amazing tool a reference mm-hmm. point. And so I thought, it's going to be a lot of work, but I want to create the same thing for vintage. And it took me a year of work, you know, <laughs> noodling around at it, updating it, pecking away at it, you know, week after week, making adjustments, and I finally got it to a place where I was happy with it, and we published it in June, the beginning of June, or actually it was late May, I think. And so let me tell you what it is. So first of all, it's a spreadsheet on Eternal Central's webpage, website, it's a, basically a spreadsheet that has formats, all the formats in the history of vintage, from 1 to 137. Now there are 138. I need to add another row. <laughs> so what is a format? Well, a format is defined in the, in the notes as a period in which there has been no change in the number of permissible cards available to play, either in terms of quantity of permissible cards or in their permitted number. Thus... Any new printing or banned and restricted list change or major change in functionality creates a new format. So that's 
that leads me to 138 different iterations of this format, which began in the technical sense with the first ban and restricted list on January 26, 1994. But I added two more formats to it going back to the launch of Alpha, just to tack those on, because in some sense, in my opinion, Vintage is really the original magic format. It's really, it's just magic constructed is what it was called. And so this table has a number of things. So just for our listeners, try and visualize this. It has the format number, has the date range for the format, it has the parameters for the format, meaning when does the format start and what, what event causes that format or version of the format to end. It has notes on the format, it has links and citations, and then the fun part was I called, I created a name for the format. I'm not saying these names are perfect or even great. <laughs> <laughs> so I welcome suggestions, clever suggestions. I will be happy to, to change the names. But I wanted there to be some sort of pithy designation that captures the spirit of that period in that format. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, for October 11th to November 1st, 1994, I called that 9394 magic because that's basically the period in which 90, what was called old school 9394, that's that's the rules for that format. Now, some of those, like the American versions, have fallen empires, and others, the Swedish version doesn't. But that's okay. basically that period. Steve, for the benefit of our audience, what is the, the tent pole that, be, that marks the beginning and end of that period? The restriction of Maze of Ith on October 11th, and the printing of Fallen Empires on November 1st. Rather, the release of Fallen Empires, not the printing. So it's effectively the last moments before Fallen Empires was a thing. Right. Which we... Colloquially call ninety three ninety four today. Right. Another example is June tenth, which arrives with the release of Ice Age, to um, October fourteenth is the Ice Age era, which is where Homelands mm-hmm. comes. So that that gives you a kind of a flavor for the the designations I put on these, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple of other notes though, um, because I have all these endnotes. The second thing is I decided a, a format shouldn't be just a day or two. So there were some times where there's like a new set is released and the bed and restricted list changes within like 48 hours of each other. So I kind of fudged and don't count those like that like 48 hour period as an independent format. <laughs> it right. has to it has to be like basically a week. <laughs> um, <laughs> the second thing I've done is I've made a number of interesting notes and edits. So this this table is more than just a list of formats in the history of the, the vintage, it also kind of marks, in its in a scannable way, critical moments in the history of the format, Kevin. So, mm-hmm. for example, vintage, as we know, it has been re-band, rebranded several times. And so if you look at formats 2, 11, and 54, you can see basically the points in which it was renamed. So in format 2, this format was called, the end of format 2 was called Constructed Decks, based upon the first DCI floor rules announcement that mandated a ban and restricted list. And then on January 10th, 1994, the format was rebranded as Type 1, right? Mm-hmm. So constructed deck format then became called Type 1. And then with format 54, which begins with June 20th, 2004, um, Type 1 is rebranded Vintage. Actually, it's, sorry, to be clear, that actually is announced in June, but it takes effect October 20th. 
So it's unclear whether it's, you know, is it immediately called vintage or just, you know, going to be called vintage, whatever the case is, the format was rebranded. Also, I have in this table every change to the mulligan rules. So there's the all land, no mulligan rule that starts with format seven because it didn't Mm -hmm. actually begin with alpha. The Paris mulligan rule, which starts with format 22. The Vancouver mulligan rule, which starts with format 108. And the London mulligan rule, which starts with 130. So you can, and they're highlighted in different colors, by the way. So you can scan the table and you can see these salient events. Also, I have listed in the notes basically every significant new printing out of the sets. So you can see kind of what the key new printings are. And then finally, I indicate where Portal was legal. The Portal, Portal and Starter sets were legalized, which is in, in basically with format 58. And then I have the major power level errata changes noted. Uh, Time Vault was restored with format 74 and Flash with format 66. And the policy change changes were announced with format 62. And then there's other notes in there around, you know, major rules changes like 6th edition and M10 and things like that. But in essence, this table is like a one-stop shop to scan and peruse the entire glorious history of this format. <laughs> Kevin, what what did you make, before we get into our favorite formats, what did you make of the table? Did you find anything useful in it? Well, it, it's obviously, for me, it's a trip down memory lane. Now, I haven't been playing vintage for quite a long, quite as long as you have in the whole history of the thing, but my start of the format still does go back to the formats that are numbered in the, let's see, in the the low 40s, right? So out of 130 plus versions of this format, I started in around 42 or something like that. In that case, it's a trip down memory lane. Like I loved through reading through the early days of this thing and seeing, oh yeah, I remember when that happened and we all switched decks to this and that kind of thing. <laughs> and I remember when so-and-so won this tournament with that deck, you know, so it was, it was very emotional and, and fun to read in that way. It's also just an incredible reference if you're any doing any kind of historical analysis <laughs> as you specifically are want to do it's just a, a very very useful artifact and i love it for that reason because i'm a data analyst at heart so i think it's great and i'm glad that it exists now and i hope that people will use it for fun and interesting things in the long run because for example <clears throat> we've already alluded to how what number is this on the list for old school steve uh number 10 number 10 on the list is colloquially what we would call old school right now. That's the the signpost for that format. But it's not the only old school format, right? right. Old school is a genre of formats. And so <laughs> it really there is. Are, this document is especially useful for putting signposts at points in time to say, I want to try and play this version of quote-unquote old school, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so what we call middle school today is a, a period in time which is not it's not for vintage, it's more for standard, right? But it's a period of time that's around, um, I don't exactly know what the, the top end of old school is, but it would be around the 40s, I think, on this document in terms of time. Yeah. And so like for that kind of exercise, it's very interesting. You could go back and, and obviously apply the same thing to other formats. Like you mentioned, it started, you were, you were inspired by a standard list. I just think we're going to find that this will be very useful if we say, hey, what's after 93 94 well that's ice age let's pick this point in time what's after ice age right let's go right. to a mirage block one what's yes. that one like and we could pick and choose where the healthier points in time are that we'd like to plant our flags on for old school formats right 
No, I love that. And I partly what motivated this was I was really sick and tired of people saying, oh, I miss how vintage used to be. And they wouldn't specify <laughs> what they meant by that. Well, did you mean like 2005 or like 2001 or 2010? Right. You know, or it's like, or this is the worst format of all time. Well, relative to what? Is that really like an objective? Like, are you really considering all the different formats when you make that statement? Or are you just kind of like saying that in a hyperbolic, off the cuff, you know, unreflective manner? And yeah. so I, I was just tired of hearing those kinds of comments. So now I, I wanted to give people a kind of a reference, as you put it, that they could refer to. And also, I it's not just that there's a list here. I have hyperlinks for every ch change. So it's documented, footnoted, cross-referenced. <laughs> you know, if yeah. you're looking for something, it is here. In fact, I dug up things that were hard to find, like in the Usenet groups, you know, DCI announcements from the early 90s, including mm -hmm. the Mulligan rules. These are obscure references. And I see people writing magic articles all the time that are factually incorrect in some substantive way. And so I hope people use this as a reference you know, for that purpose. But Kevin, yeah, and go ahead. One particularly tricky signpost in this process, which is in the minority, definitely by far, is errata. And yes. you said it earlier, but it's worth pointing out that errata has played, in some cases, a pivotal oh, yeah. role in the development of vintage. Time Vault, Illusionary Flash, Mask. Illusionary Mask. These are, these are textbook examples of where no new cards entered the pool, per se. They might have, they might have happened at the same time. But the point is, Time Vault is the is the textbook case. Time Vault is arguably the reason we started this podcast. Like, <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't was go so, so far upset. As, yeah, I was so furious. <laughs> you're right. I would not go so far as to say it was the only reason. Like, we have plenty of other reasons. But for those of you who have been around since the beginning, which I think some of you have, episode one of this show was a spectacular in and of itself about Time Vault and its Power associated errata. And yeah. yeah, and so that particular concept is near and dear to your and my hearts and the and it's, it's it's unfortunate actually i think that time vault appears more than once on this list <laughs> for reasons <laughs> that are not especially good yeah. uh but that's you know it's baked into our history that errata really influences the format yeah and that's why i said one of the iterations of a format arises when a key card functionality changes not just when a card is changed in terms of quantity of permissible uh mm -hmm. Or, or options or the overall card pool changes. One of the things that, that they did in the standard timeline that I didn't do here is indicate the total number of cards that are permitted in the format. That became mm -hmm. just unwieldy for me to do, and I thought was mostly just a triviality, an interesting triviality, but a triviality yeah. nonetheless. So I decided <laughs> that that's not, that's not something I wanted to add to this. I think that because the trajectory is constantly up for vintage, yeah, that is less interesting than it is in standard, where right. format it size is, is a meaningful metric. Yeah, different format size influences the nature of the format. It's like an accordion and standard, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's turn to then our favorite. You've had a chance to peruse this. Let's talk about our favorite formats. Let's start with, let's say, top five. How does that sound, Kevin? I have a top five prepared just for that purpose, and I'd like to go first because, go for so, so for our benefit of our audience, what we're going to do is we're going to alternate. We're going to start at five, and I'm going to say mine, and Steve will say his, and we'll talk about it. I'm going to start first because I'm cheating, because I have an honorable mention, and I'll tell you why it's an honorable mention, because I never played it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Num number six on my top five is the period <laughs> of, of formats six through ten. 
which is effectively the year of 1994. And one of the reasons why I put it on my list here is because it is formative to, in hindsight, it is formative to my my preferences and my view of magic because this is the height of creatureless control of blue white millstone decks of yeah, control decks deck. in general yeah and and the 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 impetus and, and really the founding of the weissman school so to speak yes and the that is to me that is the most attractive form of magic to me <laughs> in terms of deck construction and i seek to replicate that throughout my history with magic in, in many different forms and many different formats. And I just love, I don't play old school, <laughs> but I love watching matchups of the deck. And now today's the, the deck like is, is typically a, a five color affair, four or five color affair. And I really appreciated just the blue white versions of the deck that were earlier on, you know? So I have a very strong fondness for this period, even though I was not participating in it. <laughs> so you just described Six through twelve. I will say, just interesting. Six is May third, nineteen ninety four, and twelve ends with Ice Age. Mm-hmm. Let me just say something about Format Six, though. Format Six is something that I did a lot of research on uh, for updating my nineteen ninety four chapter in the history of vintage, and I was able to pull some phenomenally interesting decks, Kevin. But that period, <laughs> that period was really and truly dominated by mind twist decks. Um, I found sure. at least four major tournaments where mind twist won those tournaments there was the manifest destiny tournament in san francisco there was the dragon con event that was famous for the for giving out nalathani dragon or infamous i might say because there was (laughs) outrage that they were giving away a card that not everyone else could get and there were and then there was of course bo bell's victory at origins all of the mind twist just dominated that metagame Mm -hmm. so i think that metagame is a little bit different than the g- generic control creatureless, but I, I totally I think that really begins with legends, with moat and the abyss and mana drain. But I think in general yeah. I totally get the spirit of what you're saying. But here's another thing. So you described a swath of formats, and this kind of led me to the taxonomy in geologic time, which is mm-hmm. you know eon era period epoch age, and there are kind of precise definitions for what those means mean in terms of ge- ge- geology. I, I think you could metaphorically apply them here. So if a format, in my opinion, is basically like a period, right, where then you could say, you know, take it in one direction or another. An epoch could be, you know, a, a larger compilation, and then age is maybe an even larger, you know, or, or the other direction, an era or an eon, you know, is yeah. even a larger compilation of those formats. But without overly borrowing from those you know that approach <laughs> i think you're describing less a format and more more of like a uh an epoch if you will and i agree with that and i think given the clarity you gave about specifically format six i was not thinking about that mind twist time period which is a fairly brief time period oh yeah but so it might be more fit might be more fair to say like seven through ten is tw- i think you definitely want to include 12 because that's the height of the deck was gotcha tw- Gotcha. Before I Age arrived, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so take well, it away so th- with five now. Yeah, that- that's my honorable mention just to get things started. Number five. Now, I will say that my favorite, my top five here are strongly influenced by two factors. One is nostalgia. I have a I have a predilection for those formats that were around when I was first in- engaging with vintage for the first few years, 
And number two is personal success. <laughs> so I, I'm not immune to the fact that I liked formats where I did the best in them. But I'll try to make that not about my success and more about what I view is successful uh, techniques and, and a performance, not, uh, um, successful approaches to those formats. Anyway, number five is format number 46, which is specifically July through October of 2002. This is some of my earliest exposure. This represents some of my earliest exposure to tournament vintage. And it was with you, Steve, for, you know, for the most part, as well as making friends that became Team Mean Deck in the Great Lakes region. And there are two specific events that highlight this time period for me. And it just so happens that I started thinking about my favorite times by listing decks and listing periods of time, awesome. like and listing tournaments. And I found that two of my favorites were in this same format, number 46, in, in the, the latter half of 2002. The first event was Origins of that year. Ah, yes. I think this is the second second or third Origins I had gone to. I can't remember. I had been going to Origins, but this is one of the first ones where I played Vintage. And there's a classic match in my mind that I actually can't remember much detail of between me and Paul Mastriano in, <laughs> in, in, at that Origins, where I was playing a, a multicolor control, a, a deck variant. And he was playing deck. Tricks? Is this that no, year? No, he was playing Mask. That was 2002 then. He played Tricks yes. against you in 2001, I believe. Yeah. And, and This he, is the Mask the mask year okay, is what I'm talking 2002. about. 2002, yeah. Now, by the I way, to, I, have, you, I have video of Origins somewhere. I have a video cassette that has video from that, that <laughs> tournament. I'm serious. I think it's a testament to the, the exercise that we're going through that you have a cassette. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is some this is some archaeological stuff here. The funniest thing about this particular memory of me and Paul playing at Origins, which was a good match, and I wish I could remember more details of it. But the funniest thing is not about the match, but about what happened during it. Because yes. Paul and I are sitting at this table in in the Origins game hall. We're surrounded by Conventions, people. This, Columbus this Convention Center. Hall. Yeah. Now there's only about a dozen of us or so playing vintage. We're just at kind of one long table of vintage players. Type one, yeah. And we're at the end of the table though. We're the last match at the end of that (laughs) table. And so some point in the middle of this match, one of Paul's friends, who I did not know, walks over with a mini cooler (laughs) and walks up and kinda and kinda squats down at the end of the table. (laughs) and pops open the mini cooler and pulls out a bottle of Smirnoff ice and places it up on the table and says, all right, the winner of this match gets my last Smirnoff ice. (laughs) Which we cracked up. And, you know, I'd never been iced before, (laughs) so to speak. Um, And obviously that's that's not a good thing. That's an alcoholic beverage in an Origins game fair. But uh, it was so nondescript that it didn't catch anyone's attention. It was pretty awesome. Unfortunately, Paul won, so he ended up getting that Smirnoff ice. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he I, he cracked that with uh, <laughs> gusto. Yeah. I, be, I believe you're right. So during this same time period, the other reason why I chose this, again, this is, this is summer through fall of 2002. Also happening during this time period was Grand Prix Cleveland. Oh, yeah. Now, Grand Prix Cleveland, the main event was Odyssey Block Constructed. And I have an asterisk about that myself. But this is noteworthy because you and I traveled to Cleveland together and stayed with JP Mayer at his dorm room at Case Western. Yes. <laughs> and we met up with our friend Ryan Ryan Lichard, uh also of uh, eventual Mean Deck fame. And so you and I played in multiple vintage side events during the main event oh, at yeah. GP Cleveland this that year. And it was funny cuz you and I kind of traded places winning those events. So we both we both Abe, did well in a couple. Abe Corson I think won one of them and he beat me with keeper in one of those, but yeah. 
Yeah. And in this event, you and I had a classic matchup, which is now immortalized on the Mana Drain. You have to go to the archive of the Mana Drain to, to see your report and in my subsequent mini report also, where you played Brown Paper Bag, which was mono a mono blue Ophidian control deck. And I played Sapphire Oath, which is a blue green Oath deck focused on either oathing up Morphling or oathing up a combination of Spike Weaver <laughs> and Feeder to, to stall the board. And you and I had just some epic games there. Uh, it's a matchup that you and I both knew pretty well. Like we had been testing it. And so we both took those decks there and ended up facing each other. I think in the finals of one, I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember which event we were in the, we, how we met together, but we ended up playing at least once in that event. That was a great, great time. Oh, yeah. And the, those, we had a good time with friends because that was the, that's the first and only time I've stayed with JP, for example. I've since stayed with Ryan uh, uh, later on, more on that later. But, um, yeah, we just had a fantastic time. And this was a, a point where we were really getting into, I was really getting into, and you by uh, at the same time, the the ins and outs of the vintage metagame. You know, we were deep into discussing on message, message boards. We were deep into planning the metagame from event to event, right? Reacting to what lists were posted online for the prior event. This is the kind of stuff that happens on a daily basis now on Magic Online. But it was happening over the course of weeks and months in this era well, we were internet enabled, but we weren't playing online to the way we are today. So that the, the combination of those two tent poles in the latter half of 2002 is why that's one of my favorite formats. And I didn't talk much about the decks there, but I was, you know, I vacillated for different kind of control decks. So you heard I played Keeper in one and Sapphire Oath in the other. I just loved control decks in that era. Well, 46 is on my list, so I'm going to hold back on my comments on that. It's okay. interesting that we both flagged it. So there must have been something <laughs> great happening in that in that period. Yeah. Well, and you gravitated toward different decks at that time than I did, too. So I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on what, why you enjoy that format. So I think we should go to what number five is on your list. You know, I want to I want to give an honorable mention, though. So I, you know, oh, okay. obviously, um, just because you did, I want to go in the opposite direction, though. You know, the okay. last two years have had a lot of anxiety, storm and drunk, you know, a lot of tension in the format about power creep. I just want to give a shout out that I thought that Despite a lot of people not liking it, I really like the brief period, which is format 129, immediately after Modern Horizons, but before, right before Corset 2020. Those couple of weeks I thought were just awesome, where you can play, especially <laughs> because it came, it came, Modern Horizons came a week early on MTGO, and mm-hmm. the printings in Modern Horizons, Force of Vigor, Collector's Oath, uh, Collector's Oath, Hogak, Force of Negation, that was just so much fun. To have these really cool, and Dreadhorde Arcanist just came out a month before it. These new, right, with Narset and Karn. These new printings all coming in a big cluster, and all of the cool things that were happening, like Matt Murray's Hogak deck, you know, my Dredge deck, um, the, the bug decks with Collector's Oof, Force of Negation being tried and tested out, you know, I just, I thought that was such a cool period. Um, and so I just wanted to shout that out. I, it's probably in my top ten. And probably only the the only period in the last couple of years that, that cracks my top ten. Okay. Interesting. But, but let me go to number five. Number five is the Ice Age era, which is the release of Ice Age to Homelands, or format number thirteen. And the reason this is such an awesome period is because it basically takes the format that you loved, the the Eon or Epic that you <laughs> loved, and I think makes it better. Specifically okay. I think Ice Age balanced that metagame, which was just dominated by control. 
and it gave it Jester's Cap and Necropotence, and 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 that really made it really interesting. Um, and I, I love that format. I think I just I look at this picture of Jester's Cap, and it takes me. It's part of it is nostalgia. I'll admit that. You know, it takes me back to the the anticipation that I had. You know, with I, Jester's Cap was spoiled, and my God, I couldn't wait to get my hands on one, Kevin, because yeah. you know I was playing the deck. And all my friends were playing versions of the deck that we had independently come to that kind of conclusion. And then when we saw Brian Weissman's fame, you know, we knew that was the way to go. And we really enjoyed playing these blue control mirrors. But I couldn't wait to play Jester's Cap in my sideboard against my deck, the deck opponents. You know, I couldn't wait. And it's just such a cool card looking at Jester's Cap. The art, it just, you get a feel of like, you know, that icy feeling, that kind of like, you know, just Ice Age is just so evocative and beautiful. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. love the set of Ice Age. But I also, Ice Age really, I think, rebalances 93-94. And I think it's a much healthier format. Now, I would restrict Necropotence and Old School mm-hmm. 95. But I think there's just both from an objective and a subjective perspective, right? It's a more balanced format. It's more, I think, more diverse. Um, you get things like Stormbind even, you know, you get Demonic Consultation, so you can play Reanimator. Becomes better in Dance of the Dead with Reanimator. It's You get Combo comes more into play because you have Glacial Chasm and Fast Bond and Forgotten Lore. Uh, it's just, that was really, in some sense, my ideal, perfect old-school format is the Ice Age format, old-school 95. I just think it's the best. It's, nice. yeah, and Ice Age is just, I mean, I loved before Ice Age, but, oh, man. I just, I just remember just the anticipation of Ice Age coming out. You know, it was spoiled, drip, drips and drabs. You know, and it just oh, it was so exciting when it came out. You know, it was the exact part of the part of the reason that it was so highly anticipated, Kevin, was because this is kind of astonishing to us now. But do you know, think about what is the set that immediately precedes Ice Age, and when did it come out? Well, it's Fallen Empires, isn't it? Right. And when did Fallen Empires yeah. come out? Well. I wouldn't have been able to tell you this, but looking at your document here, it looks like Fallen Empires was released in November of 94. Yeah, November 2nd. Look at that gap. November, November 2nd. November 2 until... Hold on, let me see if I can... November 2 until June of 95? June 10. There were no new sets in between that wow. period. The, probably the longest period in the history of the game without new sets. So I, I didn't remember it that way. And but I was so new to the game at that point that I think I was just still enamored with everything that was still so new <laughs> that I didn't notice how long of a time that was. Well, let me just contextualize it. And I can only speak from my experience. You know, I can't <laughs> tell you how anyone else took it. But The Dark was awesome. Everyone loved The Dark. Mm-hmm. Fallen Empires came out, and it was kind of disillusioning. Very much so. Not I only, Not only... So your experience mirrored mine. Number one, the set sucked. Number yep. two, the cards were boring to play with. It's like you could I went I remember because I had so much Fallen Empires product playing with my yeah. friends just basically Fallen Empires constructed to try and get a feel for it. It was yeah. such a slog. I mean, Fallen Empires is great for one thing. It's Mark Rosewater's puzzling articles. It's fantastic <laughs> for that purpose. You, you could it's a math puzzler to the end of time. Um, but it's boring for interactivity, constructed play. Now, I'm sure that mm-hmm. 
with the benefit of time, I could make something more interesting out of it. But I, ne- I never found it to be fun. And it was kind of like, it made you question, is this really game? This Is this game, it was the first set that made you question, does this game really have a, per- a, a longevity to it? Does it have a permanence, a sustainability? Yeah. And Ice Age was like the the blooming of hope again, the reawakening of hope. You know, it was like this beautiful moment where your faith is restored, you know, and not only that, but it was just such a huge set. And even the cards that sucked were awesome, like Seraph, you know, and Deflection were just exciting to play with and, and to hold and to see. And I, and of course, you know, the Painlands were super helpful for two color decks. And, mm-hmm. you know, even Jeweled Amulet was fun to test around, but Man, Ice Age is deep. Ice Age is deep. If you were to look back at the number of restricted cards per capita, Ice Age is probably in the top 10. It's got yep. Demonic Consultation, Necropotence, Brainstorm, even cards that like aren't, you know, like Zuranorb was restricted. Even cards that by modern standards like Zuranorb or, Ka- or Glacial Chasm that aren't fantastic, you know, like Dance of the Dead, as I already mentioned, or Forgotten Lore. Those are good. Those were good cards at the time, and yeah. and it also had cards like Diabolic Vision, things that allow you to manipulate your deck. You know. Yeah. It, well, it's worth noting that Ice Age was only the second set to have gold cards in it, and f- for for many reasons that you've already alluded to, Ice Age was really in the model of Alpha. Yes. From a, from a set construction standpoint, and that is part of the reason why it is so attractive to those of us who were attracted to Alpha. Right? Yes, like yeah. because. Arabian Nights was a, a big departure from a structure of Alpha. Antiquities, very far removed from Alpha. Legends was big, but it, it missed a whole lot of fundamental elements of magic. It like was it the took first magic in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an expansion. Then, it was, in a sense. Yeah. And, and then the Dark, obviously, was quirky. The Dark is cool and has lots of fun stuff, but it was not a, a comprehensive set. Fallen Empire's big disappointment. So Ice Age, as you put it, was a really array of sunshine and a return to a lot of things that are fantastic that harken back to Alpha. Yeah, There's the, a lot of one-to-one comparisons, too, like Icequake versus Sinkhole and Forgotten Lore yes. versus Regrowth. There's just yes. a, a lot of comparisons there. Yes, it's it's awesome. And, you know, so to your point, Magic the Gathering was supposed to be just the first version of Magic. There was going to be mm-hmm. Magic the Menagerie, which became Magic Mirage, Magic the Ice Age, right, which was mm-hmm. supposed to be a whole new thing. And and so I yeah I love the other thing that's really worth noting about Ice Age is that Ice Age brought our first cantrips into Magic yeah. and that cannot the importance of that cannot be overstated cantrips I think are the most important thing perhaps from a design perspective that weren't in limited edition in some sense because they yeah. totally changed the format opened up you know ponder preordain all that nonsense. Um, Mystic Remora was an Ice Age too. I mean, Ice Age, it, man, it's a deep set. It's it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, and that it really and so is. that period was the reawakening of hope, but it was also the rebalancing of the metagame and the format. And I think that is just one of the best top five metagames of all time. Period. And I wish, man, I wish more people played old school ninety five. I'm hopeful that someday that will happen because it's so much better than 93-94. So much better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, maybe this episode will spark some people to give it a try. So let's go to your four. Yeah, I think we can go to my four. My number four is 
in the latter half of the year 2004, so two years later than my number five. It's format number 54 on your list, and it's in particular because this was the time period during which the second vintage championship at Gen Con occurred. Yeah. Now, I didn't, I had the first vintage championship on my short list of ideas, but it didn't end up making my top five. I think the second vintage championship is more meaningful to me and more satisfying and more fun in history in, in, in uh, retrospect. I played, I played multicolor <laughs> workshop decks in both of the first two vintage champs and I made top eight in both, both of, of the first two champs and I lost in the first round of the top eight in both of them. In the second one though, I liked my deck more. It was, it was better conceived. It was, it was more thoroughly thought out. I had some more cards in it that I think uh, just were better cards in the long run since the prior year. And I lost to the eventual champion, Mark Biller. And it, but but I, I lost in a grueling match. Like, our match was pretty, pretty epic. And you can still read tournament coverage of it. There's a couple, if you just Google my name and, and you know, Vintage Champs 2004, or Mark Biller's name, of course, the... That match was really satisfying. It was nip and tuck, and I was one card away from winning that match, and probably a number of points. <laughs> and so that to me is, and we both did our thing. Like both of us really, I think our decks got to execute the way they were supposed to throughout that match. And I think that that was just really, really satisfying. And the the other thing that's really satisfying to me is just there was a lot of preparation that went into that event for you and me together and for our team. And, you know, you were doing very well at champs of this time period as well. And so it's very satisfying I, from a, from a, from a, just from a team and a, and a planning and a strategizing and a metagaming perspective as well. If I recall correctly, I believe I was first place in the Swiss going into the last round and I was paired against you. And I think you were like, I don't remember, you might have been second, but whatever the case was, I think I scooped to you and we ended up being first and second in, in going into the top eight, which was pretty yeah. awesome. Which put us in opposite brackets too, but we didn't realize the dream of meeting in the finals, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, which was a shame. And you were playing brown paper bag at that event. Right? I was playing mono blue control. Yeah. 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 And so I'm not going to go into in more details about my deck or anything like that, but I just want to point out that this was a real high point in stacks construct in stacks deck construction. Yeah. Multicolor. That's five color stacks, and five color stacks features prominently in my favorite features of vintage throughout its history because it's a deck that i am a bit known for in the older player community and had my most success with and i just it really formed a lot of my modern understanding of how to play magic at, at a competitive level yeah. too so that, just uh that metagame was the metagame that existed basically when the star city games power nine tournament kicked series kicked off it was basically like you know exalted angel control you know, workshop aggro, workshop control. It was a great metagame. Yeah. And the Star City Games uh, Double Power 9 series that was happening in the early 2000s features strongly in my list of favorite formats here. It was happening at about this time. It was just starting to happen, right? I forget when the first one was. But but this is at the height of Midwestern vintage with a combination of vintage champs kicking off at Gen Con in the summer and then this the rotating locations of Star City Games Double Power 9 events at this time. Yeah. That's great. That's a great format. Good choice. Yeah. Oh, so it's worth noting that Mark Biller won that Vintage Champs, that event with uh, Control Slaver. Right. So what's your number four, Steve? So I'm going to take us a little bit forward in time to, and it's two formats because they're really tightly connected. And the, the difference is really subtle between them, but it's format 101 
and format 102, the calm mm. before the cons. It's, it's <laughs> interesting. It's basically conspiracy to cons of Tarkir. So June, early June of 2014 until cons is released at the end of September 2014. So it's technically two formats because what breaks up those formats is just magic 2015 which kevin had basically no vintage playables so it's right functionally not, i mean technically expanded technically the card yeah not but, in practice though yes exactly um but what I, so i love this format for a number of reasons i'll, I'll list at least three the first <laughs> is that um the metagame begins with dak faden being printed um which which comes on June 6th with Conspiracy. And Dak Faden was really the <laughs> first card that really began to attack the dominance of Lodestone Golem in a big way. And so Dak opened up possibilities in the format that were more suppressed by Workshop's dominance. Mm-hmm. And it opened up the format in a number of really interesting ways. Um, and... This period was a great summer. I played in the NYSE, I think it was two, and I top-aided with a Delver deck that had Dak. And I actually played Roland Chang in round one. It was awesome. We had a great match. Um, but it's also the time that the Vintage Super League kicked off, Kevin. Mm-hmm. And the first season of the Vintage Super League, mostly, which I won, which, you know, is one of the <laughs> things I'm most proud of in Magic, um, occurred mostly in this period. Um, and it also was the time when, you know, really Magic Online, Vintage really became a force available in Magic Online in a big way. And the Vintage Super League follows it. And it was a really fun time to be playing Magic Online with Vintage on Magic Online. And it all came to a crashing halt with cons, which brought Treasure Cruise and Dig <laughs> Through Time. That metagame, though, that summer of that metagame, I think was just beautiful because the, objectively, the quantity of decks that could be played, Things opened up. It kind of thawed out. Um, it was just, it was just great. It was great. If you go back and look at the first, there were a couple of premier events during this period, just a few that fired, and the top eights for them were great. You know, it was like bug decks, uh, combo, uh, you know, everything, shops. It was just an awesome metagame, and uh, those are that will always be one of my favorites. That was ruined by cons. <laughs> I was going to say something similar. It's a shame that that format that you're referring to will be forever overshadowed by what immediately followed and kind of wrecked the format for a protracted period. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, you're hard-pressed to come up with a card that's still unrestricted throughout possibly this whole history. I mean, <laughs> you're hard-pressed to come up with a card that's still unrestricted that had as much impact on the format as Dak Faden did. <laughs> Right? Yeah. There's plenty of cards that had to be restricted right off the bat. I mean, that it's not worth pointing that out, in my opinion. But Dak, I mean, we we can look back to this point. Yeah, this is this is now 30 plus formats ago, to use your metrics. And Dak has forever cemented itself as the reason to play blue and then red in Xerox. <laughs> it's true. It Dak is still that reason. It was so big. Yeah. yeah. It was the biggest. I mean, it. Jace was like the best planeswalker until Dak came on the scene well and we've joked about it in a number of ways about the the way the secondary and tertiary colors of the format that aren't blue uh jockey for position and value over time this is the turning point because before this point yeah you played red blue. for all of blasts right yeah basically that's i mean it. you would bring in some blasts and you'd be splashing red for only blasts this is the point where we cemented red as the de facto secondary. second color 
yeah, yeah. in control decks. True. It's totally. very meaningful for that perspective. So shall we go on to my yeah. number three? Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. So my number three is a is a prime example of what I alluded to a minute ago about the Star City Games Power Nine series, and it is format number fifty five, which is the one that immediately follows my number four. <laughs> it's October through Feb October of two thousand four through February of two thousand five, and the the tentpole event in this time period in my mind is the Star City Games Power 9 number 2, so the second ever Star City Games Power 9, yeah. which happened in Richmond, and the just complete dominance by our team with the new Mean Deck Oath list thanks <laughs> to the printing of Forbidden Orchard. Out of Kamigawa. That's yeah. right. Now, Steve, I don't remember how many players were at this event, um, but it was... It was a, it was it was a large a, it event. It was about it, 90 players. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a probably, that, what is that, seven rounds or eight rounds? I don't, it's yeah. seven rounds, I think. And so it's a large event, right? It's healthy. It's bigger than a modern challenge, you know, in the, in the modern day and age online. And um, when Forbidden Orchard was printed, it was no secret that Oath of Druids was a kind of a go-to concept. And it was bolstered by the fact that leading up to this event, one of the dominant archetypes had been Workshop Aggro. There's a lot of juggernauts going around in this day and age. And... We developed an oath list, and the primary oath targets were Acroma, Angel of Wrath, <laughs> so and awesome. Spirit and Spirit of the Night, because you couldn't, you didn't want to oath up a second Acroma, so we had to go to the next best thing, which is Spirit of the Night, and that was the package. And then we had uh, Gaze Blessing, and so that oath deck, which how many people on our team brought that to the room? Steve, was it six or seven? I people? think we had eight players, seven or was eight players. Eight players, yeah. And we filled half of that top eight with team members. And it was only half because we, we had so many mirrors <laughs> near the end of the Swiss. Like, I I did not make that top eight because I scooped to Jacob Orlov, who ended up winning that event with our list. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> scooped, so, I actually scooped to him in the top eight to do coverage. <laughs> <laughs> so we just had, we had four of our, of our eight team members in the top eight with that deck, including yes. the winner. And a, a couple of us getting knocked out by our own team, you know, along the way and during the Swiss. Well, we had so to because it, we had the, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So we, I just, it, that one goes down for me as a, a, a satisfying point for due to our team's success. It was really the pinnacle, probably the most textbook example of our team working together and finding a new, the new solution to the metagame that was just completely dominant for a large event. It was well, very, very satisfying. Kanagawa had so many interesting printings. I mean, Forbidden Orchard is just the top of the list. I mean, not even the top. You have right, the gifts, gifts. Sensei's Divining Top. Is why I said yeah. it's not the the top. You know, it's <laughs> there's so many great cards out of that set, but you know, uh, that was a phenomenal phenomenal tournament. But one of the things that we can't forget is that that was the event where Aaron Forsyth came. You know, kind yeah. of the head of R and D came and played. He, and he played Oath too. Yes, but he played with a, Eternal a very Witness <laughs> yeah. combo, and we came with this monstrous control deck that yeah. it was it just totally crushed, which was great. Yeah. So Aaron Forsythe's Oath list had only a single creature in it, one copy of Eternal Witness, so that he could just dump his deck into his graveyard. And you all know the Oath kind of combos. That The oldest one is just dump your graveyard, return Dog one will. thing, and go off with a combo. And Aaron was able to play because it was a proxy, unsanctioned event. And so yeah. that was so cool that he came out to check yeah. out Vintage. Great, great third one, Kevin. Now we're getting, getting down to the nitty-gritty. Yeah. What's your number three? So number three here is format 59 and 60, 
which is yeah. which is where Ravnica, City of Guilds, Portal, and Starter all simultaneously arrive up up until the Errata of Time Vault. Uh the 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 original Errata of Time Vault on April twentieth, two thousand six. So it's exactly <laughs> six months, Kevin. Uh, it's two formats, so a little bit I'm hedging a little bit, but yeah. um that period basically late two thousand five Early 2006 um, is is number three, and it, it requires a little bit of explanation. Um, <laughs> the first, so let me just begin with the what was introduced to the format. Mm. So I was looking back. I think this is the largest set, uh, the largest single infusion of new cards into the vintage format ever. Yeah, in one moment. It, not proportionally or not, you know, but in terms of absolute numbers. <laughs> because it was basically three sets. More. It was Ravnica, Portal, Portal Second Age, Portal Three Kingdoms, Starter, and Starter 1999. So five sets simultaneously. Oh, you're right. I'm guilty of, of encapsulating <laughs> Portal as one concept, but you're right. It was three sets. So five. yeah, that's awesome. Five yeah. sets. Yeah. F- uh, introduced in, simultaneously. Um, and there were so many interesting things that happened in it. Yeah. But the second reason I love it is because Ravnica was a really under the radar set, Kevin. Think about the legacy of Ravnica City of Guilds. I think there's two things that really, that really were the legacy. The first and the most obvious was Dark Confidant. Oh, yeah. Dark Confidant. Al- almost as impactful as J, or as Dak Faden, I mean. Yeah. And when it came out, <laughs> I don't remember, I can't honestly recall, and I didn't go back and look at my, my chapter articles, whether it was well received at first, but it was dark, a slow burn. It really was. Dark Confidant, yeah. look, I love Daphidian effects. You've mentioned that I played them for a while. Dark Confidant <laughs> yeah. was just an incredible power horse and a workhorse in this format for years afterwards. I mean, mm-hmm. its impact was enormous. It, but you know what was even the bigger introduction? Was the dredge mechanic. Dredge. Unbelievable. <laughs> and what was amazing about it is that it basically was unheralded for mm-hmm. months. I mean, yeah. it was legal October 19th and no one played it in vintage. And this is, this is a period when you could play dredge in, you know, people, it was just not played at all. Mm-hmm. And this was when I worked on this really hard. I was like, you know what? I can make this better. Than these lame attempts that people have been doing. At the time, we called it Friggerid because yeah. what's his name? Uh, John Rizzo had yep. coined that and extended it built the deck. And I was like, you know what? I can port this to vintage. I can do a better job than the efforts that were attempted on the Manadrain and elsewhere. <laughs> I really kind of, you know, put my body on the millstone and the grindstone, kind of really tried to figure it out. And I pressured our team to take it to Star City Games Power Nine event. And everyone took it. I pressured you all to do it, and I was the only one who top eight it with it. <laughs> and I, but but it was really the very first dredge deck in a vintage top eight on on record, and I did it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I did it, you know, like four three months after dredge was legal. I was the very first in the Morphling.d archives to do it. And I think we should give our audience a little historical perspective about what dredge didn't have at this time, right? Yeah. 
Because when we say dredge today, we're not just referring to the mechanic. We're referring to a whole suite of yes. effects that have become staples, right? Yes. It but did... this was this was before there was a narcomoeba. Yeah, let me go down the list. This was before serum powder. This is before mm-hmm. bridge from below. This is f- before narcomoeba. This is before... Uh, blood gas? Uh, blood gas. This is before street race. This is, dread return? This is, yeah, before dread return and Dakmore salvage. This is before everything. This dredge deck I built, <laughs> this dredge deck I built was playing with Putrid Imp, mm-hmm. Bizarre. As a discard outlet. It's, it's a discard outlet. Bizarre. I think I had Careful Study. I had um, Dark, I had Demonic Consultation, Imperial Seal, De- uh, Vampiric Tutor, and Demonic Tutor to find Bizarre. And Crop Rotation, which was restricted. <laughs> to find bizarre, <laughs> um, but it had you still had four Golgori Grave Troll, four Stinkweed Imp, and I used so I would win Kevin with Icarid and Ashen Ghoul <laughs> were my win conditions in this deck. Um, yes, and I I could peck away at my opponent with a Putrid Imp and things like that. Um, right. But yeah, I made top eight, and I made a misplay in the top eight. I might have been the top four. I think it was the top eight though. Narrowly lost against Control Slaver. One small miscue. I I think I it had something to do with a with a Cabal therapy and a in a Chalice of the Void. I kept Jeff Anand locked down with Chalice of the Void, and I screwed something up, a very minor miscue, and then got blown out. But I think I I would have had a very good chance to just win that event, running through the rest of that that top eight. In any case, that was that was a very fun tournament. But also more than that. Look, set aside the introduction of Dredge, set aside the introduction of all these different cards. If you go back and objectively look at that format, that was also the format, Kevin, where we had the uh, the Time Vault decks that that Andy Probasco were iterating with with Ben Koal at the time. Mm-hmm. Those kind of the like flame fusillade, flame, decks. flame fusillade with Gifts Ungiven, and Gifts Ungiven was really being innovative in this period. Innovated in this period. This mm-hmm. period may be, objectively speaking, the most diverse in the history of the format, because every school of magic was really well represented in a large metagame share. Dredge had a metagame share. Grimlong had a metagame share. Gifts had a metagame share. Control Slaver had a metagame share. Workshop had a metagame share. Everything was really well represented. It was just mm-hmm. a stunning moment of diversity. If you wanted to point back to me kind of an iconic moment in the history of the format, I would say if you wanted to really get a sense of what did vintage feel like, you know, at the be- you know, in the early years of the 21st century, I would say <laughs> go back to that period and you can really feel it and you can feel every aspect of it. So that's why I have that's why I have 59 and 60 which I call the most diverse vintage format ever, question mark, listed that way. So I would like to add on to what you said with another interesting element. And so the dredge tournament factors, there's two elements I want to add, actually. The dredge tournament factors strongly in my mind because Randy Bueller came out and played our deck with us. Yes. And it was a really fun time. That was where I got to know Randy for the first time, really. And he really had a good time, I think kind of grabbing that deck and running with it. And he played Grimlong too. And Grimlong was legal because of, because of, well, yeah. 
That's exactly the second point I wanted to make is that you've highlighted a number of things about diversity and about dredge. But one of the fun things that came with the introduction of all these new sets, especially the older sets that were introductory ones, right, was the introduction of Grim Tutor. Now, to put a little bit of perspective on it, you and I had built and tested a lot and you really honed the the burning long list. There's before in... there's no burning wish. Burning wish was restricted at this time. That's what I'm saying is it was just a few formats before. It Got was it. in it, yeah, it was it was in 2003 that we tested and honed burning long to a, a fine point and then LED and burning wish and chromox all got restricted because that deck was was legitimately too good. And we messed around in the the period immediately following that with Death Wish. So there was Death Long for a yes, while. Yes, that was fun. Yeah, and that was a lot of fun because Death Long had some certain other advantages. Well, but it wasn't quite as good. Well, then Starter gets introduced in the format, and now you have Grim Tutor. And for historical pre- reference, when you go from Burning Long, which you, you, the structure of your game is it has a certain function because you've got LED and Burning Wish as your combo. You go LED, Burning Wish, into Yawgmoth's Will, and just replay and go to town. Well... Death Long followed that same model, but it it cost one more mana, and LED had been restricted, so was Chromebox, so it was much harder to produce than necessary mana. It was much more reliant on Dark Ritual to be good. It was just inherently a weaker deck. It had more limitations. Grim Long was a significant improvement over Death Long, because Grim Long was tutoring from your library rather than your sideboard, which meant that your Yawgmoth's Will was in your deck rather than sitting in your yes, sideboard to be yes. tutored for. And so it's just, it's it's an inherent shift toward modern day ritual combo decks. Like the Grim Tutor was the precursor to Dark Petition now. Yes. And and so I think it's a, it's a very interesting and pivotal point. point. You and I had yeah. a lot of fun along that journey and the introduction of Grim Tutor was a very fun and strong improvement. And that's the deck that I took away and played kind of a lot in the couple of years following. Yeah, it, that was such a fun deck to play. I mean, Grim Long yeah, might yeah. be one of the most fun decks to play of all time. And yeah. to play it in a metagame where in one match you're facing Control Slaver, in another mm-hmm. match you're facing Workshop, in another match you're facing Gifts, another match you're playing against Oath. You know, it's just yeah. such a diverse metagame and so many different things happening. You know, when you get Control Slaver and Gifts, it's one thing. But then you get Stacks and Oath and Oath... You know, this was oaths was still you know seeing a lot of play. Uh, it was just in dredge. It was such a great metagame. It's like <laughs> the perfect vintage metagame of all time. So that's yeah. why it's in my yeah. top three. Just so great. That is good times. Good times. All right, I'd like to move on to my number two. My number two is is the most recent of formats on this whole list, and it's uh, a slight bridge of a couple of formats as you you've said on yours which is 104 to 106 which is the very early mentor era so we're talking about just after mentor was legal um in november of 2014 up until mid-year of 2015 when some other things were printed this is so what happened two events happened at approximately the same time cons was printed right yes and and that brought with it short immediately following it brought fate reforged which brought monastery mentor when monastery mentor happened at the same time treasure cruise was restricted right yes and so what that did is it, it called an end to the really broken delver lists because those were four treasure cruise lists that were they dominated that format and there's a reason why cruise was restricted at the same time we got access to this monastery mentor business and people acknowledged that it was good 
but it was a it wasn't immediately adopted and embraced as the best possible thing you could be doing in vintage right it took a a, a couple of months i think for people to really say oh okay <laughs> this really is a thing right and also a lot of people were still stuck in the delver kind of mindset where you should be using cruise to build a certain kind of deck when mentor was actually much better with dig yeah and that's part of the reason why dig ended up getting restricted right and so this early development period for Mentor is was such a favorite period of mine because it brought with it the exploration of so much new technology and so many new approaches to deck building. In hindsight, it um, in hindsight it it, it wasn't a very good thing necessarily no. because <laughs> we all came to realize that Mentor was just impossible to answer, yes. <laughs> which is part of the reason why it became so dominant. But one of the things that traded in me personally was recognition of what resources would allow me to have access to mentor more often and more reliably than my opponents and so it led to developments like main deck cavern of souls for example mm. for the mirrors so that your mentors would resolve and that way any interactions that you had with your opponent were after your mentor was in play which guaranteed you more value necessarily than them the other development that i think of when i, I think of this concept is mind break trap while at the moment I realized that Cavern of Souls was the correct thing to do for the mirror, I immediately realized that Mind Break Trap was then subsequently the correct thing to do for the mirror because it meant you could counter their mentor even when they play, cast it with a cavern. And the first time I did that to one of my friends, Tony, in a tournament, he's he casts his, his mentor and I just tapped four mana and played Mind Break Trap and he said, yeah, it can't be countered. He, you know, he points to his cavern and I said, yeah, this doesn't counter it. <laughs> and so he looked at it and went, oh, <laughs> it, that moment typifies the, the kind of exploration of new technology that I was really enjoying at this time. And yes, I recognize in hindsight that four gifts and four mentors was unhealthy and there was a, it, it's rightly restricted both of them now, among other yes. things. But the exploration and growth that the format went through during these early days was very satisfying to me and I very interesting. I'm glad you enjoyed that period because that was a period that I personally feel mm, some heartburn around. Specifically because after winning the Vintage Super League first season, I thought I was going to be gangbusters. I mean, me and David Williams were like <laughs> frothing. I was so excited because I built in the beginning of that season, as soon as it was legal, season two, a mm -hmm. four mentor deck that I thought was just like the most broken thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> you know, with like digs and everything else. Yeah. And it was a flop. I went, I think we collectively went one and five in the Vintage Super League. And honestly, I think that actually shaped the initial impression around Mentor. I think people yeah. thought that Mentor wasn't as good as we were hyping it up to be because it was such a flop in the Vintage Super League. And I think part of the problem yeah. was you, you couldn't just jam Mentor like you could a Delver. You had to have a slightly more expanded mana base at a time mm -hmm. in which shops were so potent that it's shutting you down and slowing you down. But yeah. so to me, it's like one of the, it's, you know, it's like, Kevin, it's like, you know how we joked about how we played in 2016 Vintage Championship, the most broken deck of all time to go 50 50? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what that experience was like for me on the Vintage Super League. Yeah. So, but you, your experience, your deck was. Your deck was way better than your subsequent record, you and Dave. Well, conceptually, it's like if you look back, it looks like one of the most broken decks of all time. You know, yeah. four dig, four mentor, four you know everything else, and <laughs> and we went one and five. You know, yeah. So yeah. Well, I have fond memories of it, and I know that mentor is is especially kind of a what's the word I want to use here? 
it inspires a lot of diverse feelings in people, yes. right? Because Mentor is a cool card. It is really hard to answer in Vintage. It went too long being unrestricted, ultimately. <laughs> and so it is it is symbolic of fun and also bad things about the format. But I'm, I'm only positively remembering the early days where we were all still learning about it. And that's the part where I had fun. Ah, uh, that's cool. So I what's mean, your number two, Steve? Well, number two is another format that ends with another Time Vault errata. It is, <laughs> it's number, it's format number 73. Now, Kevin, this is a brief form, glorious brief format that began, <laughs> began, well, it basically began with the apocalypse, you know, the vintage apocalypse that restricted Brainstorm, <laughs> Gush, Merchant Scroll, Flash, and Ponder. But it, but the time period I have in mind specifically is basically the period. It's basically 72 and 73. It's where it's the 2008 Vintage Championship that celebrated. God, it would have been the 15th anniversary of Magic, which is weird mm-hmm. to think about. And where there was a special celebratory event. I remember because Mike Long was there, a couple other people to celebrate the anniversary of Magic, and they had a big cake. And Richard Garfield was there, and that's. That's how I got to talk to Richard Garfield and meet him and walk around with him. Um, but uh, this this period was really interesting because the restrictions were eg- extreme, but they opened up this period of really interesting metagame. And at the 2008 Vintage Championship, there were basically a lot of interesting and diverse decks, but there were two decks that kind of funneled themselves to the top. The first was TPS, and the second was Strategic Slaver. They used strategic planning as a replacement for Thirst for Knowledge. Now, Slaver had basically had a year in abeyance because the Gush decks pushed it out. And the, mm-hmm. the restriction of the Gush decks and Flash and all that stuff brought Slaver back into the metagame. And so the top four of this event were two Strategic Slaver decks and two TPS decks. And we were behind both of those decks, our team was. Because mm-hmm. I roomed with Brian DeMars, and I suggested to him, I had strategic planning in my box, and the night before, <laughs> I suggested to him strategic planning, and we played some games, and he loved it. It was perfect for the deck. And so, Jimmy McCarthy, who was on our team, we gave him that tech, and he built it. And then, me and Paul played TPS, and Paul and I played in the last round, and he beat me uh, for top eight. Um and I gave him the deck. The, the, he came that morning. I gave him the deck, and he beat me, and then won the event. Um, <laughs> uh, if I hadn't done that, maybe I would have won the event. It'd been the back to back. But but the point is that um, it was it was such a cool metagame, and it was totally destroyed by the errata on Time Vault, which I'm also frankly responsible for. Uh, <laughs> now I'll take at least a large part of the blame for that. Um, but, you know, that really did, it kind of did crash that metagame, just like Khan's trash that, crashed that other metagame. But it wasn't the Time Vault errata that ruined it. It was the fact that Time Vault errata arrived at the same time as Tezzeret. You know, mm-hmm. if Tezzeret hadn't been in the pipeline, then Time Vault wouldn't have been so obnoxious, I think. Um, so that metagame was so beautiful. It was this beautiful moment of just a couple of months, right, from June 20th, 2008 until October, where you had this incredibly interesting metagame with TPS and, and 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 control slaver at the top and everything else around it, and it was just it was just such a great time, such a cool metagame. That's number two in my list, both for personal reasons but also for objective reasons. Yeah, I'm a little bit jealous because this is a uh, probably my lowest point in 
awareness and participation in vintage throughout this whole period. From 2000 to today, this year in particular, 2008, was the period in which I was living in San Antonio and our local monthly vintage scene had dried up. We were running no proxy vintage events every month for a while in 2006 and seven, and drawing a smallish decent crowd, eight people, give or take. And, but that dried up. A couple of regulars moved on. We couldn't get, we couldn't fire anymore. So around this period, I was just living vicariously through my teammates through the online boards and I wasn't playing at all in the area because oh, Texas was man. a little bit of a, a little bit of a sinkhole, so to speak, for vintage play. And so I remember, I remember during this event and in the weekend of this event, I remember getting messages from you and other team members about how strategic planning the card was such a breakout. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not sure if it was you or Brian. I don't remember exactly, but someone told me, hey, pick up strategic planning yes. if you haven't already because yeah, the card is spiked, going nuts. It spiked vintage. from like $10 to $100 some dollars overnight. That was yeah. awesome. Yeah, it was really interesting. So I was living vicariously a little bit through you. And uh, this does sound like just some classic combo versus some control kind of metagame. That wasn't it, of course, but that was what it came down to at the top of champs, which is pretty cool. By the way, that's the only card that I wish I had sold and would not have regretted selling was strategic <laughs> planning at that peak. Um, yeah, that's fair. Because it, it really burned out after that. It never yeah, had as well, a performance like that afterwards. Yeah. Well, okay, um, Kevin, now we're down to the nitty gritty. That's right. And I really, I can't wait to hear your your number one. So, so what is it? My number one format is a combination of factors, and I, I gave you a, some foreshadowing about this when I started my list. It is, for me, the intersection of probably my favorite individual deck ever, one of my best personal performances ever, and a really interesting and noteworthy point in time. The number on your list is number 56. It equates to oh February <laughs> 2005. And on your list, it is listed and described as Trinisphere's Last Stand. And what happened during this period is Trinistax was all the rage. Trinistax was, was doing well, though not dominant. It's worth noting, it was not dominant. It was just a strong deck. However, it was leading to a lot of non-games because that's what Trinisphere did and why it was restricted. At this time, we went to the thriving metropolis of Syracuse, New York, to play in a Double Power 9 event. And this is where I mentioned, I alluded to earlier, we stayed with our friend and teammate Ryan at his place. And I brought to this tournament a <coughs> Trinisphere deck that had a couple of noteworthy characteristics to it. That's worth noting that at this time, the, the dominant deck, in my opinion, in hindsight, is was Control Slaver. Control Slaver was the thing to beat in this metagame. Now, there was more going on. There was there was there were more features to the metagame, but Control Slaver was, was threat number one. Trinistax, in my opinion, was threat number two, but it was, a, it was a very iconic matchup for this metagame. And one of the things that went into that matchup was the fact that both decks were Goblin Welder decks. And what that meant was your Goblin Welders could be used proactively or disruptively in a lot of different interactions in, from both sides, from both players. The, the, the Mindslaver player was trying to get their Mindslaver back into play with their Welder. That's the reason it's there, of course, or some big threat, some other big creature. And so they their, their Welders were forwarding their A plan there, but they could also use their Welders to disrupt the, the Stacks player by welding out key components right. at key times <laughs> so that they could cast spells or whatever. So And, and, and the, the reverse of that is true then, obviously, for the Smokestack player. The same thing. You could disrupt your opponent's artifacts. 
you could fizzle their welder activations with yours so they couldn't bring Mindslaver back, for example, and all manner of things. There was one key tiebreaker in that interaction, though. And the tiebreaker was if they activated Mindslaver, if Control Slaver activated Mindslaver on you as the stacks player and you had a welder out, that welder started to work for them. Your welder could bring their Mindslaver back into play and they could repeat the loop without having a welder of their own. And that was the thing that broke the parody of the welders, is that theirs were always better than yours, and yours were sometimes theirs. <laughs> That's That was my realiz- realization going into <laughs> you, this event. You went very deep in that event, that you were going to <laughs> break symmetry with 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 trinospheres, with chains, you know, that mm-hmm. you were going to not fall into the, the thirst for knowledge trap, and rack and ruin trap, and have all these enchantments that gummed up the works. You went really deep, and you're... You, you didn't even get to it, but your finals match was epic beyond words. If there was one Ugh. match that I wish I had a video of that I've ever seen, it's probably yeah. that. It's one of the most... Fortunately, yeah. Fortunately, you can still uncover play-by-play of that matchup uh, okay. online, which is nice. Um, it has a funny dialectic to it, too, because it, the, the match was covered by two different authors, one from each side of the table. And so one one of my friends, Carl, was covering me, basically, and rooting for me. And then there was another person covering my opponent. Um, anyway, <laughs> so Steve, you, you alluded to it right there. Is So I was building all of that up to say, Welder was a staple in five-color stacks at this time. It was basically called Welder Stacks or Trina Stacks for a reason. I brought to this event an, a, a, a stack stack that had no welders in it because I didn't want to be on the... I didn't want to be giving my... my Mindslaver opponents, a helping hand. I developed my deck basically around the notion that as little of my deck would hurt me when I got Mindslavered as possible, and I was enabling as little of their deck as I could. And so instead of my instead of my welders, I played three copies of my favorite magic card ever, which is Chains of Mephistopheles. Yes. <laughs> three main deck copies of Chains of Mephistopheles, because because realize as you as you just alluded to, Steve, the Control Slaver decks at the time were thirst for knowledge based and decks. brainstorm. And brainstorm. and brainstorm. They yeah. had thirst for knowledge and brainstorm times four. And think about that for a second. You're just sitting down with an opponent has eight copies of a card that says draw three on it, and you play landmarks chains of Mephistopheles, right? In game one. Yeah. So that further disrupted the the value of their welders too, because they they couldn't dig and get as much value out of their draw spells. And so that list took me all the way to first place in that event. I had a great time along the way. I, I beat such luminaries in the top eight as Jeff and on, on Control Slaver, mind you. That was really the execution, the, the, the pinnacle of my plan. And I also beat Ely Cassis, who was early in his career and eventually went on to become a, a very prominent professional player. And he and I had a savage match, too. It, and so this deck, in hindsight, is, to me, my favorite iteration ever of a five-color stacks list. It had all manner of technology, like Orm's Thunder out of the board and Choke and Ground Seal. I mean, it was... Heavy, heavy on the metagame technology, and oh, yeah. it, it paid off to a T. And I just, <laughs> and I just loved it. Well, the, and it, it, the, go ahead. Well, just the play by play, the 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 blow by blow is perhaps more accurate. The description of the yeah. finals was just incredible. I mean, it's probably your greatest single performance of all time, where you <laughs> where you you literally waited until the last possible moment and played balance, and then Yogmoss yep. willed and recovered everything back out of a stacks deck. It was just yep. incredible how you picked your spot in that because you were playing against a landstill deck, a blue white landstill. Blue white landstill. Yeah. And to your point, Steve, my favorite, 
metric for that first game was that my opponent cast, resolved, <laughs> and activated Nevin Roll's disc three times yeah. in game one. And I still won game one uh, with a Stax deck. It was incredible. I am I'm so proud of that. So um, one other thing I want to add for historical reference vis-a-vis the, the format changes, right? Is I win this game, I'm sorry, I win this event on January 26th, it looks like. And three days later, they announced March. a restriction of Trinisphere. March, yeah. Yeah, on March 1st. They announced a restriction February, of Trinisphere. I'm sorry, so, you won in February, yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted, yeah, the end of February, and then two, and then three days later on that Tuesday, they announced Trinisphere was restricted. And part of the irony there is that I only played three Trinispheres in my list. That was another part of the technology was that the, the format had evolved to a point where people were so prepared for Trinisphere, at least as much as they could be, that I had reasoned that it wasn't quite as good to just have it on turn one because there were so many other Wasteland decks. That's why I met Landstill in the finals. Part of Landstill's value was you go workshop Trinisphere, go, and they go waste your shop, and I have more lands than you in my deck. And so, anyway, that's why I had reasoned that three Trinispheres was the right number. So... <laughs> A really fun performance. I get to say that I legitimately won the last and largest tournament that Trinisphere was ever restricted for. <laughs> True. Which is pretty funny. True. So, Steve, let's talk about your number one. Well, my number one, by process of elimination, is your number five. <laughs> okay. So, it's it's 46. It I call it the last dance before Fetchlands. It really mm. is, I think, you know, probably the greatest vintage format of all time. Um, and it's so great, it's difficult to know where to begin. Um, <laughs> let me begin here, though. So, Fetchlands are probably, in the entire history of the format, the most... If you want to put one change that exists across all of the, this entire timeline, you could. there's a very strong argument that Fetchlands is the biggest change. Mm-hmm. Not, even the, not even Urza block, right? But it's Fetchlands. Yeah. And we've said as much many times before. Right. All right. We've, we've driven that point into the ground because it totally changes what's possible in terms of building a mana base and specifically being able to reliably have basic lands that can't be wastelanded or back to basic or blood moon on turn one, right? On turn one mm-hmm. and not give up reliability on secondary and tertiary colors. Uh, and so, in other words, post Fetchlands, you can build a three-color mana base that's basically anchored by basics, even four-color. Um, that would have been unthinkable before this. If a four, you're playing a four or five-color deck, you're playing City of Brass or Forbidden Orchard or something like that. Right. Gemstone Mine. Um, and so, I th- I actually think that Blood Moon and Back to Basics were kind of important balancing mechanisms in the format that were nice. And the Fetchlands, but also Fetchlands powered up cantrips. Not just brainstorm, but cantrips. Period, to a degree, mm-hmm. and made. I think, in a sense, in one sense, it kind of ruined aspects of the format because with Fetchlands, you can delve is so much more insane. Xerox mm-hmm. decks are so much crazier. Um, if you wanted to get shuffle effects, you had to play stuff like Land Grant before. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's worth noting that our control decks were not shuffling very much. No pre. Fetchlands, no. not at all. And Back to Basics was a monster play. Um, yeah. I, I just think that this, the metagame that immediately preceded Onslaught was so great. So Judgment, Judgment was really crazy. Like, I remember having <laughs> conversations with Carl Winner, who was our teammate, the first official vintage champion, um, although, uh, the Type 1 champion at Gen Con, although Pat Chapin won the 
de facto version of that event the year before. Um, you know, but he won the first painting and everything. And, and we were talking about how cool judgment was. I mean, judgment brought just as a, as a high level summary, it brought, first of all, it brought the incarnations, wonder, anger, Genesis. I think we forget how cool those cards were at the time, Kevin, but they were <laughs> yeah. really cool. I mean, wonder and anger. Ha- Go ahead. Uh, sorry. Having an activated ability out of the graveyard was, it was not novel because we'd had it in alpha starting with like, Nether so, Shadow, right? And then we got Ashen Ghoul. But we were a long stretch before anything did anything else other than just return to play from the graveyard, yeah. right? These incarnations were very novel in the fact that they had spell like effects sitting in that zone. And they changed the dynamics of the get- match in an instant, in a heartbeat. Like you could be planning mm-hmm. for one thing and then your survival opponent plops in anger in the graveyard and suddenly they're on haste. A goblin welder is cast and activated immediately. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was quite, quite amusing. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Judgment had the wishes, Cutting Wish and Burning Wish, which made a huge impact immediately. Especially this is before the exile zone. So you could, you know, exile something on your own accord with like a Psychotog, Cutting Wish for Ancestral back immediately. Um, mm-hmm. But then it also had World Gorger Dragon, which created a whole new combo deck with mm-hmm. Bizarre and or Compulsion. And it had Cabal Therapy. Which became a combo with Academy Rector very quickly, and then later a critical tool in the Dredge deck. So, so Judgment was like this stunning set that brought all these cool new cards and created new deck and new deck concepts. Right, it, Burning Wish made it possible for us to play Yogmoth's Will Tendrils, you know, and and Tendrils, of course, had come came a month late, uh, a year later with Scourge, but but Burning Wish introduced that possibility. Um, and, um, I just think the metagame was great. And part of the reason the metagame was so great was because in 2000, you had tricks, necro tricks dominate the format. And then that necropotence was restricted after. And by the way, before necropotence, you had the combo decks of the Academy era dominating. So mm-hmm. when all those things were restricted, then five color control was basically the best. And then factor fiction was printed and then blue mono blue was the best with Four Factor Fiction, four Morphling, and four Back to Basics. Then Factor Fiction was restricted. And around the time that Factor Fiction was restricted, Illusionary Mask was given an unexpected and under-the-radar errata. So you had a convergence of several things occurring at once. You had Workshop decks emerging. Stacker 2, Stacks was on the verge of breaking out, Kevin. But Stacker mm-hmm. 2 was just emerging, which was kind of like the mono-red Workshop deck with, with Welder. You had the mask deck emerge. You had mono blue control. You had world gorger dragon combo. And then you had five color control. So you had this incredible kind of tables on, uh, legs on the vintage table, right? Of mask, world gorger combo, shops, and control as really the emergent decks. And those decks were fascinating. And then you also had super grow, the grow at all, you know, uh, just grow with land grant at one end, and you had kind of the remnants of the academy deck at the other. Chapin and others were innovating around mostly Grim Monolith power artifact combo in the academy shell. And so I think it's probably kind of the analog to the 2006 metagame I referred to earlier, post Ravnica, is like this incredibly unique, even in some sense, in some sense more unique, 
because those strategies weren't possible in other formats. Sure, War Gorger Dragon, I think, was briefly permitted and extended, but Mask Knot and Shops and this like big blue deck and the Academy deck, you know, those decks weren't, those were unique to the format of Type 1, right? Totally unique. Mm-hmm. And so I think it made for a truly singular and fascinating moment. And what happened was fetch, fetch lands were printed and suddenly Psychotog was just the best deck because you could build a three-color Psychotog deck that was impervious to back to basics and it just crushed everything else. Psychotog was bigger than Mask. <laughs> you know, it yeah. was bigger than the, than the Dreadnought if it needed to be. Um, so I, I think that metagame right before Fetchlands is, I think, the best, most interesting, most singular, probably one of the most fun to play. It might not be the most fun to play, but of all the different criteria, I think it's probably the, the, the most interesting in the entire history of the format. Balanced, diverse, interesting, unique, right? And it's, and it's angles of attack and just overall awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm already on record as it being in my top five, so I don't have too much to add there. Um, what did you enjoy playing the most during this period? Everything. <laughs> no, seriously, I had built, a, a, I had a box with four decks in it. Mask, I think it was TNT, the, the workshop aggro with survival, with the incarnations, uh, Gorger combo, and I think I had Grow, and then maybe Mono Blue. And you could just play any any of those two of those five decks, and you could have added Academy. Take any two of those six decks, play them against each other, and you will have a blast playing them into the wee hours of the night. It was just an mm-hmm. awesome metagame. Yeah. And I am fortunate, I think, that I was really getting into and interested in competitive vintage leading up to this point because the various comings and goings, as we graduated from just Keeper being kind of the the headline of the format, right? Into the Accelerated Blue time frame, which the Accelerated Blue was a cool deck, but it was not the most fun or the best to play against. No. Um, to get into this kind of period, right when I was hitting kind of a, the, my stride of interest in the format was... Perfect I think, timing. One of, yeah, one of a handful of things that really cemented the format for me as fascinating in the long term. I mean, it, at the surface level, let me just emphasize this because I, want, I, I don't know, we're probably glossing over it. But Mask Knot was one of the most exciting decks you could play. I mean, it was so cool. To go Dark Ritual, Illusionary Mask, Phyrexian Dreadnought, or play, you know, like a Phyrexian Negator or a Hypnotic Spectre or a whatever you wanted to play face down mm-hmm. was just thrilling. It's a thrilling moment because your opponent doesn't know what you've got for sure. They have to make these decisions, and it was thrilling. And so that deck, like, how do you beat Mask then? Well, I can grow a Quirion Dryad. I can, you know, play a combo deck like Wargorger Dragon. You know, I can play this this Tools and Tubbies deck with Goblin Welder and try and weld out your, you know, weld out your thing and 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 combo mm-hmm. out with Survival. All the decks were so f- just pure fun, just pure unadulterated <laughs> fun, and just they had they had both a Spike element and a Timmy Timmy element. Maybe that's really it. Maybe this is the the one moment in the history of the format where the best decks were the most Timmy-ish and, and also the most unique from each other. It's just totally different. You know, they weren't trying to do the same thing. They had totally unique angles of attack. 
And that's yeah. why they were all so fun. I would like to draw this back to how our podcast started with talking about the role of Mox Opal in Paradoxical Outcome. There are two combo decks, and you could argue that Psychotog and Survival decks had combo-like finishes, but there were two pure combo decks on this list in the form of Dragon and Academy, neither of which had a reliable turn one kill. No. And no. They, so they had a lot more fragility, but they were still good enough to, that they could navigate the format. And also, the one thing that's kind of missing here is the taxing element. Yes. Your combo decks like Academy yes. and Dragon didn't hopelessly fall behind if the workshop player got a turn. And st- right? Stacker, <laughs> yeah, and Stacker didn't play a lot of taxing because all you had was spheres and they didn't even play spheres. It was just. They didn't play spheres. They were trying to cast their own Goblin Mothers and Survivals and stuff. They're trying yes. to cast non workshopable cards, right? Well, they had Juggernauts and, so, and Suchis, but that was how they won. That's, Timmy, very Timmy effects, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they were playing efficient threats, but the, the thing that you had to really be worried about were the engine cards. Yes. Survival was the thing that pushed them over the top yes and and so th- there's just nothing in this format exists in the extremes that it does today yes you're not just losing if you're playing a combo like an academy based combo deck and you you're on the draw against shops yeah. and, the, right? and the xerox deck is way ahead by turn three just by shop by playing a million cantrips that didn't exist then you right didn't have the shuffle effects it didn't or, exist then yeah yeah and brainstorm was you're, Bla- you're, brainstorm was unplayed at this time it was a bad actively a bad card and le- except yeah. in a very specific number of decks, because if you couldn't shuffle, and, it was just terrible to sit there. Yeah, it was no good. It was yeah, it was just like, what's the alpha card? Um, natural selection. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just a little bit better than natural selection. Um, and your your psychotog playing opponents would frequently just play a second uh, second land, second island on the the well, second turn and pass. Well, psychotog wasn't up. even like, playable until fetch lands. Frankly, yeah. it wasn't even playable. Yeah. So. I agree with you, and I think it's it, Timmy is I think sometimes used in a very derogatory manner, but I think what you're really observing here is that the format was just so much more tame that you had a little bit of time in the average game. You really well, did. Well, it was tame, but it was also thrilling. Like to be able to go yeah. turn one dark ritual mask not, or to be able to go, you know, turn one bizarre turn two. You know, um, win with with World Gorger Dragon to be able to go. You know, turn one survival of the fittest. Turn two. Um, you know, play a, a a Suchi and a Goblin Welder, and then turn three explode by yeah. by you know binning a creature, getting another creature. You know, using um, your Goblin Welder to weld back Suchi, having plenty of mana, then binning. Uh, an incarnation to get your next goblin welder having haste. I mean, it was just yeah. just so much fun, you know. And then and then <laughs> literally, as I said, Patrick Chapin won the kind of de facto vintage championship with Miracle Grow that summer. And Miracle Grow, you know, was the deck that basically, as he he understood the metagame, Miracle Grow kept Academy in check. And his deck, I don't know if you remember this, Kevin, but it had four Force of Will, Days, Foil. And for misdirection and foil. Wow. Yeah. It, it, I did not remember yet that it had, much card. And for gush to support foil, and it was like was he on land grant and that yes list? land grant and and brainstorm yeah. and cantrips. It was the only brainstorm deck, and he he won that event. But so he, in his view, grow beat academy, but mask beat grow. So mask was kind of the deck that balanced the metagame in his view. Now he 
he mm. wasn't really aware of TNT at the time, which was amazing, and then the World Gorger Dragon deck. And then I played Mono Blue, and I don't know if you remember this, but with Mono Blue, Powder Keg was amazing against Mask. Because you just got to get yeah. it to one, and you can wipe out all the Dreadnoughts. <laughs> or yeah. even better, Control Magic the Dreadnought, or play Energy <laughs> Flux, you know, all that stuff. Right. Um, and then Yeah, Ke- yeah the Mono Blue deck had a lot of interesting levers. And Keeper was good. Keeper was a background deck that people really enjoyed. This was like, in some sense, the resurgence of Keeper, where, where Darren Batista called it the franchise, and Oscar Tan was writing <laughs> yep. at the time. You know, and there, this is af- this is after a long series of what's the word that describes the just the community circling around all the issues of how to build Keeper and was Keeper? You know, the, the conversation around Keeper w- ranged from. This is the de facto list that you should play during Batista, right? Yes. All the way down to the people who said this deck is unplayably bad. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you heard it's every very opinion. Polarized. Yeah. Yeah. All the whole range was there about Keeper, but it was omnipresent. But as you as you alluded to earlier, this is after Fact had been printed, generated mono blue, and then restricted, and mono blue disappeared. So Keeper was re-rising and having to react to the new threats of the metagame because there were legitimately a whole bunch of new threats in the metagame. Right. And this the threat of also, like, turn one Bizarre, turn two Animate Dead was lethal. Yeah. I mean, this is, the, this is the deck that brought Bizarre. So you had this point where, like, Bizarre, Shops, Bizarre and Workshop, and Mask were all surged to about $100 a pop. You know, from being like twenty, yeah. thirty dollar cards, so they all became kind of neck and neck threats in the metagame, and they went all were about a hundred, hundred twenty dollars a piece. I remember going around, try, you know, I traded my fifth shop for another bazaar, you know, my my masks. I wanted to get four because I wanted to have all those decks built because they're so cool, you know, mask, bazaar, shop, and then a blue deck, and you had basically the perfect metagame. Last thing, because just in case people aren't tracking this, but the way the World Gorger Dragon combo worked is that the the Animate Dead goes onto the World Gorger Dragon, bringing it into play, but then the World Gorger Dragon come into play ability makes the Animate Dead leave play, so it creates an infinite loop, and in each iteration of the loop, you can activate Bazaar or Compulsion, and eventually you get an Ambassador Laquatus into the graveyard, and you switch the Animate Dead with infinite mana to the Ambassador Laquatus, and then deck your opponent. So it yeah. was so cool. You could use compulsion for the same effect. So you had enough enough of that effect if you couldn't find bizarre. But it was just such. All these decks were just so cool. They're so cool. <laughs> I I want to point out another thing that wasn't actually in this era. It could have been, I think, but I think it, it came about later as a part of further development. It was actually about a year later. The finals of the 2003 Vintage Champs, which was Carl Winner versus Shane Stutes. And the deck that Shane was playing, Carl wins with Psychotog, <laughs> but the deck that Shane Stutes was playing was called Venger Mask. And it was a it was a hybrid of TNT and Mask. Yes. So it was a survival deck <laughs> that also had the mask combo built yeah. into it. And that deck was so cool. It was so cool. I think it was uh, technically possible in 2002, but we didn't discover it. Yeah. And it had, I believe it had the Incarnations, which had a much bigger, oh, yeah. much bigger footprint on the format than they, of course, do today. Ah, those were the days. Now, that was really just a great, great, great format. Yeah. Well, it's no surprise that your and my perspectives on this are have a lot of similarities and a couple of differences, right? I noticed, for example, that you didn't particularly highlight the year that you won Vintage Champs, for example. That would be um, too easy. <laughs> well, yeah, that's fair enough. But But it also, to me, highlights the fact that we've been through a lot 
as a community, as a format, as players thereof, as you and I as friends and teammates. And there's a lot of different eras, as you alluded to it, and we could talk maybe in the future about how these 130-plus formats really chunk up into different eras. You've alluded to it on a number of occasions yeah, uh, in, different, in different ways, well, you know. It, throughout our show, but in my, you really have you really have some some specifics to it now. I would say it's true. In my book, in the latest version of the history of vintage book, I've actually chunked it into into five basically five periods. The first is mm-hmm. basically like the first you know five years. The second is the the kind of nadir of the so I call that the type one, the golden age of type one. The second yeah. is like the you know the nadir of the format where it was basically a dead format. And then the third is kind of like the reblossoming of the format around 2001, 2002, where the internet mm-hmm. really brought all these people who like this defunct format together. And then the, the fourth era is the basically the Time Vault era. And then the fifth era is basically the arrival of it on Vintage on, Magic Online, you know, which is yeah. kind of we're still in the tail end of that in some sense. We're just, you know, a little, there's, there's, we're basically in some sort of sixth chunk, but you know, there's no no perfect way to divide it up, but I think those five year increments kind of work pretty well for the first 25 yeah. years of the of of the format of the game. I have a feeling that as we get more distant from it, I think we're going to be pretty solidly in the camp that 2019 represents the end of the prior era. With yeah. everything that happened in the summer of 2019, that is such a it is such a, a lightning rod. I yeah. I just want to say I don't want to hide the ball on this. I am not one of those people who is down on the last year and a half of vintage. I'm the, I actually yeah. really like a lot of it. I love Modern Horizons. I'm ambivalent on more of the Spark except I love Dreadhorde Arcanist. And I <laughs> and I love the companions. I I mean I really do enjoy them. Um so I'm I, I'm not big on Lavinia, but I, I really do I welcome our our latest era. I think it's interesting in its own right. And I hope it I hope it continues to be. Well, I also love playing Doomsday, so that helps. well and (laughs) that helps right for the moment i also think it's worth pointing out that perspective on the format has necessarily shifted over time with the communication tools that we have available to us the (laughs) the the breadth of opinions about keeper that i alluded to earlier they were shared via message boards irc right email they were shared on on it's you know message boards aren't her- aren't inherently a, a slower medium than say Facebook or Twitter. Not inherently, in, 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 but in practice inherently they are not. But in practice they are. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to get at. And so yeah, we had message boards and we talked about stuff. But the pace of change, thanks to being able to play almost entirely in, only in paper, with a few strange exceptions, meant that you were waiting for the results to be posted from the last big event like Gen Con or Star City Games back in the early 2000s, right? And so the metagame necessarily shifted slower. And you and I have experienced a thing that not many active vintage players have probably ever experienced, and that is team secrecy. That is building a deck that is a foil to last month's event and keeping it a secret until you unveil it you know, at that event. And it's the thing that allowed us to do so well, for example, with me and Deck Oath as a team. Yes. That that kind of thing doesn't exist anymore. There's no there's no oh here's the new breakthrough thing that that a dozen people you know a cabal of people are working on to break the next vintage format that just doesn't exist in modern day for better or for worse. And so I also think that part of the influence of eras has to take into account just the way that vintage information is communicated 
And there's no secret that the early days, yes, right? The you media, mentioned how difficult it was to unearth well, even basic information about who won which tournaments in the early days. I forget who said, is it like Marshall McLuhan, but the medium is the message? Basically, what you're saying is that the communications and technology mediums that exist, you know, really do somewhat shape the experience that players have in terms of engagement with the format. And I, I could not agree more. In fact, mm-hmm. I, you know, Jaco in editing my chapters kind of like tries to weed out statements to that effect you know he's like what, what does technology have to do with it but no it really does i mean just to just to give oh, you, it absolutely let me does. give you some specific yeah. examples so without the without message boards you don't have these these people who have these different affinities of interest or affinities and communities of interest converging it's just not possible right it's like yeah. and, and that, that happens in the real in outside of magic in a number of different cases so people who have you know different interests or disabilities or ability you know they they're able to find their you know their their community online and you can't do that in 1985 it has to basically you couldn't even do it in 1990 you have to have kind of the full bloom of the internet to be able to do that and and also then you reach this point where companies like star city games begin you number one they have online sales so it's not you can't you don't have to just go into a brick and mortar store to buy magic cards which turns mm-hmm. magic into a global marketplace, which means mm-hmm. that power can go to Europe and Japan and elsewhere, right? And so you and it did, and it did right? And so <laughs> that creates new opportunities new for new communities that otherwise wouldn't have those cards. So the technology actually does fundamentally change the possibilities for community, for experiencing and engaging with the format, just as it does with Magic Online. Magic Online, it's, it's so interesting. You know, why are, are people writing less and streaming more? Well, the platform makes it possible. Without Magic Online, streaming is awkward at best, right? You can still do it. Yep. It's it's just not the same thing. You, you, it takes a lot more technology and so on, but it's so easy to do it. It's democratized yep. in some some sense. Um, and so, like, you know, I was I'm a writer, so the the first decade of this century fit my style perfectly, right? I I enjoy streaming, but it's not the same thing. I like to parse and analyze and ruminate you know that's not mm-hmm. something you do on a stream a stream is a little more <laughs> hyperkinetic or hyperactive you know than yep. than reading which i enjoy more so i i think that you know that's not saying one is bet worse or better it, they're different just like the 90s was different where the 90s was about mm-hmm. not message not the mess 90s was more about the duelist magazines and then the user the 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 um, usenet right in the in the early 21st century was more about message boards, forums, where they were mm-hmm. moderated. The Usenet was a mess. It wasn't moderated. It was this anar- <laughs> anarchy, right? Yeah. And so you have – it really does. The, the, the medium is the experience from the duelist and the, use, the dark ages of the Usenet to the message board era to the now social media. I was funny. I was going back and uh, as I was editing the chapters, Kevin, I think it was um, – it was um, Ryan Glacken and Mark Hornung around 2012 or maybe 2011, I want to say. They did the first updates on Twitter with hashtag for a vintage event, major vintage event. I think yeah, it, I remember that. Yeah, and it's, it's like cracking open a whole new way of doing something, right? And then the Vintage yeah, Super yeah. League becomes possible because of uh, because of Magic Online. So. I think it's critical. I think you're you're really onto something there. That our experiences are are formatively shaped by these structural arrangements. 
Yeah, and the only thing I can think, the only vest, the only vestige of the things that you saw commonplace in the '90s, like teams, like regional preferences. We used to talk about the Northeast as a yes. uh, haven for control yes. decks, right? Yes. That that's laughable by today's yes. standards. The only vestige of that that I can think of right now is I still think there's a meaningful difference between the American and European as one concept versus the Japanese metagame. Well, I also... I think, it, <laughs> I think if you look at results from Japanese tournaments, they have a slightly different bent still in this day and age than the American-European does. Yeah, you may you may be right. I also think that the Team Serious footprint is is meaningful and, and different than kind of the rest. You know, it, it's not it's not as heavy on Magic Online. And so that... That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But but that was because well, and, that was because then, to test you had to be able to meet up in person. Now you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously the impact and splintering of the player base vis-a-vis old school is relevant here too. Yeah. Which is not quite as enabled oh. by social media and technology as other things but still oh. is enabled. Old school's right? like biker gangs, man. There's like clubs <laughs> clubs scattered all because of that reason. It's it's I yeah. want to say it's not just that you can't test you couldn't. Te- you had to test in person, but the main right. events were regional. Like you had to go to Indianapolis. Yeah. You had to go to, you know, Connecticut. You had to go to wherever to play. Yeah. Now the main vintage events, aside from the vintage championships or the NYSE, which doesn't exist at the moment, or the Waterbury, right. are online. You know, so mm-hmm. we'll see how that evolves going down the line. Well, Steve, we could wax nostalgic about this whole process and the history of vintage for hours. I think, but. I think this has been a good discussion. I think we've uncovered lots of great nostalgic and tentpole moments here in the history of vintage. I personally thank you for putting together this artifact that makes that enables this discussion so specifically. And I think we should move on to our next major category for our 100th episode here. Well, Steve, we've talked about some fun and important topics here in this episode, but we're not done. We're far from done. (laughs) As we continue (laughs) our 100th episode spectacular here, we are going to do something that some of our audience members have kind of requested indirectly, maybe not specifically, but indirectly. And we are going to review Alpha, the first ever magic set. In line with our prior review of Arabian Nights, we're going to take a a pretty broad perspective on that which was Alpha, what it meant at the time, what it means now, and all times in between. And frankly, Steve, mm-hmm. I'm excited. This is a really fun task we this have in is, front of us. I'm I'm thrilled, and I'm happy to oblige the the unspecific requests, as you put it. That's right. To do this, there is a caveat, though. This set is not technically Alpha; it's limited edition <laughs> in its original formulation. Right, right. Of Magic: The Gathering. Right. Because Magic the Gathering was not intended to be the only formulation of Magic. It was intended to be the first edition of Magic. Mm -hmm. And that there would be separate sets of Magic, like Magic the Ice Age, Magic the Menagerie, Mm -hmm. which would later become Ice Age and Mirage. So it's it's alpha by colloquial convention, and I think has become somewhat formal. um, But it's technically, alpha is... 
we're, we're going to do we're going to review beta as well, just for the record. <laughs> yeah. But we're really talking about limited edition. Yeah. An important historical note: when this thing came out, it was not beta. Or it was not alpha. It was not beta. It was not. People were not aware of the significance. They were not even aware of, I mean, outside of people within Wizards, I don't think they were not even aware of necessarily cards that they couldn't even open in a booster pack of Alpha, right? Of which there are several. And so it is worth noting that at the time, it was was positioned significantly differently. And obviously, many, many of the cards we feel differently now about than anyone could have or would have then. Right. We have nearly 30 years of historical remove. The... Just one other note. So what we mean by limited edition was originally supposed to be the 10 million cards that were printed with of this set. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first 2.6 million of which became alpha and the remaining 7.3 million became beta. And the reason that the alpha has different curved corners was because Cardamundi, which was the European printer contracted by Wizards of Coast, Wizards of the Coast to develop Magic the Gathering and, and print it and then ship it to, you know, states and parts beyond, um, took a vacation in August, as Europeans typically do. They take <laughs> holiday, right? Mm-hmm. And when they came back, they cleaned and reset the dies. And so beta Beta's corners now become the standard de facto corners for Magic, while Alpha remains this uh, unusual, eccentric, idiosyncratic, and beautiful outlier. <laughs> and that's also why a lot of the coloring is different on alpha and beta cards. Certain cards are dramatically different between the two. Some well, of them look that's precisely not, the same. Yeah, that's not ex- that, that. What I just described is not actually why the coloring is different for beta. The reason the coloring is different for beta is because there were a number of templating errors that they corrected between alpha and beta. And when they reset, not just that they reset the dies, but they fix the template. And so those specific cards that have template corrections between alpha and beta, and I'll mention some of them in the course of this, but cards like Mana Short, Birds of Paradise, um, there are uh, uh, about six or seven others, maybe a little more. Those have dramatically different color uh, appearances. Twiddle's another one of them. So that's not all of them are different. Yeah. Just the ones where they actually change the templating, Kevin. Yeah. The, or they change the artist. We're gonna have a funny conversation. Yeah, we're gonna have a funny conversation about Birds of Paradise in particular. I know. Um, <laughs> and Birds of Paradise is not. While you are correct that the template changed, it's not what I would call one of the titular examples of the colors being different. Though I'm talking about Red Elemental Blast and yes. Assault Monolith and Icy Manipulator, the cards yes. that look like they're legitimately from two different printings, even at a glance. There's no mistaking those two those two examples of those cards. You c- and all three of those are cards of, examples of cards that had template change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Template changes. Well, which we can we'll talk about when we get. Yeah, there. I, I don't want to skip ahead too much. Birds of Paradise is a fun one, but when we'll try to call out those cards that are specifically different between Alpha and Beta because there are a number of noteworthy examples. So yes. we're going to take this thing in alphabetical order which is an order that produces some fun quirks. It produces some some fun distribution of cards and effects and colors throughout the set. So it's going to be it's going to feel like a little bit more of a mechanical mishmash perhaps than it would if we had gone say in uh, in set number order. But I think this is going to produce a pretty fun result. Yes, I think it's easier to follow this way in alphabetical order rather than set number. Also, it will be 
you know, it's the same approach we use for our Arabian Nights at review, which was we we got a phenomenal response on. So mm-hmm. I think it makes sense to to follow the same approach. Yeah, absolutely. So one other housekeeping note: Alpha is 295 cards. Beta, limited edition beta, is 302 cards. So we'll explain the difference later. Mm-hmm. But just something to bear in mind. So we've got a long road ahead. Kevin, <laughs> let's dive in. All right. In alphabetical order, starting with the first card in alpha, we have Air Elemental. It's a 3UU for a creature, well, then summon Elemental. It's a 4-4 flyer, vanilla otherwise. <laughs> and Air Elemental really is part of a, a triad and you could argue it's a, a bigger set than that, but it's part of a specific triad within Alpha, along with Sarah Angel and Sanger Vampire, which really set to establish certain parameters for what big, not necessarily the biggest, but large flyers were allowed to be and were expected to be across those three colors. And Air Elemental is one of the cards in Alpha that has been re- reprinted in an almost evergreen fashion since then. <laughs> and it's noteworthy due to the fact that it hasn't it has I don't know if it's changed the least I'd have to do some mathematics on that one but it has changed almost not at all since its inception that is to say it has been an uncommon in every case mm-hmm. over the course of dozens of printings it has had a similar function in core sets for the most part and other sets at, across the years and it really is a stalwart of magic even to this day yeah no uh, you hit on three elements i want to draw together one is that um, Air Elemental anchors blue as a a set as a color in the color pie that has flying creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's one of at least three or four critical blue uncommons. Um, interestingly, all three of the triad that you mentioned are all printed at uncommon. Yeah, which is and noteworthy. I think Air Elemental, right? I think Air Elemental is the is kind of the perfect entry point to make the point that while rares are kind of the playable constructed backbone of alpha and that continues to be the case today dual lands power so on and so forth Mm -hmm. um from a more narrow perspective of alpha itself or just the base set really it's the uncommons in the set that bring the set to life the giver give it its full kind of play playable texture Mm -hmm. and 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 the three cards that you just mentioned are kind of chief among those um, as kind of key playables. And as you'll see as we go through this, it's really the uncommons that are like the most played constructed cards outside of the back, you know, the, outside of the backbone power in dual lands. And Air Elemental is, is phenomenal for, for that, it, for epitomizing both of those, those features of the set. I want to also point out from an artistic perspective, the art is kind of this like woozy yellow submarine psychedelic <laughs> aspect to it that's really just phenomenal and compelling. Um, and, and really unusual in some sense for like a fantasy theme, but, but beautiful. And I, I also love the flavor text, which we won't read, but, uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal card. And yes, it's, it situates itself well next to those, those other two cards. Although I'll note that all three of those have flying. The other two have special abilities mm-hmm. that Air Elemental doesn't, doesn't have. Uh, you're right about that last bit, which it sets up some interesting contrast across the colors throughout the history of magic, in fact. And it's noteworthy that. Sanger Vampire of the three is not the one that survived as much as a staple in black as did Air Elemental and to a slightly lesser degree Sarah Angel. I You mean survive in terms of reprinting? Correct. Or do you mean survive? Yeah. In, yeah. There were definitely reprintings of all of them. They've all been reprinted multiple times, but Air Elemental is on the high side of that. 
I want to comment about a thing. Okay, I want to comment about the art real quick. This is just a small point, but it's something we're going to come back to. While I agree, I love this alpha art. It's very, it's very evocative. It has one characteristic that you're going to see repeated across a number of alpha arts and, and sets that follow thereafter. And that is a subject devoid of context. And there yes. might be various reasons for this. Some of them are stylistic. Some of them might just be it was easier to do, <laughs> as I imagine is the case in many cases. But this elemental you see here is just a being of air, lots of blue and swirls to evoke the air and the movement thereof, in an otherwise void skyline, basically. A, a very, yeah. very uniform yellow skyline. The clouds in which are only outlined. They're not colored. Right. The mountains in the background right. are the same color as the sky. It's very devoid of context. It's, it's it's even hard to tell that it's in a sky. In fact, it it allows it allows the foregrounded figure to have to appear more salient. Yeah. I, I I mean there is a very subtle. It's not quite a void. It's just very subtle. Very subtle. Um. It's yeah. Very subtle. It's got the faintest lower part of the card has the faintest of a of a kind of landscape horizon, mm-hmm. and then the upper part of the card has the, has a color change. It's almost like a watercolor change that indicates some sort of mm, light source, but it's not figuratively drawn. It's not figured into the image. It's just a shift in light. You know, <laughs> it's like. A tonal difference, but it does. I think your point is that what Alpha does so well is the art allows the foregrounded image to become really draw. It draws your eye to the foregrounded image as opposed to drawing your eyes to like background details that distract from the foregrounded image. Yeah. Well, I'm going to point that out several more times, but uh, I won't say as much about it. Then the other thing I wanted to talk about was the mechanics of flying in Alpha. This is another thing that we're going to hit on a number, a number of times. I know many, many Magic players think of blue as the color of flying. If you were to pick a color that had flying, blue would be number one on the list, right? And it varies over time. There are no common creatures with flying in Alpha. <laughs> let that sink in for it's a minute. It's not until Arabians. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. It's not until wait, flying wait, men. Wait a second. Scri- Scrib Sprites is common. Blue. I think. Blue. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. I strike that. I will. Yeah. You, you should you should say that more. Did you say blue? I by did. the way, I yeah. don't know if you just said that. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. So for the color that we all now in today's day and age and have for decades now associate with flying, it was the only cards that relate to flying at common in Alpha are the cards jump and flight, the two one mana cards that either temporarily <laughs> or permanently give a creature flying. So you could be you could be understood to argue for the fact that all blue does with flying at common. It, you know, in Alpha is give other creatures flying, which is humorous in retrospect. There are four uncommon creatures with flying. There's one rare that we'll get to. I just find that interesting. We're going to, I think, point to issues related to that multiple times about how the standard values that we associate with sets in Magic and the characteristics we associate with color are absolutely present in Alpha, but at the same time, they're in weird distributions. They're just in weird distributions. It's, it's like a bizarro, a bizarro version of of what is contemporary, right? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's <laughs> exactly. Bizarro world version. All right, Steve. Anything else on Air Elemental? Well, just the last point is that I think perhaps the the pair to Air Elemental is Earth Elemental, both being, you know, uh, the three generic colorless casting cost elemental. Uh, in the set. Well, they're, they're part of a to, yeah. Well, they're part of a cycle of four, power. of four though, because there's air, water, earth, and fire. 
And blue has right. two of them, one in the air, one on the ground. And red has two of them, which are just mirrors of each other, power and toughness-wise, fire and earth, which we'll get to in a bit. Good point. It's um an early example of a non-color... Uh, it's a non-complete cycle of elementals. And there are plenty of other elementals, obviously, throughout history <laughs> since then. But Alpha firmly established the notion that some colors have a very strong... Uh, elemental basis, whereas others, like black in this set, really do not. It's also an example of top-down set design. Absolutely. Right, of, of using, yeah. Yeah. All right, so one, part, one fun part about alphabetic order is that we get to one of the platinum hits here on card number two, and <laughs> one that we could spend a lot of time, I know, and that is Ancestral Recall, card which needs no introduction, one of the original cycle of one mana for three of something effects. Steve, what is that cycle called? The boons? That cycle is, yes, it's called the boons. Yeah. Healing solve, dark ritual, lightning bolt, giant growth. Yeah. And obviously, <laughs> when Richard Garfield developed this card, now you can make the case that, uh, you know, this is the most broken one, and it obviously is. At the same time, he acknowledged that thereby putting it at rare, which we can talk, maybe take this opportunity to talk about what rarity really means in alpha. But this card obviously is at this point only legal in vintage and other vintage adjacent variants of magic like i don't know canadian highlander and things like that and there's a <laughs> there's a good reason for that but it's one that you and i cast at, uh, at basically every opportunity <laughs> which is part of the reason why yeah. why we're so attracted to vintage it's, it's it's certainly one of the best cards ever printed arguably in the top two or three you know there there aren't many cards that actually can compete as the best card now mm-hmm. It, depending on how widely you you scope that, you've got you know basically Black Lotus and Contract from below in the in the argument, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but but there are a number of things to say about it. The first thing is that it's it's in some respects incredible how much the evolution of what we call vintage has evolved around this card. So there was a, a about a ten year stretch where Merchant Scroll kind of became ascendant around casting Ancestral Recall and then replaying Ancestral Recall. You know, and then fighting over ancestral recall is partly what made misstep and misdirection so useful. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it's you know, the evolution of the, the format in some sense is so largely centered around this one card. It's almost remarkable, and it's also remarkable that you know before a force of will was printed, this was by f- like in some sense one of the most. I mean, obviously it's part of the power blue cycle, but if force of will had never been printed, which is a very hard counterfactual to deal with. <laughs> Um, you know, bl- without and without this card, it's hard to know whether blue would have been so heavily cemented as you know the 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 main color in the vintage format. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It, that's how central its role is. Uh, Time Twister was not was not ascendant in its current in the way we view it now until much later, right? It, by that I mean there's a whole category of draw sevens now that have many variants, right? And Time Twister and Wheel of are obviously the the ancestors of those. But the way we view draw sevens as resources today is was not established in Alpha, right? They're well, they're not think, the resource generators it, that they are for us today. I think that's partly true and partly untrue. I think I think t- my recollection is that Time Twister was very ascendant in the first year and a half, two, three, two years of magic, and then kind of waned, and then kind of reascended and you know and pops up. There was a period where t- well, we get, we can talk about this more with Time Twister, but Time Twister regrowth as a recursion engine yeah. was actually very central to the early magic constructed experience mm-hmm. because it was so unique. 
Um, I would argue. I think, I think that those that cards is, have evolved. Yeah, in, I would argue that is a different context for Time Twister than what we have today. That's that's a specific point I was trying to make. But we, you're right, we can get to that with Time Twister. <laughs> but my point is to contrast that with Ancestral Recall, which while... Which has been steady ready. Yeah, yeah, which has always provided the three cards right off the bat. <laughs> and its context has shifted and its emphasis has shifted, as you've called out with many future printings. But at the same time, without Ancestral Recall, I don't believe Time Twister would have would have anchored Blue as nearly as well. I also want to point out that... You, it, that Ancestral Recall is the original template for what would become Brainstorm, and then later on, all the iterate, all the iterated versions of the one blue mana cantrip, Ponder, Preordain, etc. Yeah. That Ancestral is the the ancestor of those cards, <laughs> and and I think what I think what time has borne out is is that that is one of the most critical effects in Magic. You could see it. it I think Legacy illustrates this perhaps more vividly than some sense that even Vintage. Mm-hmm. Um, but that 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 kind of approach of loading up with very efficient filtering effects that allow you to see a lot of cards is really the become the core of a lot of constructed magic post onslaught. And I, one kind of interesting illustration of this. So in 2019, I had the privilege to go to NoobCon in Sweden and compete in an old school tournament. And one of the ancillary events to that was called the Wizards Tournament, which was an alpha only tournament, which I won with a deck that is probably the most powerful deck ever built in the history of Magic. <laughs> it was, uh, I believe, if I recall correctly, about 13 Ancestral Recalls. Uh, and I think it was, maybe I'm, it was either 13 Mock Sapphires or 13 Ancestral Recalls. I, I, 11 of the other, I can't remember which. <laughs> but the gist is that what I discovered in the course of that is there had been all this theory crafting in Magic history about how you build the most consistent and reliable turn one kill. And the general consensus had been basically you run some large number of Black Lotus and large number of Time Twisters, mm-hmm. and then you can generate infinite mana and win with probably Brain Geyser or Fireball. But I think what actually is interesting is that I think even if you have a bunch of Lotuses, you can decrease the number of Lotuses. It doesn't have to be 50-50, and you can still have some sort you know, reduce your stall rate. I think the math supports this. I could be wrong. But by having a slightly higher density of ancestrals, because then then you know, your your chance of actually running out of either spells or or mana is slightly lower. It's an, it's a very uh, esoteric math <laughs> experiment because the math is extreme. You have to do all these simulations at the margins. But but ancestral recall just provides a kind of backbone of a spine of consistency that um you know that that like if that uh, to some extent that nothing else really can give you in magic. And you can put ancestral and just lotuses and you can then do anything else you want basically to win the game. You know, take yeah. infinite turns with time walk and kill with a war mammoth if you want. Yeah. But just an interesting kind of uh, thought experiment, I think, that I didn't quite realize that I think at the end in terms of more consistency, the ancestral I think gives you slightly more consistency than boundless time twister. Well, your comments about how Ancestral was the progenitor and subsequently the broken, admittedly, model for cantrips is well made. And it's no secret that R&D has been chasing that sweet spot for what the proper balance of a cantrip really is. We all acknowledge that Ancestral, while providing a model, is certainly broken. We all <laughs> And we all should acknowledge that Brainstorm, while being modeled off for ancestral and being ostensibly depowered to a significant degree is also still broken 
right? Still broken. Yeah. yeah. That shows you how good Ancestral is. <laughs> precisely. Precisely. <laughs> ponder, ponder and brainstorm are restricted. That's right. And then we get to ponder, right, which is a depowered brainstorm in, for most part, there's arguments in a, against what I just said, but situationally worse more often than brainstorm. Let's put it that way in context. The, and that one is not allowed more than one in vintage. And you can make a case that preordain, which is currently unrestricted in vintage, might still be on the high side of the line, even though it's currently still allowed. And there's obviously many flavors that trickle down to other formats like Serum Visions and Modern, for example. So it's really a fantastic lineage. There are several lineages in Magic that Alpha established, and that is a fun one that, as you said, has basically impacted every format of Magic. I love that point, Kevin. I just wanted to point out, though, is a kind of uh, to underscore or highlight to your point, I think Preordain might be one of the most played cards in contemporary vintage, period. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Which just, un, you know... Beyond, if beyond it's the, Force if of it's Will, the yeah. Weak, yeah, if it's the fourth, you know, removed version of this, <laughs> <laughs> that shows you how good how good this card is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, obviously you and I both have a great deal of affection for this card, and uh, like I said, play it at every chance we get, literally and figuratively. Do you have anything else to say about it, or shall we move on? We're good. Oh, sorry, one other thing to say. Mark Poole's art, which is quirky and fun and interesting, and there are a lot, a lot of signed ancestrals out there because Mark Poole is a stalwart <laughs> at Eternal Weekend and Gen Con before it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's a bit enigmatic, and I have to say that I think enigmatic art in Magic is okay. Oh, yeah. Because the the mystery that that sometimes interesting art provokes creates you know it creates its own interest you know i i can't remember where i read this but i think someone said part of the reason that the mona lisa has become such an enduring piece of art is because you, the human brain can't figure out whether you know what exactly her expression is and i think there's you know so yeah ambiguity i think is is sometimes a plus i mean there's obviously some clear there's some elements that are clear about this that he's like summoning his ancestors in some way and that his ancestors are you know mesoamerica mm -hmm. uh whatever but there's what's going on with this guy is not entirely clear <laughs> in the foreground <laughs> well it, you're certainly right there's while the art in alpha runs the gamut there's a, there's a broad range of it there's certainly no lack for the ambiguity and the the meaning that the viewer brings to the art and the card all right let's move on to animate artifact this is 3U for an enchant non-creature artifact. And I'm going to read the alpha text for some of these things just for comedic value. But target artifact is now a creature with both power and toughness equal to its casting cost. Target retains all its original abilities as well. This will destroy artifacts with zero casting cost. <laughs> Steve, there's actually a ton to say about this card, in my opinion. Um, oh, yeah. And... I want to connect to the mechanics. I want to connect to the original alpha text. I want to connect to the art, but I'm going to let you go first. Okay. Well, where should I start? I think I'll start with the art, actually. Okay. So this is, I think, an even better example of the point that you made with Air Elemental, with a like a <laughs> totally nondescript background, Yeah. wouldn't you say? Uh, well, yeah, this is kind of the extreme. There is literally no detail in the background of this card. This character and the subsequent object that is being enchanted are, exist devoid of context, completely devoid. The background is a solid color. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the, so the main thing that this card did 
was it was the critical piece of a the probably the most broken first combo in Magic, <laughs> aside from Channel Fireball, yeah. which is animate artifact, instill energy, and time vault. And it led to Time Vault being restricted in the very first ban and restricted list announcement and then banned shortly thereafter. So this three-card combo, this is the critical part of a three-card combo. Um, now, after Alpha, there were additional ways to animate and or untap Time Vault, um, not counting Twiddle. I mean, you could use like Jandor Saddlebags and um, other ways to animate it. But this this was the original way to do that. And that's chiefly where this card gets its value. Um, there are funny things that people had proposed, like putting this on Aladdin's lamp. <laughs> Last thing, though, I want to point out is that the the enchant non-creature artifact part is 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 quite interesting <laughs> be- because it's not clear. Well, it is clear that you can cast this on a jade statue, but uh, because jade statue is not a not a creature by card type mm-hmm. in Alpha, but it just means that you can't put it on an obsidious golem. Or a clockwork beast, or what's the other artifact creature? A juggernaut. Yeah. And the mechanics of this card have, much like many cards in Alpha, are the progenitor of a long line of effects that have this similar goal of animating an artifact. It is. It was followed up closely by Xenic Poltergeist in Antiquities. Right. Right? Which had a tap ability that effectively did the same thing, which was temporary. However, the most famous example is Karn, Silver Golem. Karn, as a character, had the implicit ability, so to speak, to animate artifacts. And so the original Karn, as a legendary creature, had basically this effect stapled onto an activated ability. One colon, yeah, one colon, target non-creature artifact becomes an artifact creature, etc., etc. It's basically this exact text. More recently, that same character, Karn, in the form of the Planeswalker, the Great Creator, also has this ability, as a this time as a Planeswalker loyalty ability. So this card, Animate Artifact, corrects, di- connects directly to War of the Spark, <laughs> you know, a set from last year. And there's many other things intervening there, like Toymaker and Karn's Touch and a strange sidestep into Tezzeret and Sidri. So it's not only Karn, but it's pretty interesting to note that mechanically this card is still affecting us as recently as 2019. That's a great point. I mean, it's a great point to to point out that so many of these staple effects designed in Alpha have become uh, activate abilities or static abilities that have been printed on cards much later on. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that, I think we'll see that over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to point out one thing that I also plan to point out repeatedly through this set. (laughs) And it's a favorite subject of mine and our friend Brian DeMars, and that is... Like it or not, the alpha text of several cards provides strategic advice, which by today's standards <laughs> is laughable, right? There's just no way that this, such a thing would be printed. I mean, it might be alluded to in reminder text in a certain way, but I want to point to and reiterate the last sentence of this card. This will destroy artifacts with zero casting cost, <laughs> which is intense. Yeah, right. Exactly. Which is if you didn't figure it out, cast this on your opponent's mocks and the mocks will die. So imagine, imagine if, if, if Chalice of the Void said that, right? If you play a spell into Chalice of the Void, it will be countered. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, it's comedic by today's standards, but there's a lot of examples of it in alpha, which I don't begrudge the creators of alpha and the templators of alpha there's lots that they did wrong in this set but the notion of 
what I would call a reminder text is obviously still applicable today. Reminding people of easy to forget rules or rules that are easy to misunderstand at face value. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the the form and the way that we do it today has has dramatically changed and is much more uh, narrowly targeted and sophisticated, I would argue. There's just tons of examples of this in Alpha, and I find them all hilarious. (laughs) What else about animate artifacts, Steve? I think we covered the ground. Yeah. All right, from one animation to another, and there's a, a small cycle of them here, let's talk about Animate Dead. Now, geez, as as alpha texts go, this one's a humdinger. So for 1B, <laughs> this is Enchant Dead Creature, which is, which is good <laughs> enough in and of itself. Any creature in either player's graveyard, note either instead of any, uh, comes into play on your side with minus one to its original power. If this enchantment is removed or... At end of game, target creature is returned to its owner's graveyard. Target creature may be killed as normal. <laughs> There's all kinds of hilarious word choices in there. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, but, Steve, this is just another in minute long line of cards that formed entire sub-themes of magic structurally and mechanically. There's no denying the fact that this plus a couple other cards in Alpha formed the root of what we consider to be reanimation effects in Magic. Oh yeah, it is the root of reanimation effects. Mm-hmm. Without it, you wouldn't have the printings of cards like you know the the you, really you wouldn't have Dredge at all. Yeah, you know as a as a concept. I mean, there is another reanimating card in the in this set, but it's not we'll nearly the same. No, it's not nearly the same. Yeah. I mean, World Gorger Dragon is the first thing I think of when I see Animate Dead. I don't know what you, about you, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, it's strong on my list. Don't get me wrong. World Gorger Dragon, which we can talk about, it was an uh, important vintage application of Animate Dead. It's also just a generally if highly efficient spell. If you've got a lot of removal in your deck, this is the kind of card that you can just, you know, play two spells in a turn and get, you know, play your own threat and then play this to get one of your opponent's cards and really begin a, a strong offensive. So this card has been really interesting for many reasons for a long time. The templating obviously has some comical pieces by today's standards, as so many cards do. I think it's fun to note that the nomenclature in the type line of Enchant Dead Creature lasted all the <laughs> way... It's amazing. It lasted all the way until 4th edition. Wow. Which... I find incredible. Into fourth, uh, into fourth, the, or did they? The fourth ju- edition animate dead says, still says enchant dead creature. Yeah, incredible. It's, it's which is amazing <laughs> to me. It wasn't until the printing in fifth edition where they changed it to just an enchantment. It's also worth noting that this card shares a lot of DNA with many cards, but high on the list is Time Vault. It shares a lot of DNA with cards like Time Vault in that they tried over and over and over again to get the rules of this card and the way it functions correct. It has gone through so many mechanical changes. It's only had 15 printings. (laughs) And I would argue that there have been several structural changes. Structural is not the right word. They had to rewrite rules to make this card work. That's how complicated it was. Like, there are some things that were just confusing. Birds of Paradise, right? I mean, there's some things that are not complex cards. This one, they had to bend over backwards. And I'm not going to go through it right now. It's It's an interesting topic, and read up on it if you'd like, but... Look at the way the wording changes just from like, just from unlimited to revised, and you'll get an idea. I'd also like to point out a couple of hilarious individual word choices in this card. I already mentioned either players, either meaning this doesn't allow for the concept of yeah of multiplayer. 
Um, it comes into play on your side, which, <laughs> which I mean, it's plainly obvious that the word side has no entrenched meaning in, in alpha rules, right? This is entirely yeah. an inter- in, intuitive wording here. And then it says minus one to its original power, which obviously opens up some mm. interpretation and some shenanigans as yeah. pertains to things that change the creature's power, right? And then it says, um, at, if this enchantment is removed or at end of game, which was an important distinction in Alpha and for a while thereafter due to things like anti, right? Because anti existed in Alpha and for many years subsequently. And so it was important to note that taking a creature out of your opponent's graveyard was not intended to be a change in ownership or right. <laughs> possession of the creature card. Right. This is not you owning that card now. You, so you're, this card had to specifically tell you to give it back. And then, at the very end, is some just some nice strategic advice. That creature may be killed as normal, which, again, is strategic advice and also, obviously, clarifying text and also colloquial and entirely intuitive language, because what does killed as normal mean? Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so this card is just a hilarious mishmash of things that were important at the time, things that were not codified at the time and for years hence, and it, it's just... It's fantastic. Reading through all the printings of Ancestral... I'm sorry, Animate Dead will provide you with a hilarious history lesson on magic rules to begin with. God, auras, all that stuff. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, this card is awesome. And we should probably elaborate briefly on the World Gorger Dragon reference because this, in case you don't know, players of EDH and Vintage and other formats will already be aware of this, I think. But this card creates an infinite loop with World Gorger Dragon whereby it comes in, you reanimate a World Gorger Dragon, and Dragon's ability causes this to disappear, thereby putting the dragon into your graveyard and repeat, etc. Thereby allowing you to create infinite mana or infinite activations of Bazaar of Baghdad, which was typical. The That combo was good enough to put uh, Rich Matuzio in the top eight of the first ever vintage champs at Gen Con. Type one, yep. yeah. And he defeated me in the quarterfinals of that top eight with that deck. And part of the reason he did, in addition to the fact that he was a good player with a good deck, was the fact that I didn't understand how the deck functioned very well. I simply was not exposed to it. And so I made a couple of tactical errors in, in our match that cost me the match, I think. The deck was good and continued that- to be good at multiple other junctions throughout Magic's uh, Vintage's history. Yeah. I mean, we've had so many conversations about infinite loops, but that deck was such a strategic weapon because it could just draw the game instantaneously and go to the next game you know Mm -hmm. it just had so many different yeah options for the player um it's clear that the anime dead effect has been enduring and evolved in in very interesting ways i did want to bring attention though to the art as well the background is kind of this like blood red nondescript void that as you described it but the the, but the foreground, I mean, it's kind of amazing. It's an amazing image oh, yeah. of the sorcerer ripping, you know, skeletons out of the ground, out of a, a, a jet black, almost like a obsidian, obsidious ground, you yeah. know? Yeah, and this, I mean, images like it, the images will be aping this kind of subject for years and years to come. And this is the, the titular one, really. Anson Maddox. Well, let's move on to the third in our trio of Animate Something cards. This one is hilarious. Animate Wall. For a single white mana, you get Enchant Wall. Target Wall can now attack. Target Wall's power and toughness are unchanged, even if its power is zero. (laughs) 
<laughs> so so many of the themes we've been discussing are present in this card the the hilarious language the art is it's just hilarious <laughs> and the yeah. uh, and uh, the little bit of strategic advice tacked on at the end is present i mean this card has a little bit of everything in the context of what we're talking about and and in addition to all that it's the progenitor for a whole bunch of things that that animate walls right yeah no i think one of the things that that's notable is that in the design of the set walls i mean relative to today walls played a very large role oh yeah they were there are a lot of walls in this set and strategically overcoming walls interacting with walls is is actually like very important it shows up over and over again because the walls are so fierce in being able to defend that they're in some ways hard to overcome but they suffer from a fatal flaw which is why they aren't printed as widely today right kevin yeah, and this is this is the answer. Now, what's weird? I should have mentioned this is the the previous two animates that we discussed are both uncommon, and oh, yeah. you point. alluded to this earlier. But rare was played a very important set of roles in Alpha because for the most part, number one, they tried to disguise what was rare and what wasn't, um, not very well always. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this this is rare. Animate Wall is rare, which is totally bizarre. I mean, by by today's balance standards, it's totally bizarre. There have been effects since then that had this effect on walls, but as you observed, it was never as important after Alpha. Alpha was the you know the highest wall contingent of any set ever, <laughs> <laughs> and there are some rules implications here as well that were changed over time too. Yeah, I I, I don't want to say that Alpha is the high watermark for walls, <laughs> but it's it's darn close. Uh, um. You know, I, I I can think of illusionary wall out of Ice Age as being kind of huge and fierce. Yeah. Well, I was just talking about a quantity. Alpha, there's 10 walls in Alpha, which is yeah. ridiculous by today's standards. There would never be a set with 10 walls. We're, the, you know, the over-under on well, a modern set is zero. <laughs> and if you wanted to build a wall deck, number one, the walls are dis- dispersed into five different colors. Number right. two, the white walls, I mean, Wall of Swords might be the best wall. But it's certainly not the strongest on either offense or defense. So uh, putting the animate wall effect in white is is a very curious decision. It really is. And it's very strange. Uh, The only set that competes really with alpha in terms of walls is Legends. Legends actually has 11 walls. Oh, wow. (laughs) And we're going to talk, well, I don't know how much we're going to touch on this in this review, Steve, but you and I have talked offline a bit, and it's very true that Legends in a lot of ways, recapitulates Alpha. It's modeled after Alpha in several ways. And I think the the wall content is one of those ways. But we don't need the to believe that point. obvious parallels. Yeah. Yeah. It's also worth noting that the walls in Alpha continue the elemental themes because just like there is an air elemental, there's a wall of air. Just like there's a fire elemental, there's a wall of fire. Just like there's a water elemental, wall of water. The same isn't yes. stone true for Earth because we get wall of stone, which would be the equivalent. Right. And then, That's a great point. And then the other elements are, the other walls are also elemental in most cases. Uh, green has brambles and ice, which is strange. And wood. And wood, yeah. It's strange that, that green got ice, but we can talk about that later. Black yes. got bone, which is a sort of element of black, so to speak. White got swords, which is not elemental, yes. but still emblematic of white. And then there's a one artifact wall, which is living wall, which is a really cool one yes. and very interesting. Yeah. No. Now and, that now that you've no, it's an excellent point to talk about how they're thematically 
distributed, how they are uh, uh, color distributed. Um, and by thematic, I'm referring to the kind of elemental designation, the mm-hmm. um, the flavor fantasy, fantasy element. Um, but now that you pointed out, I mean, again, animate wall is in white, and the only wall. So so green has three walls, black has one, red has two, blue has two, artifacts have one, and mm-hmm. white has one. So so only white and black have one wall, and yet animate wall is in white. Yeah. It's really bizarre. It really should have been in green, blue, or red. Yes. Conceptually. Now, both blue can pu- blow and red have pumping walls, which would have made yeah. it, you know, um, animated more powerful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now I want to draw an art comparison here because when it comes to animate wall, no, no, I, I take that back. I want to, I want to wait till we get to the walls to talk about the art of the wall. Okay. Sorry. I'm skipping ahead too much. I'm thinking about the walls too much. <laughs> They're fascinating. I do want to talk about, I know I do want to talk about the art on animate wall though, which is pure comedy. It's just, <laughs> it's just this, this tiny, comparatively tiny segment of wall. It's got, what do you think, Steve? That looks like it's probably eight feet wide, that chunk of wall, maybe. If, if, yeah. And it has, it's not, <laughs> it is animated in the sense that it has a tiny a face. rock. It's a, it's a, it's a brick wall. It has a face and then two arms on the side and some little feet at the corners. But they're, the, you know, the arms are just straight down at its side, and the face is just kind of scowling at this woman. Yeah, who appears, who appears to, be to be running very from ap- it. Yeah, she's very afraid of this scowling wall. One can only assume that it is advancing upon her in a way right. that is very, very slowly. Very slowly. <laughs> yeah. Right. And also, it's it's very Greco-Roman. I mean, her garb, yeah. her hair, the the even yes. the even the kind of garlands around the wall itself. Yes. Very strange in the setting in that sense and also worth noting that it has the same artistic choice that we've referred to multiple yes. times already uh, no context this wall appears to be floating <laughs> in space and even worse the woman appears to be standing on a completely different scale or, yeah. or level a line, a line than of, the wall is yeah a line of yeah. sight yeah <laughs> it's really bizarre <laughs> yeah it's amazing it's amazing you can't i mean there is one possible interpretation that she is actually animating the wall but i think you know, it, it does appear that she's she's running from it. It's just unclear. That is a good point. She, I suppose you her emotions are her hands are up in the air, which could be interpreted as spell casting. I'd be asked, interested to ask Dan Frazier about that today. <laughs> Fascinating. That's hilarious. And I just want to add the last statement again. Uh, target walls, power, and toughness are unchanged, even if its power is zero, which <laughs> is. Is a little bit a little bit closer to well, reminder text, I guess, than it is yes. strategic advice. But it's still letting you know that just because a wall has zero power, it still can attack. Yes, it is. It is. But also because the walls mostly have zero power. So uh, that's right. Absolutely. Uh, it's fantastic. Animate wall. It's fantastic. Oh, and it's an enchant wall. I guess I should have said that. Maybe I did earlier, but it's an enchant wall. Um, Steve, I don't know if he's explicitly stated, but. In Alpha, and for several years thereafter, the wall was a creature type that carried with it a special piece of rules baggage that no other creature type did or has since, and that is that walls can't attack or block. That has since been replaced with, you know, walls have defender for a little while, and then that was eliminated. What was that like in Alpha? Can you talk to us about how that was articulated in Alpha that walls couldn't attack or block? I believe that that's in the rules itself. I can double check Mm -hmm. that. Um, but that's my assumption right now is that it's just explicit yeah. in the rules. 
and it continued to be in the rules through revised and fourth edition. I don't remember when it was removed. I'd have to do a little bit of history search, and I'm sorry I didn't do that. But it wasn't for many years after that the notion that walls can't attack was removed. Yeah. And replaced with just all it, the walls have defender. Indeed, it is in alpha. It it says it's in the section on creatures. It says that they are brought into play by summoning spells, creatures that is. But sometimes other spells bring them in, into play into being as well. Walls are considered creatures. The only difference is they cannot attack and are subje- subject to additional spells. Yeah. So there you have it. Oh, fun stuff. Well, we'll talk more about walls later. Anything yes. else about animate walls, Steve? Nope. All right. Let's move on to one Ankh of Mishra. It's a continuous artifact. We'll talk about that in a minute. Two mana. Ankh does two damage to anyone who puts a new land into play. (laughs) (laughs) A new land. (laughs) I know, a new land. What if you replay an old land? Okay, so (laughs) uh, just another in the long line of things that spawned entire subsets of cards right damaging people putting lands into play worth noting that this effect is pretty frowned upon by modern magic design there's not a lot of punishing people to play lands quite the opposite in fact there's a whole mechanics around celebrating play of lands i.e landfall but this card is just so fundamentally damaging as magic is constructed that it still forms the basis of old certain old school decks today right to punish people from a tempo standpoint it's, I mean, it's amazing. If you look at old school deck lists, this card is a staple in ATOG decks. It's just, mm-hmm. it does so much damage. If you can play it on turn one, I mean, this thing, you think Black Vise is good, you know, this thing kind of crushes Black Vise in a sense, because, you know, if you play four lands, that's eight damage. And if you get two of these, if you can play one on turn one and another on turn two, I mean, my God, you're looking at a lot of damage over the course of a few turns. Mm-hmm. I think, I, so there's so much to say about this card. It's clearly one of the fiercest cards in old school. But one of the things that I think is fascinating about it is that it's it's paired with Dingus Egg, in a sense, as these mirrored mm. pairs. But Dingus right. Egg, not Ankh, was the card that was restricted in the first Ben and Restricted List announcement, the first mandatory Ben and Restricted List announcement, which I find to be incre- oh, incredibly curious that they, that they could have thought Dingus Egg was more threatening than Ankh of Mishra. Um, the other thing, I did, two other just notes, and I won't even touch on the art yet. This is the first reference we have to Mishra, which becomes, uh-huh. yeah, very important, um, character or concept in, in, in magic lore. Um, and then, and then secondly, you alluded to this as well, continuous. In Alpha, there are four artifact types, according to the rule book. <laughs> <laughs> There's mono artifacts, poly, continuous, and creature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, obviously those are simplified by revised, but, but mono is basically an artifact that you tap to use. And once it's tapped, it can't be used for that effect. Poly are artifacts that can be used as many times as you need each turn or are not tapped after use. And then continuous are those that basically have a static effect on the environment, you know, that either create a trigger like this does or whatever, and they don't have a cost to use, but the critical point is that if it is tapped, it turns off. So the effect is stopped if you can tap a continuous artifact. Mm-hmm. And we should probably save the meaningful conversation about that until we get one of the cards that has more history associated with it. But let's just preview that by saying it is interesting that this card and several others that are sh- that share this mechanical nature 
were continuous artifacts, which meant when they were printed, tapping them would disable their ability, and that that functionality was not retained when the (laughs) continuous artifact type was removed from the rules. (laughs) So if you look at Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited Ankhs, they are continuous artifacts, and that name carries with it the meaning, the, the rules functionality that tapping this will disable its ability. That means if you play an Icy Manipulator, tap your opponent's Ankh of Mishra, and then play a land, you will not take two damage. <laughs> However, the revised and all subsequent printings of Ankh of Mishra do not have any reference to being either continuous or the tapping impacting their ability. That functionality was simply eliminated right. between unlimited and revised. The simplification of templating lost critical functionality that they decided Mm -hmm. not to retain. Now, there was one exceptional case where they reversed that decision later on, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, very, very meaningful. Okay, and it's worth noting that Ankh, while it doesn't have quite the lineage that, say, Animate Dead does, (laughs) has spawned a number of creatures that mirror this ability. The most noteworthy, I would say, especially in today's context, would be Zozu the Punisher, which is well understood by... EDH players to be a very griefer EDH general because it has this exact text in its text box and is very, very rude to play. Don't, <laughs> don't play Zozu. Don't play Zozu. So if this card <laughs> is play so Ankh unpopular, why, why, if, yeah, why is it so good? <laughs> it's, it's just very effective at damaging your opponents, but don't do it. Resist the urge to play Zozu the Punisher. All right, Steve, let's move on to... Jeez, oh, it's just hit after hit after hit in this set. This is so fun. Armageddon. Yeah. For 3W, sorcery, all lands in play are destroyed. And if you think that text is sparse, the modern template is simply destroy all lands, which is even more sparse. (sighs) Once again, the progenitor for a number of effects, right? Destroy all lands has had many subsequent printings, many of which (laughs) designed to narrow or soften the effect because Armageddon is like Ankh of Mishra, incredibly harsh. And Alpha did not shy away from uh, griefing abilities that were <laughs> no. overreaching in their in their function and their application. Some of the Alpha cards are far too complicated for their good. Some of them are far too simple for their good. And this is kind of one of them. There's a reason why this they stopped printing this card after, well, let's call it 4th edition, I think is the, the most recent printing. I'm going to double check right now. There's a reason they stopped printing this card. Uh, it's only been printed in, in reprint focus sets since fourth edition, I think, like various online sets. And there's a there's a, a, a Amonkhet invocation, and there's a from the vault printing that kind of thing. Yeah. But in terms of putting it in booster products, fifth edition, I'm sorry, sixth edition, sixth edition is, is the, the most end. recent one. Yeah. Yeah. No, sixth it, edition is the end. Everything else of that has been a reprint. So in alpha, you get at least three. I'll say start with really two kind of in white wiping effects with wrath of god mm-hmm. and armageddon one pertaining to lands one one pertaining to creatures and then balance of course is kind of an interesting case that's related to the two both mm-hmm. of these are kind of like religious you know like wrath of god and armageddon obviously armageddon being a particularly kind of religious concept mm-hmm. um what i the the main kind of historical memory or connotation that i have for this card is of course an urnham geddon which yeah. was not really it wasn't a staple of type one play, although it did appear in type one. It was mostly a standard deck that was mm-hmm. really dominant once Chronicles was printed and people could get their hands on Urnham, Urnham Jins. And Urnham mm-hmm. Jin has this drawback that, you know, pe- <laughs> that an opponent's creatures get Forest Walk. Well, if you land an Ur- Urnham and then you play this and your opponent's creatures are smaller, 
it's really hard to recover. And so that that strategy was devastating for a while. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's like that's the biggest association with this card in my mind. You said a couple of things there which I'd like to touch on. One is the connection between Armageddon, Wrath of God and Balance. And it's a mechanical one that speaks to white's color identity. And it's one that like it or not and we can I'm not going to get into how much I dislike it, but it's one that has persisted to this day, and that is white being about equality and the notion that something should affect everyone. And so white gets to destroy all lands, white gets to destroy all creatures. Later on, white gets to destroy other subsets of things. I mean, the card catastrophe from Urza's saga is just Armageddon and Wrath of God basically stapled together. It's just destroy all lands or all creatures. <laughs> and, and then there have been other subsequent effects in white that affect all of something uh, after this. And there have been other attempts to recapitulate Armageddon, most recently in the form of uh, Dominaria's Fall of the Thran, which is a six-mana effect which lets players get some back. That Those two factors, the mana cost and the fact that it gives you some back, are a testament to the fact that Armageddon is overdoing it from a mechanical standpoint and from a power standpoint. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. That white is the color of doing a thing and it affecting everyone in ostensibly the same way. But in practice, that what that means is that the any deck playing these effects is trying to minimize the impact to themselves right. and maximize the impact to their opponents. They're, they're formally your, equal. The Urnum Geddon deck yeah. that you cited is a perfect example. Yeah, it's formal equality in terms of being symmetrical, <laughs> but a tremendous disparate impact to kind of put it that's in right. legal and, terms. And you're right, I probably should be using the word symmetry rather than equality, because that's the whole point. And you can bring this back to a vintage context with cards like Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, who is applied in a white Eldrazi-based list to this exact effect. It is ostensibly a symmetrical effect, but your deck is designed to be minimally impacted by it while it should affect your opponent much more strongly. Yeah. And so it's worth noting that this sub-theme created to us to characterize white in alpha has persisted to this day and they've been struggling i would argue (laughs) but at least grappling is maybe a more generic generous word with how to balance it because in practice historically these effects make players unhappy (laughs) like there's kind of no single one of these effects that isn't known for just making players unhappy and that's kind of all there is to it (laughs) the the fourth other effect that's mass destruction in alpha is nevineral's disc and it is notable that that white gets three of the four it would be hard to put nevineral's disc in in, it needed to be an artifact so it had to be separated off from the color pot right and and that pattern has continued through modern design too and that artifacts get a lot of symmetrical effects as well um there's one other thing i wanted to point out about armageddon which is interesting you mentioned the the religious and biblical implications it's worth noting that this is the first card well you could argue that ancestral recall does it a little bit but this is the first card in our review here that really puts the effect of the card kind of in a context of a world of a society of of the fact that we're casting magical spells and something is happening in our world because of them right yeah so many of them have been just totally devoid of context animate artifact animate wall yeah. animate dead for the most part they're you know voidless backgrounds of, of solid colors this one has a sun 
Yeah. And and a sun that is colored to very strongly suggest that the the environment and perhaps the climate around it have been strongly affected, right? Yeah. This is not a normal sun and there are the implications of ruined buildings and obviously skulls implica- you know, to implicate that people are dead. This is putting strong context to the effect. Yeah, I I, I want to say a word about the effect one one last word before we move on, which is that Land destruction in general played a much more prominent role in early magic. And, mm, and Alpha, yeah. I think, epitomizes that. Now, this is a, obviously an extreme version of that, right? And it's the only land destruction mm-hmm. in white. Otherwise, land destruction is distributed in three other colors. Really, land destruction yeah. in general is distributed in four colors here. Um, if you count Armageddon. Uh, right. Interesting point. And, and balance. And balance, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Aspect of Wolf. 1G, enchant creature, target creature's power and toughness are increased by half the number of forests you have in play, rounded down for power and up for toughness. Steve, I don't really know where to begin on this card. (laughs) Ostensibly, there's a couple of things going on here. One is this is the beginning of a thing that spread to, ultimately it spread to all colors, really. But it was strongly mechanical in green and alpha, and that is counting forests, right? Counting the lands you have of a type. There's another card, obviously, that we're going to get to. Um, actually, there's there's at least two other cards that reference forests in Alpha, isn't there? But this one is just, by today's standards, is a pretty sedate creature enchantment that just is a scaling power and toughness boost. It was it could be pretty powerful in mono green in the Alpha context, but it hasn't really endured throughout the history of Magic to have a strong identity, even though it's been right. reprinted several times. So there's there's a couple of things to say. The first is that green this this card among others establishes green as the color for creature enhancements. You know, like mm-hmm. with giant growth uh, now, especially on offense. Now on defense, white has creature enhancements with castle and righteousness, um, but yeah. but on offense, it's clear. That green gets this kind of like these uh, creature specific enhancements, and green provides it at instant speed, and it provides it is a more permanent and a per- more permanent basis on this. But I have to agree with you. I think number one, it's surprising that it's so weak because it's a rare. This is an alpha rare, Kevin. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> yeah. Whereas giant growth is a common. So yeah. uh, and, and so you think about this: to get the same power that giant growth has, you have to have six forests. Right, and then it's also cost twice as much. So I mean, I I don't understand what is it really too powered at green one just to say equal to the number of forests rounded down, right? Then if you have five forests, it gets plus plus four. Well, uh, the card you're the card you're alluding to there was printed later in Urza's Saga. It's called Blanchwood Armor. It costs one more mana, which maybe it wouldn't by today's standards, but it's exactly what you're talking about. It changes creature gets plus X plus X where X is the number of forests you control. Well, this yeah, this just. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah. this is so. Look, I know there's a lot of like pack behavior, and and you know, the, b- banding is something we're going to spend some time talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it it's also curious that this doesn't. I mean, I guess it would have been weird in alpha to um <laughs> to to give a, a card both banding and uh uh power, but it would have it would have yeah. been nice to have both. <laughs> I I want to call out something about the whole set that maybe you've picked up on it in the first half dozen cards we've reviewed here. We've already reviewed four auras in Alpha. Wow. And we're only however many cards in. I haven't done the math across all of Magic, but I want to give you a comparison. The set Urza's Saga had with it 
a enchantment sub theme, and it's actually occasionally uh, elided by history and by players because Urza Saga happened to have one of the most broken artifact cards in a couple of them, like in the form of your uh, Talarian Academies, right? So a lot of people think about Saga as a artifact set, or at least boosting artifacts. But it actually had an enchantment sub-theme. There are lots of different enchantments in Urza Saga, and lots of it introduced a lot of things like enchantments becoming creatures and things like that. Urza Saga has 27 auras. Wow. It's a big set and it has a lot more in just enchantments than that. But in terms of auras, it has 27 auras out of 350 cards. Make note, wow. 350 cards, which is, which is 40 Huge. more cards than alpha beta. Guess how many auras are in alpha beta, Steve? Oh God. Well, there's a lot of wards and stuff like that. Is it the exact same number? 42. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> in a smaller set by 40 cards, Alpha has 15 more auras wow. than Saga, which was already an enchantment-themed set. Auras are all over this well, I set. Think, I think what that suggests is that, and this is, this. I mean, it looks extremely imbalanced, right? But once you take away the background assumption that players are going to be playing, look, that there's an assumption, I think, today because of the four-card max that, that mm-hmm. you're only going to be playing with like four script sprites at most, right? But that was not the assumption with the design of Alpha. You know, that a sure. deck could have 12 Grizzly Bear, right? Mm-hmm. Or 10 War Mammoth. So I think mm-hmm. creature enhancements maybe make more sense in that context where creature, where the enhancements are uncommon or rare and the creatures are common or uncommon. I think that ratio probably makes a bit more sense. There are multiple rare auras in the set that have some weird effects and your observations about the power increase that aspect of wolf provides are spot on in the sense that there are a couple of auras that we'll get to that are capable of boosting power to high levels they require additional inputs of mana fire breathing is the the titular example right aspect of wolf provides potentially depending on a certain number of forests the greatest static increase to power and toughness out of any aura in the set. As soon as you get to four forests, five forests, six forests, right? It's outpacing every other aura in the set, except for the temporary boosts provided by something like fire breathing. And so this cements what you said, that green is the color of making your creatures more formidable in combat through auras. And that's probably why this was at rare. They probably feared that, scaling effect and feared that it might make green too good Hmm. yeah all right let's move on to geez like i said hit after hit after hit this is only the ninth card we've reviewed we're gonna be at this for a while badlands badlands is a land a rare land and it's one of the original nine (laughs) (laughs) dual lands which is a, a mountain and a swamp uh i'm gonna read the alpha text i won't do this every time counts as both mountains plural and swamp and is affected by spells that affect either. Tap to add either R or B to your mana pool. They had to sneak in a little bit of strategic advice there, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously... Okay, ob- where do you want to begin with well, duels? Well, the dual lands are really one of the most important printings in Magic because they, mm-hmm. they, allow you to, they allow you to build multicolor decks. And part of what Richard Garfield wanted people to avoid was over-specialization. And so we haven't seen it yet, but there are a lot of effects in, in, in alpha that punish you for having narrow strategies. 
And so mm-hmm. dual lands enable you to do that. Now, I think that the flaw in alpha was that they didn't realize that, that there was not enough downside to the, to this effect. I think that they thought that making it count as both a mountain and a swamp or as both lands, when you have a lot of effects like flash fires and so on and so tsunami and so on and so forth was downside mm-hmm. enough, but it really wasn't, which necessitated, in my opinion, the printing of blood moon later on. Um, but, yeah. but this, these are really the foundation of deck building. You know, because they allow you consistency in in other in multicolor decks, and you know obviously there's a long line of dual lands that emanate from this, from the pain lands to the tap lands to the I, I don't know there's like ten ten versions of these kinds of lands. Now we have tri lands that come into play tap, but yeah. um, they're the the grand and obviously of- fetch lands and their interactions here. right yeah. In terms of, I, I want to go ahead. I want to bolster just a moment before you move on. I want to bolster your point about land types being a drawback. <clears throat> there are ostensibly four cards in Alpha that are meant to, to some degree, punish you for having land types. In the case of mountains, there is burrowing, which is an aura that gives a creature mountain walk. There's Goblin King, which gives goblins mountain walk. So there's two ways to punish you for ostensibly having any mountains in play. Then there's also conversion and volcanic eruption, which are bombastic kind of effects that are meant <laughs> to disrupt you for having mountains. And we'll, we'll talk about those effects. But to your point, every land type in Alpha has some number uh, and more than one of things that are meant to punish you for having that land type. So this was in- expected to be a bigger drawback than it really was in practice. And we talked about land destruction, but we didn't specify that that type, which we probably should have, that kind of like color hoser type. Yeah. That's true. There's there's color specific land destruction, which we'll point out as we go. Or neutering, like conversion. <laughs> right. Again, as we said with Armageddon and Ankh of Mishra, Alpha and Beta were not afraid of griefers. They were not afraid of powerful, powerful hosers to strategies and card types and colors and etc. Nor were they afraid of putting in uh, allied and enemy dual lands, which is how we get uh, all nine in Alpha and later. Probably the best one in beta, which is a good good reason it it was too good to put in alpha. We'll 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 come back <laughs> to that later. It is noteworthy, and maybe we should save it for an enemy one. It is noteworthy that there are enemy duels in in alpha. What else to say about duels or badlands in particular, Steve? No, nothing just yet. It's just that it's a very strong color combination. Going back, I mm-hmm. think black and red were incredibly complementary. I would like to point out. <laughs> and this is a little bit of a plug for my Twitter account, but as one who has just completed a fully altered set of unlimited duels, I have awesome. a strong congratulations. By under- the way, <laughs> thank you. I have a strong feeling toward the arts of the various uh, Alpha Beta unlimited duels. Several of them, they're split kind of down the middle, is what I would say. They're split down the middle. Badlands is on the weaker side, in my opinion of cards that the title doesn't evoke anything, in my opinion. A bad land is like, what What does that mean? Bad is, I guess, ostensibly associated with evil and therefore black, but it's pretty weak. And the art doesn't do you any favors. Like, there's no way this is a swamp. This is, if anything, a desert. Dusty, it could be white, right? And it's barely a mountain. There are some, some mountains in the distance, but the area in between is hardly what I would describe as mountainous. This art is not a swamp mountain. No. <laughs> not in any way, basically. And it's really disappointing because part of my goal for my altars project was to, as much as possible, make a winterized version of a thing and have it look cool. 
it's completely impossible with this art and a few others to make this look like number one it's winter because what are you going to do turn this white sand into snow it's going to be the same art and number two it doesn't help you evoke a swamp mountain at all i just had to completely replace the art in this thing for my altar (laughs) so i was severely disappointed it's not the last time i'm going to share that emotion but that's a personal problem. Badlands <laughs> is a great card yeah. that has, it's, I would say, it's the hardest, unfortunately it's the not hardest, evocative art. Yeah, it's the hardest one to winterize. I'd say that. <laughs> All right, so let's move on from Badlands. Let's move on and talk about one Bad Moon. Great, great title. <laughs> 1B, Enchantment. All black creatures in play get plus one, plus one. Another very simple effect, Steve, that is symmetrical across across black and white which we'll talk more about later it sets up a a bit of a theme for black and white in alpha and an effect that while it's been reprinted a few times the most recent one has been in commander several years ago now it's it's just the model for along with crusade the model for creature pumping effects across multiple formats and decks and archetypes throughout the years it's true. Uh, it's a, it's a kind of a staple. It's it's is interesting to me though that the early years of the game had a bunch of weenie decks, and I never felt like Bad Moon or Crusade were really kind of central to the weenie to the weenie formula. Um, I thought I felt like Lords. It's weird. Like in some ways, Lords have had a larger influence to the weenie formula than than these kind of than these enchantments. But that's not necessarily true of old school ninety three yeah. ninety four, and old school ninety three ninety four like Crusade is clearly like very good. Yeah. Um. It, it, it. I also think part of the challenge with respect to this card is that, for whatever reason, I think the white creatures, the white weenies, are got the better end of the deal. <laughs> like between like Benelish Hero and Mesa Pegasus, you know, I think that the the pumping, I think white the white creatures in Alpha benefit and Savannah Lions. Yeah, Savannah course, Lions is a big deal. Benefit more. I mean, Savannah Lines is rare, but yeah, it's a, it is a big deal. Whereas in, in black, what do you have? You have, besides Black Knight, which we're going to yeah. get to soon, you have Will of the Wisp, which by itself isn't even an offensive threat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, and, and I mean, Plague Rats aren't really ideal. You don't need, Plague Rats pump each other. You don't need Batman right. for that. I mean, there really isn't much there. Well, Drudge skeletons. The, the mana cost. Not the really mana cost either. is a big issue, right? Savannah Lions is, I think, probably. You don't need to look much further than Savannah Lions to understand how mana cost influences the efficacy of small creature based decks, right? Because black, except for Will of the Wisp, doesn't have a one mana threat that's worth playing on turn one, right? It has Black Knight, which is arguably better than White Knight due to the card Swords to Plowshares, but other, is otherwise symmetrical. But then beyond that, your two mana creatures need kind of need not apply. Drudge skeletons, Nether shadows, those are not <laughs> aggressive aggro creatures. And no. then you get up to three creatures. Now no. black happens to have the best creature in the set, arguably in Hypnotic Specter. But beyond yes. that, Frozen Shade need not apply. Nettling Imp need not apply. Scave zombies. zombies. I mean, and no. you referred to Lords earlier. Zombie Master doesn't pump zombies. It just gives them a defensive no. ability. Yeah. So unfortunate. So it's no surprise master. that. The just the color balance establishing white as the color of cheaper creatures for uh, for a greater uh, you know offensive capability. Even though there are actually fewer creatures in white, the fact that Mesa Pegasus flies and has a power where Will of the Wisp doesn't. The fact that Penalish Hero is a one one that has a, a somewhat relevant ability, <laughs> and obviously Savannah Lions. 
that's just kind of no surprise. Oh, and never mind the fact that white is the color that got the aforementioned Armageddon, which makes a big difference in the aggressive strategies. Yeah. Sinkhole could not make up for it. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, Bad Moon is, is the bad yeah. pumper. It, it's the worst pumper, I think, of all the pumpers. And 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 similarly, Zombie Lord's the worst lord, but we'll get yeah. to that at the end of the yeah. set. Well, but there's no surprise that Bad Moon is it's iconic in the sense that it established the fact that you could have this kind of effect. And even though white ended up getting more of them over time, right? Cause they white got one in ice age, for example, where black didn't. And so white became more the color of team pumping than black did right over time. Yeah. But this was just part of the mirror image interpretation of black and white that was prevalent throughout alpha. You, you know, when bad moon, I think actually did become playable is with fallen empires. Because Fallen Empires gave you both the the um, the order mm-hmm. of the Ebon Hand, but then it also gave you him oh, to yeah. Torah. which was a big win so for Black. So it made Black dis... Yeah. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. In the Alpha context, though, it's kind of just all about being a mirror image of White. Interestingly, Bad Moon has been reprinted a, a couple of times. It looks like... How many? Technically 13 times. Only ever with two different arts. Yeah. Well, it's good because the original it art really is awesome. Is. It's very cool. Yeah, it's just so evocative. It looks fantastic in Alpha and Beta. All right, now on to a personal favorite of mine, and I know many players like me. I knew you were going to be oh, looking yeah. forward to this one. I Kevin. love this card. This card is Balance. And uh, what does it do? It does a little bit of everything, right? 1W, Sorcery. <laughs> Again, Alpha Text. Whichever player has more lands in play must discard enough lands. Notes where they're on the, word, the, the use of the word discard of his or her choice to equalize the number of lands both players have in play. Cards in hand and creatures in play must be equalized the same way. Creatures lost in this manner may not be regenerated. Uh, Article of note, where the use of the word discard. (laughs) Discard. Uh, Steve, you and I know well, and some players may not, that the word discard was used interchangeably between hand and play in alpha, which is obviously remedied later due to ambiguity and confusion. But well, in this context, you have to read into the card that it's talking about lands in play, and therefore the, the reference to discard also is from play. Yes. I, I, I want to give you plenty of room and space to talk about this card, but let me just comment on this particular thing. So in the Alpha rulebook, regeneration triggers when a creature ah. dies, when it actually is headed to the graveyard. So uh, discarding a, a card in play, right? It, can a card regenerate? Well, I think... <laughs> anyway, it's it's a weird oddity. There are lots of ambiguities and alpha templating about that but it also needs to clarify that it can't be rejected yeah, for that that's reason. a good point i'm glad you called it out so balance is we've already mentioned it in terms of the symmetry aspect it is under costed for its effect and i think obviously that was a, a severe mistake and subsequent attempts to recreate this effect have cost much more mana and usually four or more and in some cases much more in the case of suspend right the notion that this symmetry will be fair, so to speak, is fundamentally flawed, which we know. This card is restricted in vintage, it's banned in legacy, it's banned in commander, it's banned in everything. You can only play it in vintage, basically, and probably Canadian Highlander, but I haven't checked. The The simple truth is, is that before I was playing Magic competitively, although I was technically playing, there was a 4x uh, balance deck, the Masonette Rack balance deck, which was just a scourge. Yep. Like, I, I can't believe that it was ever allowed. <laughs> but I mean, that was remedied somewhat quickly, I guess. Like, you, you can tell me the timing. 
But the simple truth is, is that because of, especially because of Moxon and Black Lotus by extension and Soul Ring and other things, because of Artifact Mana, this card is fundamentally a problem. And it's fundamentally a problem in a number yes. of ways, one of which is just from a resource denial standpoint, you can play a deck without creatures that's planning to win another way, and you are inherently advantaged over any deck that's trying to win with creatures, because this deck is always just Wrath of God for your opponent and not for you. That's one thing. The other is the resource denial in terms of mana, meaning if you have the advantage, especially if just on the play, if you're going first, if you can go Mox Mox Balance, you're not losing any resources yeah, and opponent. and that brings me to the third one, which is just the fact that if just by the act of playing mana and then playing this card, you are inherently have fewer cards than your opponent does in hand and inherently getting advantage out of it, which can then be taken to the extreme with cards like Bazaar of Baghdad. It's not unheard of for that original rack balance deck to play Bazaar of Baghdad on turn one, activate it thereby just losing two cards out of your hand by by nature, and then going mox, 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 uh, play the rack, balance to zero, right? That was a line that was not yep. out of the question on a repeated basis for that deck, and it was just all due to the, the, the structural elements of the game at that time. Now, Bizarre Baghdad and Rack weren't present in Alpha, but the, the fact remains that this card was improperly costed and fundamentally flawed in its design, and then every opportunity... <laughs> to abuse that fact throughout magic history has been taken and broken and therefore you only get to play one in vintage now i love this kind of effect i have said on record on this show a few times that i wouldn't be unhappy if this card were unrestricted in vintage but i recognize that that's probably not right and it's definitely far down the list of safe things to try uh but my position on that has softened quite a bit too is is of course the last few years just because Vintage is increasingly a Planeswalker format, which exacerbates the problems with this card strongly. Yes. And Vintage is increasingly a creature format, and we don't want to get into a format where you go uh, play two Planeswalkers and then balance away and my opponent's only answers for them in the form of creatures. It's just, that's not a play pattern I want to invite ever again. So I think that's a roundabout way of saying the introduction of Planeswalkers, their increasing power creep... And the fact that they're so prominent in Vintage means balance needs to stay restricted probably indefinitely until something major structural changes in the Vintage format. That said, I love this card and I've played it every chance I I can get. Kevin, I want you to talk about more about what it feels like to play it, how you set it up, a little bit more strategically what your favorite memories are with it. (laughs) But before that, let me just respond respond to uh, sharpen your observation, which is that you know, this thing is not is is not symmetrical. It's symmetrical with respect to lands, creatures, and hands in play, cards in hand rather. But it's not symmetrical with respect to enchantments and artifacts. Oh, yeah, good point. And artifacts, of course, being the most important. But that that gap is they've created new cards, and you've identified Planeswalker creates another mm. asymmetry. And so the Masonette Ra- Balance Rack deck was designed to deploy as many quick, efficient artifacts as possible, like. The rack, like uh, Library of Lang, <laughs> which could be used with with balance to put the most important cards you want to keep on top of your deck. Um, also, you could empty your hand quickly with Bazaar of Baghdad, um, or you could manipulate the top of your library and refill with the Sylvan Library. So balance was just brutal in in that general strategy, and and not only was Adam Mayasenet able to dominate Type One, causing it to be restricted in early '95, but he also ported it to Type Two, which it was simultaneously restricted in. Last point about that is um, Sean O'Brien has a kind of famous Usenet quote where he said, 
balance is Wrath of God, Mind Twist, and Armageddon in mm-hmm. one card <laughs> when used well. Uh, just kind of underscoring how powerful it is. But but go back and, and try and answer the question I, I just asked Kevin. What are some of your favorite memories well, with it, and you know, how do you how do you view it strategically and tactically? I have a strong affinity for <clears throat> creatureless decks. I mentioned it in our earlier in this episode when I talked about my affinity for the old blue-white control decks that were very light on threats and heavy on answers. I have affinity for those decks, and it manifests mostly in my vintage experience throughout the my time playing smokestack decks, workshop decks. My favorite application of balance among many applications of balance in my time with Magic was in the five color stacks decks in the in the two, early two thousands. The yes, where <laughs> yes, it, it <laughs> the use and function of balance in those decks was exactly what Sean O'Brien was alluding to. It did every single one of those things. Those decks, uh, I I was the sort of player who would wasteland myself <laughs> in order to Armageddon my opponent, right? Because if I've got two Moxen and two land and I'm about to resolve balance, it doesn't make sense for me to wasteland you. I'm going to leave you with one land in that equation. It makes sense for me to wasteland me and then balance us both down to zero lands. I did that a bunch of times. The fact, so that deck, Part of the way it was designed was to maximize, and I mean maximize, balance. It had very few creatures. The, the version that I won Syracuse with had four creatures in it, in total. It was light on lands. You don't have, yeah. Welders. No, no there were no welders trike. in that list, remember? It was two gorilla shamans, oh, yeah. a Karn, and a trike. Yeah, in that list. <laughs> I, obviously, I played many welder lists before that, but that's here, neither here nor there. It maximized artifact mana, to your point. Artifacts are part of the things that run symmetrical. Obviously, a stack stack is built on other artifacts, fundamentally, so there's that element is already in play. But the point is, every part of this card was intended to be maximized in those kind of workshop-based prison decks. And I just... There are so many games that basically ended with the resolution of a balance. And and the, the whole game was kind of... Stru- Wipe your yeah, opponent's the hand. whole game was kind of structured to that point. It's like you picked the spot where... Right, you, 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 you maximize the... Sorry, you constricted your opponent so that like they tap out in this one moment. You've got mm-hmm. them under sphere, balance. Yeah. They're out of. Yeah, it. exactly. So. You you tactically constrict their resources in a kind of a daisy chain of effects, right? You start with their mana through a sphere or a tangle wire. You start with their per- then you start working on their permanence with a smokestack, so they have to commit extra resources to cast, <laughs> and then you get to this critical point. And that five color stacks deck had multiple tutors. Had um demonic tutor and demonic consultation even and i would consult for balance sure and because it was just so detrimental so backbreaking in a deck like that and never mind crucible of worlds right so i could i could armageddon us in practice and i would always be able to rebuild faster because of crucible so i i just love me a balance there's many applications throughout history blue white control decks using this as kind of a catch-up mechanic to buy back tempo and board position Empty-handed control decks to yes. just decimate your opponents in in multiple iterations, yeah. and it's just so unfair that it's just incredibly satisfying <laughs> to resolve. Well, it's so yeah. efficient. It's it's puzzling why it was costed this little right. light. It's hard to make <laughs> exactly. sense of that. Uh, my my favorite. Uh, thank you for elaborating on that. It was I think wonderful to hear and entertaining. Hopefully for our listeners, probably my more f- my favorite more recent use of balance is in Jeskai JVP. Oh, yeah, that was a great decks, application of that where of the it, card, sure. Yeah, because JVP, again, flipping to Planeswalker is another mm-hmm. asymmetry. I mean, Kevin, I, I played that deck for like maybe a year and a half almost straight, and one of the things, or continuously in terms of my vintage engagement, and one of the, like, probably at least 
at least a third of the time, maybe half of the time, the opponent will counter the first balance. <laughs> Counterbalance, yeah. right? And then I'm like, okay, flash yeah. it back. Boom. Yeah, the card, you know, the card Jason's scratch. Prodigy it, plays into balance so incredibly well. So perfectly, because, and just to elaborate why, for those of you who haven't played with JVP lately, because you, you both have empty hand, empty board, no creatures, no hand. JVP is going to tick up quickly and allow you to flash back a cantrip and then pull ahead of your opponent faster than and, they can Yeah, recover. and if they happen to so, draw a, a, a low-cost, otherwise threat, right, and a thing that would be threatening JVP, JVP's built-in resilience to low-cost threats just plays synergy with that completely. Yes. So I've, I've flashback balance that my opponent has just countered countless times <laughs> it's amazing oh, and fun it's fantastic i'm a little bit jealous of the fact that you designed that deck and i chose not to play it i really in hindsight i wish i had done some more i hope that 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 basic <laughs> construction is viable in vintage again sometime yeah Com- comes back. planeswalkers are a big problem for balance <laughs> though like we talked about how they planeswalkers break yeah. the symmetry and any new card type will there's not been many other new card types but the the unfortunate fact of the matter is is that if you're playing on ostensibly a balanced centric deck then you have to have answers for your opponent's planeswalkers and as they become more and more structural to the format balance becomes a little bit weaker the point at which you were playing that deck that was before renin six for As example that was before narset yeah yeah yes yeah before oko yep yeah i mean it, it, balance is also great with DAC because you can you you know you can recover very you can you want the mm-hmm. board to be wiped you've got DAC you draw your first card then you're gonna get the best of your top three but it's not it's not the same thing as being able to kind of like protect the balance right. from resolving what JVP does and then get you back in the game faster yeah. than your opponent. Well, Steve, I love me a balance, but I think we should move on. Yeah, I wanted to dedicate a little bit more time to that card than the others because it has <laughs> particular uh, affinity <laughs> it's for you. Pretty special. So thank you for sharing. <clears throat> This this next card, Basalt Monolith, is actually an important card in ways that are kind mm. of counterintuitive. But let's just let's just so it's a mono artifact. I'll introduce okay. this one, Kevin. A mono artifact. The text it costs three mana. The text is tap to add three colorless to your mana mana to your mana pool. Does not untap as normal during untap step, <laughs> comma, but can be untapped anytime for three mana, period. Tapping this artifact can be played as an interrupt. Uh, so I have a lot to say about uh-huh. the text, but let me just begin by saying how the a lot to say about the text. <laughs> but let me just begin by saying strategically how this card has been used and is interesting. In contemporary old school, which is a weird thing to say, but I've said it several times already, the main use is in the power monolith combo. So you put power artifact on this, you get infinite mana. Pretty good, pretty good deal for two cards, right, Kevin? <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and it's it's also incredibly brutal because. There's, you know, as you, in old school, you have an, enough tutors with like this Sylvan and Demonic and Transmute artifact. But then once you add Ice Age, you get Demonic Consultation, which makes this, which makes this combo just incredibly mm-hmm. fearsome because all the combo pieces are four ofs. So consult is, <laughs> find the missing piece and go off. Um, pretty fierce. And I've seen a lot of people play like Matesh Rao played it in a local event. It was pretty brutal. Um, it's, I, as I also recall, it's a little bit more vague for me, Kevin. I think its initial combo was with Relic Bind, if oh, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, absolutely. With... Yes. That was, I, it, so people might not know this, but actually they errated Relic Bind to prevent people from being able to do that. It got power level errata in 1994. I did not remember that. 
because the original text of the Legends version of Relic Bind says, what, Enchant Artifact, when target artifact is tapped, the controller of Relic Bind can choose to do one damage to any player or give one life to any player. Oh, I see. I didn't realize. So the original version, you could just cast it on your own Basalt Monolith, couldn't you? Yes. So in um, in Aaron Forsyth's famous article, uh, Power Level Arata <laughs> Be Gone, in which he cited Rich Shea in my letter, in the letter that I wrote to uh, Wizards with Rich Shea, where we asked for power level to be errata to be removed, it was, the result was Aaron Forsyth's announcement of a policy change in 2006. And in the first article, he talks about Basalt Monolith. So actually, it wasn't Relic Bind that received errata. It was Basalt Monolith. It said here, this is what Aaron Forsyth says about Basalt Monolith. This card had textbook power level errata previously. It basically said you can't use Basalt Monolith to untap itself. Basically, it was used to prevent the combo with Relic Bind, and it was removed. Um, and that, by the way, allowed Power Artifact combo to work with it. So, And it also stopped the Power and Artifact combo. It's worth um, noting that that so limitation on Basalt Monolith was never on a printed version of the card, which is especially unusual for a card that's been reprinted several times. Oh, wow. Well, that wasn't on the 4th edition version of it? Was there a 4th uh, edition? I assume there, there was no fourth edition. It was printed in Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, and Revised. Then a couple of foreign language printings, and then the next printing in paper was actually in Commander <laughs> many years later, Commander thirteen. Yeah. Oh my god. So there's a great. big gap between that's printed great. versions of Basalt Monolith, and none of them actually featured that that errata. Probably for yeah. that reason. Yeah, that's part of it too. Yeah, they didn't want to print um, a card that had weird errata on it. Anything else you want to say about before I talk about that tech, that critical? I text just want to point middle? out one small thing, and that is in the modern context, Basalt Monolith is almost exclusively played in Commander, where it is a decent mana rock, but it's also part of multiple infinite mana combos. It combos with Rings of Bright Hearth to duplicate its untappability, thereby creating infinite mana. It also combos with the recently released Companion, which we've talked about recently, which is Zerda. And so those two applications, oh, yeah. among several yeah. others. <laughs> How could I, I forget Zerda? That so was... <laughs> there's multiple two-card infinite uh, uh, colorless mana combos in Commander, which is why it's, it's I wouldn't call it a staple necessarily, but it's played in multiple decks. How many times has it been reprinted in Commander sets? The last several printings, I think, let's see. Uh, it, so it's first reprint after, well, after revised, basically. Revised? in paper, because it was put, it was published online a couple of times, was in Commander 13, and then it was printed... 2013. That was the first it Commander It was, and then set, it was right? printed, printed in Commander 15, yeah. and then subsequently in CMA, and then th- that's... Um, I don't know what that is. Commander Anthologies, which is just a, another Commander reprint okay. set, and the second Commander Anthologies, and then most recently, just in the past couple of months, reprinted in Double Masters. So it's been... So it's been reprinted in paper more times than it was originally printed by this book. That's right. That's fascinating. That's right, yeah. Been, yeah. So the, the new art, the, the paper copies of the new art far outstrip the original copies of the card at this point, especially given Double Masters. Yeah. Interesting. I don't even think I, I know what the new art is. But um, so so clearly this card is, is a kind of combo staple of old school. It anchors a very important combo deck. It also has you know, lots of... It's at the intersection of a lot of weird errata stuff. Yeah. So, so before I talk about the errata point, which is very important, which we already did, but in relation to Time Vault and Mana Vault, I wanted to just point out this is the first instance of the card of the the beta retemplating that we talked about Ah, at the top, Kevin. So, so this this the beta version of this I own both is much darker than the alpha. 
And um, the reason, the only change, if I'm not mistaken, really the only change between Alpha and Beta is they added a mana circle around the second instance of three in but, the text. But not the, text the first, file. which is completely perplexing. But not the first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is so bizarre. Uh, yeah, and so it, it is one of those examples of where, it, depending on whether you like the dark art, the beta one is really nice and dark. I have three alphas and one beta, and they're all gorgeous. Yeah, unfortunately, um, this card, like so many, even though it's not a powerhouse and it's been reprinted a zillion times. The alphas and the betas are just incredibly expensive now by today's standards. Like, obviously, almost every alpha card is expensive, but this one has has rocketed up beyond the scale of the animate walls of the world because it's played in. <laughs> well, this is this is only an uncommon animate wall. Should be more expensive. Yeah, I know. It's a rare. <laughs> it probably is actually, but point taken. So this to me is what I'm. What I'm about to say is why this card mm-hmm. is so important. I engaged in a five-year battle <laughs> with Wizards rules managers over, it felt like five years, I don't know if it was actually five years, over Time Vault. It, it went on for at least three or four years. And this card was a very important piece of evidence mm-hmm. in that battle. So I want to, because we're at, at Basalt Monolith, I'll mention it now. So Time Vault's, Time Vault's text, in the critical text, is Time Vault doesn't, <laughs> doesn't, it's mm-hmm. contraction, untap normally during untap step. Sorry, untap phase. Uh, semicolon, to untap it, you must skip a turn. So to untap it, comma, so, you must Steve, skip a turn. A question, so the first, which version of the card's text are you referring to there? Because that's not the alpha one. I'm looking, sorry, I'm reading the alpha time vault. Oh, I'm sorry, you're reading time text. vault. I'm sorry, I thought you were reading monolith for some yes. reason. Go ahead. No, 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 I, I'm ahead. reading time vault just to draw a comparison. So the so if you look at those that template, it's very close the, the, so, Time Vault says Time Vault doesn't untap normally during untapped phase. Basalt Monolith, Alpha Basalt Monolith, and I guess Beta has the mm-hmm. same text again, says does not untap as normal. So the two, just right there, there's two differences. The first is Basalt Monolith just says has no subject. It just says does mm-hmm. not untap. It's implicit that it's referring to itself, whereas Time Vault refers explicitly to itself. The second is that Time Vault has a contraction. It says doesn't, whereas Basalt Monolith says does not. But they both say as normal during untapped right. phase. Okay? Now, um, this is where things get different. After that, there's a semicolon on Time Vault, whereas there's just a comma on Basalt Monolith. So in Basalt Monolith, there's a comma that says, but can can be untapped at any time for three mana. Right. right? <laughs> Whereas whereas Time Vault says semicolon to untap Time Vault, comma you must skip a turn. <laughs> so so <laughs> so the question is: there's a syntactical ambiguity in Time Vault. You can read the text after the semicolon to mean that it stands alone, and that in order to untap Time Vault. Through any means whatsoever, you must skip a turn. Or you can read the text that follows the semicolon as connected to the text that precedes the semicolon, which means that it's referring to what occurs during the untap step, the mm-hmm. untap phase. And so if you read it in the latter version, then the natural reading of the text is that you can play cards like Twiddle on it to untap it. Or you can interpret it as meaning that... Um, 
that that is an independent clause that applies generally and is not connected to the untap phase, which means that you can't untap it with time vault without also with twiddle without skipping a turn. So basalt mom so is, is on a short list is, of cards that are formative evidence in favor of the modern interpretation of time vault. Exactly, yeah. because it has nearly identical text, and that was the that was the main piece of evidence that I kept trying to beat over the head of Mark Gottlieb who was the rules manager, saying, how can you have one interpretation for Time Vault when Basalt Monolith has the exact opposite? Now, obviously, there's no semicolon, yeah. but the text is similar enough in that it says, does not untap yeah. as normal. So what, is, what, is that, <laughs> what, what <laughs> does that mean, right? To do it, you must do... Well, anyway. and, and if you want to hear a lot on this subject, go back and listen to episode one of this show, <laughs> because this, is, this subject is arguably a catalyst for us beginning this whole podcast, which we're now on the 100th episode of. And we drained that issue pretty thoroughly on that show, and we've talked about it, obviously, a number of times since. But there's a lot of implications vis-a-vis the notions of intent, right, versus printed text. Right, yeah. design intent versus Which text. we don't need to rehash right here, but... I- this is this no. example is very important to that subject, and, and it'll also allow us not to get to dive into it when we get to these, the other card. But I I want to also just to round out the conversation here, read that that critical piece of text on Mana Vault. Mm-hmm. This so so Mana Vault says tap to add three colorless mana to your mana pool. This is the Alpha Mana Vault. The second sentence says Mana Vault doesn't untap normally during untap phase. So it's actually identical to in time that vault. sense to yeah. to Time Vault. In that it both refers to itself and contracts, uh, contracts does mm-hmm. not, and then it has a comma. Sorry, then it has a semicolon, just like Time Vault. To untap it, you must pay four mana. So, this is the critical question: Mana Vault, right? Mana Vault. How does Mana Vault work at the time? Can you untap it at any time for four mana, or do you have to do it during the mm-hmm. untap phase? Depending on your answer to that. What follows the semicolon is is connected or either independent of the clause that precedes it, the semicolon. So again, more textual analysis fodder for the various time vault debates that occurred in the mid-2000s. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. I bet a lot to... of commander players out there did not appreciate the fact that time vault today functions the way it does, strongly <laughs> in part due to the way that the alpha printing of Basalt Monolith and Mana Vaults uh, were printed. printed. It's a it's yes. an arcane and, topic and the way at best. <laughs> it is, and the way I finally won that war though was by asking Richard Garfield himself what was the design ah. intent. But how did he respond to you out of curiosity? I mean, and I don't mean what did he say. What I mean is like, did he respond yeah. favorably? Did he respond? Oh. oh yeah, it was like to him it was obvious. Okay. It was like, oh yeah, we used, we used to do that yeah. all the time. Was his response. <laughs> well, there you go. No stronger <laughs> yeah. statement of intent than that, I think. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for for bearing with me through a little bit of legal textualism <laughs> there, but that was uh, some interesting memories for me related to. Well, it just Monolith. goes to show that each one of these cards has its own unique history, its own unique place, and even the ones with strong parallels to other cards in the set have separate meanings. And I want to carry that theme forward to the next card, which is Bayou. Now. Obviously, much of what we said about Badlands applies here. There's not too much new to be said about a given dual land in the dual land cycle. But I said it at the time with Badlands that I wanted to make a special note about the enemy color duels. And it's noteworthy, in my opinion, for a number of reasons that the enemy color duels even exist in Alpha. Because there are no gold cards in Alpha. 
Full stop, right? Gold cards weren't introduced into Magic until Legends. So multiple sets until we get gold cards. There are, however, strong themes about enemy colors. There are multiple enemy color hosers. The aforementioned conversion, and we've got flash fires and a few others. So the notion that certain colors were naturally opposed to others, like black and white strongly, is built into alpha. The notion that enemy colors, so to speak, would partner in any in any way or for any reason is limited entirely to the f- four turn five enemy color duels in alpha. These are, in practice, the only reference to colors on the enemy parts of the spectrum partnering together. While I don't think there is any other note than that, it's an interesting point, I guess, is simply that Bayou and its peers in Alpha and subsequently Beta represent the only partnership across enemy colors for the entire set. And I think it's very strange, aside from the fact that it's symmetrical across 10 duels, that these cards were even included. I think you can make a very strong case in the development of Alpha that Bayou has no place. There is no otherwise no reason to reward playing green and black together <laughs> well, in Alpha. I, it's hard to spe- I don't want to speculate, but I'm going to. I, I think <laughs> one of the things is because you know in the color distribution of the packs, the random distribution, you can't really you don't really know what p- people are going to get, and you you want people who have are deep in, in t- any two colors to be able to have the mana to support the development of those colors, as opposed to pushing them into one or the other. It also ma- just maximizes the color expressivity potential right mm-hmm. so um from a for kind of like a design perspective it is weird but from a logistics perspective i think it makes more sense well there's something to what you've said and i would acknowledge that at the same time i think your position would carry a lot more weight if we were talking about a common like evolving wild or something which was meant to help the limited format so to speak mm-hmm. but you're talking about a rare right True. <laughs> and a rare, which we know from extension by other cards, was purposefully intended to uh, tamp down certain effects. There's a reason why Ancestral Recall is the rare of the boon cycle. It's because it was intended to not show up as much. And so your point about adding uh, an element of balance and an element of mana fixing sort of to the format as a whole, I think, loses a little bit of strength That's when you consider point. the rarity. I don't know. <laughs> but either way, I'm with you. I, I, would, ha- I would be remiss to speculate i think about what the design process for the the cards were i mean there's the simple truth is that there's no other way to get a 10 card cycle into alpha without reaching into mechanics that aren't introduced until later in magic right and so mana pairs is the only way to do it really and so maybe they'd simply thought that it was natural and there was kind of no other approach i really don't know either way i'm grateful for it and i'm there grateful that they noticed their error in alpha though, and added the 10th one like fungus or and pestilence <laughs> Maybe they foresaw that. I'm serious. Maybe no, they foresaw you're, you're not wrong. There, there are certain synergistic overlaps. I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. There's There are reasons to play certain colors together, and there's a reason why those enemy color kind of combinations exist in old it's old school and Alpha Card 40, sure. And so to that, from that standpoint, it stands to reason that if Richard Garfield was into emergent gameplay, that supporting that with a little bit of a cycle makes sense. Either way, everything we said about Badlands ostensibly applies to Bayou, except for the art. I consider the art to Bayou to be one of the stronger of the ten. It's actually evocative of the two different land types that it refer- re- reference. It is both a swamp and a forest. Yeah. 
Although it's arguable that a bayou is far more tilted towards swamp than it is forest, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, let's move on to one banalish hero. A single white mana for summon hero, which is funny in historic context. It is a 1-1 with a single word in its text box, <laughs> which is bands, which obviously in the modern setting is replaced with banding, which is hilarious. So not only was the mechanic called banding in alpha, but the cards that refer to it are, don't always refer to it by that name, which I find also Jeez. hilarious. And we talked about a few elements of where this card fits in the big picture, vis-a-vis it being a 1-1 for 1 that is common, which black does not have, in contrast to white. Right. And But we haven't talked about the banding ability, so I figure we should carve yeah, out some space to talk about that card. here. Um, I have mm-hmm. to say, banding is, is one of those mechanics that I think has caused no end of headaches. You know, there are a handful, <laughs> there are a handful of them. This is probably one of the big bigger ones, right? Which yeah. is the reason it no longer exists in Magic as yeah. such. Um, in the alpha rules, banding has a very has basically a two-paragraph description in the alpha rulebook. It just says that a creature with the ability bands has two special powers. A banding creature, well, first, a banding creature may join forces with another attacking creature. The resulting band must be blocked or let through as a unit. If any creature in the band is blocked, the entire band is blocked. There, there can be more than two creatures in an attacking band Although all, though all but one must have the band's ability. Second, and I'm adding second to this, but second, anytime <laughs> a group of your creatures blocks or is blocked and one or more have the ability bands, then the damage they receive from your rival's creatures is not distributed among them by your rival as usual, but by you. You may choose to assign more damage to a creature than it can survive. So basically, banding is a combat ability. And banding, you ha- in order for banding to work, you need to have, ideally, if you, for more than two creatures, you need to have more than, for three creatures, you need to have two creatures with banding or bands. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically a way to redistribute damage in a way that is advantageous to you, right? So yeah. this little hero in banding decks sucks up a lot of damage. <laughs> it's going to suck up most of the damage. Kevin, I think it's worth saying, remember, we had a little fun experiment where you put together a banding deck. You want to relay? <laughs> You're talking about the Alpha Card 40 experiment, yeah. which was my basically introduction and only exposure to the format, really. And that's when you were early in your exploration of the format, and we play tested some theoretical decks at Eternal Weekend a couple of years back. And one of the theoretical decks that we created was a deck that was, I don't remember the exact ratio, Steve, was it 1822? Was it like yes. 18 planes and 22 banalish heroes? <laughs> yep, and the idea was. was simply that you just attacked with in a, a band of creatures that increased by one every turn, effectively. So you attacked with a 1-1 on turn 2 and a 2-2 on turn 3, etc. And anytime your opponent blocked, due to the nature of the scaling of combining one every turn, you're it was hard to, if not impossible, have a creature that was bigger than the band at yes. any point in the game because of the, the natural scaling of alpha. And as such, even if you managed to muster up a creature that was the same size, like a, we happened to accomplish with a um, uh, a jade statue at some point, right? Or a yes. juggernaut. Yes. The attacking band would only ever lose one banalish hero, whereas yep. your opponent was losing something that cost four or more <laughs> mana. And so it was a surprisingly effective strategy in what I would call lower power, yeah. you know, creature based yeah, alpha it's card perfect. 40 decks. It was beautiful and hilarious at the same time, Kevin. Oh, <laughs> it was so funny in practice the way it worked. In, 
it's this big amoeba, right? The band is this big amoeba that just kind of like attacks every turn and yeah. you're either absorbed by it or killed by it. You have to right. decide. And and it's funny because a band of of five Banalish heroes will trade one hero for a juggernaut, which exactly. is a, a, a phenomenal trade. You, yeah, you have exactly. to get just now it's a little bit harder to, to for the band to, to kill a jade statue, but eventually it, it, it'll, it'll eventually happen, it'll happen once you get to six. Yeah. So that was a fascinating experiment. I mean, it really does demonstrate the, the inherent power of banding. The problem is getting a band big enough because how many, so how many of banding creatures are there in this set? There's Banal Shiro, there's Timberwolves, and what else? Yeah. Mesa Pegasus. There's only three. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting. The, another commentary about rarity. Banal Shiro and Mesa Pegasus are commons. Timberwolves is a rare. rare. Timberwolves is exactly Banalish Hero Figure in green, that one out. but it's rare. Uh, I, I can't explain yeah. it. That's just I, another I, example of Richard Garfield and friends using rarity right. to reflect to the mechanics also, like, the of color identity within the color pie, as you put it. I mean, another way of putting what you said. Yeah. I, I think part of the challenge with banding, though, is that it creates all these rules confusion. So, what happens yeah. if you have a flying creature in your band and another is not? What if you have a protection from a certain color creature in your band? What if you have a a creature in your band that how do you deal with trample and banding? I mean, it's just yeah. endless. Banding and trample is especially <laughs> problematic <laughs> because the band, yeah. yeah, the controller of the band decides how the damage is done. And yeah. Trampling yeah. and trampling is supposed to be de- determined a priori. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh. So I'd like to just give a little bit of historic perspective on the mechanic that is banding. There have only ever been forty-one cards printed that either have or reference banding. Wow, out of 13, 14,000. That's yeah. incredible. That's way smaller than I would have thought. Yeah, and it's more interesting than that, too, when you look at the distribution of colors. Now, the most recent card with that was printed with banding is technically Greater Morphling from Unhinged, but in practice, the most recent card is a couple of cards from Weatherlight. So Weatherlight was really the last set to have banding, and that's a long time ago. Yeah. Most... A strong majority, and I don't have the exact percentage, but it looks like 80% maybe of the the cards printed with banding are white creatures. So when you look at alpha, there's two out of four cards with banding uh, are white creatures. The fourth card by the Helm of Chatzuk, which is an artifact that we'll get to, which imparts the banding ability onto a creature. Banding was continued through Arabian Nights on two white creatures. It was continued through Antiquities, ironically, on three artifact creatures, which is an anomaly. It was continued into Legends, where it's on, <laughs> where it's on a white creature, uh, a blue white creature, a white enchantment, and a land. But th- there's an asterisk there because Legends has more banding, which I'll try to talk about in a second. At which point, banding was almost exclusively limited to white cards for the rest of its printings. There are pff, four exceptions, of course, for the rest of the years. In terms of creatures that have banding, there's only ever been two green creatures that have it: Timberwolves and Alpha. And then dire wolves in Ice Age, mm. which which even has temporary banding, which is hilarious. Banding if you control a planes, which wow. is mechanically tying it back to white, which is another example of how f- f- future sets um, took alpha as a model for certain things. Anyway, banding was discontinued after Weatherlight, with the exception of Unhinged. And banding also has an interesting place in history because it's on a short list of keyword mechanics that were recapitulated in another version of themselves that was more restrictive. And by that, I mean the implication of bands with others 
in Legends, and only Legends. Legends introduced this notion of bands with others, which is a more restrictive version of banding, which is hilarious in its unnecessary aspect, such that creatures with bands with others can only band with other creatures that have the same bands with others clause. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is com- woefully uh, overcomplicated and unnecessary. Yeah. But the example is the card. Let's give the card from Legends: Bands, a Master of the Hunt, which is a four mana two two. It has an activated ability to put wolves in the to- uh, wolves of the hunt tokens into play. They're one one green creatures that have bands with other wolves of the hunt, oh which God. is which means that they have banding, but they may only band with other cards that have bands with wolves of the hunt. And the only card that ever makes those or has that ability is Master of the Hunt. So anyway, it's just a, a hilarious historical wow. note. Bands was yeah. complicated enough to begin with and then got was more he? complicated <laughs> when they introduced a more narrow and confusing example God, of it in Legends. It's hilarious. This is awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, so, it's and and bands with others can't even bands with creatures with banding. That's right. A creature <laughs> like a, a, a wolf of the hunt token cannot band with a banalish with a hero or a Timberwolves. Yeah, which is hilarious. Yeah. So banding is hilarious. Another another note about banding in practice is that it's actually very very powerful in limited play. Oh yeah. And it's powerful for mostly for the defensive reasons but also the offensive ones as well. But uh, on defense what happens is if you have a simple card like <laughs> Banalish Hero even in a modern draft set, you know, Core Set 2021 or Icoria or some modern set if you've got Banalish Hero and you double block with Banalish Hero and what other other creature, you just get to trade, as you said before, your one Banalish Hero for an, a kind of an arbitrarily large creature on yeah. their side. As long as you have sufficient power on your side, you're trading down, you're trading up every time with this cheap banding creature, and it just turned out to actually be too good and limited. And really? so that's another reason, in no addition way. to the confusion, why uh, it's also, just not a part I mean, of modern magic. Banding anymore. in Alpha has got to be... Yeah. You, you put... A Banalish Hero with a Thicket Basilisk or a Cockatrice. It's got to <laughs> yeah. be darn good, right? So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot of good combinations with banding. It plays well in creature combat. That's for sure. Oh, well, and just one more comment. Your... Yeah. Th- this, this is yet another piece of art that is completely devoid of context. This is a, a pretty well-rendered woman uh, in a completely orange background with no detail. It almost looks like the same ba- background that Douglas Schuler used for animate artifact. It's kind of like <laughs> yeah, it's just a couple the, of shades of the, orange different the, than than animate void. artifact. Yeah. Thank you for that yeah. it, that uh, walk down memory lane, history lane. Uh, I have to say, it is on my to do list to try and figure out how banding actually works in Alpha rules because <laughs> it's something at some point I'd like to know better. That is no easy task. No, it, it's not. But wish me luck. <laughs> All right, Steve, let's talk about Berserk, which is just an awesome, awesome card mm. and has so much history. So Berserk is an instant for G. The Alpha of Text says, until end of turn, target creature's current power doubles and it gains trample ability. If it attacks, target creature is destroyed at end of turn. This spell cannot be cast after current <laughs> turn's attack is completed. Whew. Well, uh, this is just a ton to say about Berserk, like so many of these alpha cards. Uh, I'll let you start, Steve. Well, the first thing that I think is important about Berserk is it's the first exponentially compounding effect that you have. Mm-hmm. You no, know, it's like the, the mind's desiring hitting a mind's desire, but it's the kind of original version of that, which is great. And so 
you know, obviously the, uh, the kind of, I don't know, most classic example of this is probably ball lightning, mm-hmm. berserk, berserk. 18, you know, uh, what is that? That's, uh, that's, that's dead. There's 24 damage. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that's yeah. like historically interesting is when we actually, I was one of the people who got them to unrestrict this in vintage. And at the time I ran a poll, it was around 2002 or 2003 saying that this is one of the top three cards people wanted unrestricted. Number one, because you could play it in a stompy deck and yeah, and get, and, 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 you know, potentially make it more playable. But then when they finally decided to do it, Kevin, nice. was when Psychotog had just been printed. So, so you could cunning wish for, for Berserk to make your Psychotog a combo part. You know, just get it to 10, double oh, it, yeah. dead, <laughs> which was beautiful. So Berserk has this interesting history in the history of the format, type one, is the original compounding card, but then also, mm-hmm. uh, is this, is this a, is a combo element with the Psychotog deck. Well, and that was, I don't know how Berserk evolved in the very early days of Magic. I was not playing then. I don't have a good frame of reference for it. But I can tell you, based on just recent experience, that it's still highly relevant in old school formats, right? Especially in like a <laughs> Alpha Card 40 kind of format that you've recently played, because I just watched you play a finals that was a heavily green-centric finals, you know, a combined, I don't know, 20 Llanowar Elves across your two decks or whatever, and you definitely died one game to a giant growth and berserk Llanowar Elf, right? Yeah. I mean, giant the growth, card... Giant growth, yeah, berserk, berserk. <laughs> yeah. The, the card just has noteworthy appearances throughout Magic's history and a strong mechanical representation in Magic even to this day. Yeah. I mean, it was always the dream to be able to either... Ball Lightning, Bloodlust, and then Berserk, uh, Ball Lightning, or Double Berserk. I mean, there was a, there was a long period where Stompy decks mm-hmm. were mathematically designed to be as efficiently as efficient as possible, right? You could do like there was a version, I think it was Vine Dryad that you could play on turn zero, and then theoretically Elvish Spirit Guide, Forest, you know, um, try and just quick as quickly as possible win before the control deck could find his swords. In the early game, there was a deck that was called. There was a very famous and enigmatic deck, Kevin, called the um, Granville Explosion deck, and yeah, it's a it's a cool name, right? And um, Granville Wright was the creator, and he played this deck in in '94, you know, but no one had a list until George Baxter uh, published it in one of his books. But basically, you know, Berserk is one of the key ideas in that concept. You know, unstable mutation, giant growth, yeah, bloodlust, that sort of thing. So, you know, I think, I think Berserk was one of those, like, cards that people really quickly realized was awesome in Weenie decks and also tried, you know, but also exposed the vulnerability to things like Source to Plowshare. I want to talk a little bit about the mechanical history that this card kicked off because there are two implementations of this effect in, in modern magic. And so if you're searching for Berserk effects, I'm using, I'm making up my own colloquialism there, you want to look for two things, one of which is the phrase where X is its power. Because the, the modern templating of Berserk is target creature gains trample and gets plus X plus zero until end of turn where X is its power. That's a nice templating. It makes sense, right? But I know for a fact, and this is not personal knowledge, this is just from being in the community, that Mark Rosewater happens to love doubling things. And he takes every opportunity he can to double stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that templating of where X is its power has been kind of overshadowed of late by a return to the templating of double the creature's power. 
And so it's interesting to note that if you want to look for Berserk effects, you have to kind of look for both throughout history mm-hmm. because the some of the older ones have not been updated to say double. Some of them still say X is his creature's power. That's a nuanced point. Kevin. Yeah. Very nuanced. And, and to call out some specific examples. So the first true, and I want to say reprint in quotes, the first true reprinting of Berserk was in Planar Chaos, which is the card Fatal Frenzy. They shifted the effect into red. They shifted the cost to three mana. It's two R. It's still an instant, and it, otherwise it's Berserk without the drawback. It says until end of turn target creature you control, make note, you control, gains trample and gets plus X plus zero until end, uh, where it X's its power. Then it says sacrifice it at end of turn, right? So <laughs> they changed the way the drawback works, and they made it only target creatures you control. More on that in a second. There are multiple other examples throughout history of the plus X plus O where X is its power, the most recent, which is Hadana's Climb from Ixalan, which turns into the Winged Temple of Arazka, which is a land with an activated ability that's like Berserk, where the creature gains flying in plus X plus X, where X is its power. It's much bigger and better. But of note is that more recently, the implementation is back to the doubling. In fact, it's just as recent as Unleashed Fury in Corset 2021, which we're about to review. That one costs a simple 1R for double the power of target creature until end of turn. A much simpler implementation. That's an instant. And then the most recent implementation is from Jumpstart, Naeth of the Dire Hunt, who has a bunch of activated and triggered abilities, but one of them is buried in there as if you do double target creature's power until end of turn. So the doubling thing happens today all the way up to the most recent set, Jumpstart. And there's one specific example that's probably most well-known to players recently, and that is Teamer Battle Rage, a modern staple in the Death Shadow decks not quite as much lately, but through the last several years. That is, target creature gains double strike until end of turn, and it's ferocious, says that creature also gains trample if you control a creature with a power four or greater. Now, obviously, double strike is not the same as doubling its power, but in practice, you put trample on it, it's going to have right. the same effect, right? Um, so, Teamer Battle Rage doesn't quite use the same mechanic, but it's definitely in this lineage. One other thing I'd like to call out, Steve, and you could probably talk a little better about this than I can, but... <laughs> Berserk has this bizarre clause in Alpha. The spell cannot be cast after current attacks, current turns <laughs> attack is completed, yeah. which obviously has some syntactic ambiguity. But the simple truth is, is that Berserk in Alpha and well, Berserk is not limited to targeting your own creatures, and has, and no matter who you target, that creature is going to die at the end of the turn. So it's one of the applications of Berserk to be used as a single green mana removal spell in old school formats. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, the, it's a great question, Kevin, but the main thing in old, different old school formats, but especially Alpha League, is that it gives green an uncommon way, it's an uncom- a way to deal with things like Hypnotic Spectre, you know, early, really problematic threats, or even Juggernaut, and it's 10 damage, but it's better than taking 20 damage from <laughs> Juggernaut. You know, so it, it, it does give, it gives green a kind of, a, a kind of removal. Yeah which is nice. Functional removal. Yeah. yeah, and you'd be happy to to berserk that Hypnotic Spectre on turn two rather than discard three or four more cards to it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my Hypnotics have been killed plenty of times by Berserk. Yeah. It doesn't really see as much play in my experience in 93, 94, 94 Magic. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen people play like Swarm of Elves deck, sometimes with Pendlehavens, but Berserk is just... It's too risky under modern rules when people are playing Bolts and Plows. Under old rules, um, depending on the rule set, it's less risky because um, 
you know, giant growth can can survive a bolt, you know, yeah. um, because under alpha rules, spells resolve, resolve simultaneously, so it doesn't matter the timing of the bolt. Giant growth will still keep your your guy around, um, but in in old school formats that play under contemporary rules, it's it's higher risk. For my benefit, Steve, do the Atog decks ever play Berserk? It seems like Atog is kind of in the Psychotog sort <laughs> of model. Is that too much risk? And so there have been a lot of different Atog decks over the years. The you know the contemporary old school decks play Atog mostly in in kind of blue red, sometimes splash white, sometimes splash black. The answer is no there. In okay. historical Atog decks, my recollection is they're mostly blue-red, sometimes like heavy mana crypt, mana vault, big mana decks, sometimes with like uh, Jam de Tome, you know, like that kind of thing, Browse, Jam de Tome. I don't really recall Atog being splashing green. I can't say that. It does seem kind of natural now that you mention it, but I think the Atog decks historically were more grindy decks. Okay. Or just combo-y decks. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I was just curious about that. Seemed like I, I see a lot of parallels between Atog and Psychotog, but that's a distant parallel, yeah. perhaps. All right, anything else on Berserk? Good. All right, let's talk about. Uh, I just I've been looking forward to talking about this one the whole time, Steve. <laughs> so this is Birds of Paradise. Now, <laughs> the the te- okay. So everybody knows Birds of Paradise. It's been reprinted dozens of times. The the alpha text is hilarious. It costs a green mana. It is summon mana birds, which it's no longer anymore, but lasted for quite a while. The, the text is <laughs> flying slash slash tap to add one mana to your mana pool. This tap may be played as an interrupt. And it's a zero one. <laughs> um, birds of Paradise is simultaneously no surprise and highly enigmatic, at least in alpha. And I'd, Steve, I'd like to talk. I'd like you to talk about why that is. Well, so the if you listen closely to what Kevin just said, it says tap to add one mana to your mana pool, but it doesn't specify which color or if it or is a color. Type, right. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't specify anything. It just says you add just one mana. get a mana. I guess uh, you know, a mana. You know how mana works, right? You get one. <laughs> so there are a number of cards in in uh, in alpha the tap to add mana. There's Soul Ring, Mana Vault, Basalt Monolith, and the colorless variety. There's a Dark Ritual, which adds black mana. There's a Llanowar Elves, which adds uh, a green mana. They all specify. They either specify colorless or they specify a particular color. Mm-hmm. This is the one instance where there is no specification. <laughs> and, and, so, to, and to add to that, there are cards in Alpha that provide a mana of any color, namely like a Celestial Prism, black, and those cards specifically Lotus. say one mana of any color. Yeah, Right. So so Black Lotus says any single color of your choice, mm-hmm. whereas Celestial Prism says one mana of any color. So <laughs> you, the either the locution or syntax of single color or any color, right, would, would be clarifying in at least some respect but alpha birds of paradise doesn't have either of those <laughs> i bet you didn't know if you're listening to this right now i bet most of you maybe 99 percent of you did not know that alpha birds of paradise is kind of just mechanically broken <laughs> yeah. so if you're just playing under alpha rules how do you actually determine you know alpha card text how do you determine what it what it means it's just almost impossible right it's it's hilarious I mean, yeah you and i've had this conversation and my conclusion was simply that you have to use a best guess you have to use anecdotal evidence and uh, the, the summation of all comparisons to reach a conclusion but it's far from definite 
it's far from done. We won't re- regurgitate that for yeah. you because it's pretty painful. <laughs> I, I will say though, th- I will say that the beta version, this is the second card that was retemplated for beta. Mm-hmm. And they, they added the f- phrase of any color. Yep. They also, they also removed that very mysterious double forward slash after flying. <laughs> which is hilarious. Which I, I have to believe that that double forward slash was some kind of uh, computerized characterization of like a carriage yes. return that didn't return, get properly entered. Exactly. Yeah. Because in That's beta, exactly there's also a carriage return after flying before the, the text ability. Yes, that's exactly what it is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you can you can see other cards that have multiple abilities. So, for example, send your vampire says flying, and then on a different line mm-hmm. has the additional text. Similar with Sarah Angel. Uh, not the same, by the way, with with Shiv and Dragon. But I think that was because they were trying to cram everything on there. Yeah, a lot more, um, more text on Shiv and Dragon. Yeah. Um, you know, Steve, we've talked about art a number of times, but this art <clears throat> has a special place, right, in Alpha, in the history of magic, in fact. And it's a pretty well-known story, so I'll just summarize real quickly. Yes. Mark Poole was assigned to paint the islands for yes. Alpha, and you'll note that the the two islands in Alpha are painted by Mark Poole. Well, he painted this art as to be a basic island as well. But when the... And I don't know who was responsible for this decision. Maybe Jesper it was... Meifers, I think. Okay, thank director. you. Yeah, so when when Jesper received this art, he noticed that the subject was by far (laughs) the bird rather than the island. (laughs) And so this card was basically punched up on the fly. It was not intended for the set in its initial design, but this card was punched up on the fly to leverage this art and make a cool card that evoked this bird. And that's why we have Birds of Paradise. And it could be, I don't know this, but it could be a contributing factor as to why the alpha text is uh, inexact. Yeah. No, it's it, it was probably like a yeah a, a last minute edition. It probably didn't get double triple reviewed. Yeah. Um, uh, or reviewed at all possibly. <laughs> I just want to say one other thing about this card has been phenomenally powerful through history of Magic. Oh yeah. I mean, I can remember the very few times I played Type Two. This has been like often one of the most important rares to own. Um, and it, it's so interesting to contrast it with Llanowar Elves. You know, being the two cards that are kind of the mana creatures in in green and that are, you know, obviously the ancestors to Deathrite Shaman and and too many other cards to count. Uh, Elves of Deep Shadow, uh, you could probably give us a very long lineage as you did for other cards, but you <laughs> don't need to. But th- the one thing I just wanted to point out is that in kind of raw Alpha 40, I think Birds of Paradise is the superior creature, but in Alpha League, Llanowar Elves is by far the superior creature. Having, because, a, having a power is a big game in Alpha League. <laughs> yes, Yes, having the power is really the critical component because you want to accelerate to be able to get like the turn turn two, three mana spell or turn three, four mana spell, which both cards allow you to do. But once you've done that, then you want to be able to turn it into a, into to pecking away at your opponent. Yeah. And birds doesn't doesn't do that. It is interesting that birds is rare and Llanowar Elves is common. Uh, it's interesting to imagine, uh, obviously, that they were, they're were they telling you something right there, right? That we want you to play lots of Llanowar Elves and maybe not so many birds um, by design, or at least have access to more Llanowar Elves. But yes, Llanowar Elves is, I think, it, it, frankly, a top five creature in Alpha League, whereas Birds of Paradise, you know, obviously is much better because then you can play Power Blue, you can play you know, white cre- cards like Swords of Plowshares and Sarah Angels and Savannah Lions, and in fact, Birds of Paradise often 
very often saw play and continues to see play and kind of three-color zoo decks, four-color zoo decks in contemporary old school as well as historical old school. So that if you you know are playing with Savannah Lions, Kurt Apes, uh, Power Sinks, Sonic Blasts, you know, all that sort of thing, you can do that with birds, and birds is critically helpful there. And then, of course, you can, you know, it can chump up in the air, and then you can giant growth it and get in there for a little bit of damage if you're trying to kill your opponent. Yeah, you're right on all fronts. I mean, Birds of Paradise continues to be a strong card throughout Magic. It's most commonly played in Commander these days, but it's been reprinted several times and is occasionally relevant in the standard formats that it's legal in. (laughs) You know, <laughs> ramp thought... ramp has become an interesting point of contention for standard magic these days, and I, I'm no expert in that, but I can tell you that Birds of Paradise would be looked at, I think, at least with a side eye from players if it were reprinted in a really? standard set. Yeah, these days, there's no there's no mana elves in in contemporary standard. Uh, no, there have been recently. Land of War Elves was one of the better creatures in standard last time it was printed, and one of the scourges of modern standard happens to be ramp. Uh, because of cards like Growth Spiral and Uro, the ramp is is uh, the go-to dominant uh, fixture of wow. standard formats right now for a number of reasons, which are outside the scope of our show here. The, the last time I played standard, I remember, or one of the last times, I remember playing Fires of Yamavaya, and basically you wanted <laughs> to turn one Elves or Birds, turn two Fires, turn turn three Blastoderm, turn four yeah. fire, uh, turn four Saperling Burst, kill your opponent. Well, All made possible with these ramp spells, with the uh, artifact, uh, these uh, mana accelerants. Ironically, that is not too far off what the last Land of War Elves format was like. And factor in the <laughs> so take that deck that you're thinking of, Steve, and add in the London Mulligan, and consider how often you have a turn one Land of oh, yeah. War Elves in that hybrid world. Yeah, 100 percent of the time, just about. Yeah. <laughs> And so one mana accelerants, even if they are weak creatures, like Birds of Paradise is one of the weaker, uh, are still highly disruptive to modern tournament formats. Fair enough. Yeah. But, but I, I mean, look, I, I have to say, on de- in terms of Deathrite Shaman, Deathrite Shaman, I know you've used it quite a bit. I think it probably is, it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we reviewed it, I was one of the few people on record who predicted it would see a lot of play. Not just, you were not the only skeptic. It was widely panned. Yeah. I have to say that I, I dislike decks built around Deathrite Shaman more than any other archetype or strategy in the history of vintage possible. <laughs> Interesting. I just dislike that extreme, like, over-the-top grindiness. That's very I interesting. I, too I would love to I, I, tease that out a little bit more at some other opportunity, but I don't think now's the time for that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, Steve, there's one other context in which I'd like to evaluate Birds of Paradise, and it's one that we could talk about at length throughout this episode, although I think we're going to avoid the issue of doing so, and that is the reserved list. Birds of Paradise has an interesting (laughs) place in the context of the reserved list discussion in that it demonstrates what happens when a powerful card exists in alpha and is subsequently reprinted Reprinted into the ground. numerous times. I love the point you're making. Yeah. No, let me just just underscore it real quickly or make the point in a different way. Birds of Paradise is one of the most expensive alpha cards, period. Yes. Full stop. It is. It is. It is. I think just basically on par, if not more expensive, than most of the alpha dual lands, mm-hmm. which is astonishing. Especially <laughs> given how popular dual lands are. Yeah, it's it's. I think probably in the top ten, fifteen most expensive cards out of alpha. 
It's like probably between two and three Gs, if I'm not mistaken. The cheapest copy available on TCG Player right now is twenty seven hundred, and that's and it goes <laughs> oh up. And it goes that's up above three thousand reprints. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. That's just that's just the alpha version. I mean, and, that just that is the that's your point right there, yeah, exactly. right? I mean, the reprinting reprinting an alpha rare does not. I mean, you. I guess someone could make the counterfactual that if this had been not reprinted after revised. That this card would be it could be ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And but yeah. And so I, I'm not. Um. And just for comparison, the beta versions. There's an HP one for for seven hundred eighty five dollars. But the beta versions on on TCG Player, once you get past the ones that are in really crappy shape, are nine hundred to twelve hundred dollars or more. And so well, pe- I, I bring this up. People want that double forward slash, Kevin. That's what they're looking for. <laughs> it's noteworthy. It's noteworthy. And just for comparison's sake, the unlimited copy. So that was twenty seven hundred for the cheapest uh, alpha version, uh, about nine hundred for the cheapest beta version. But when it comes to unlimited, the cheaper copies on TCG Player are about, let's see, once you get past the damaged and HP ones, the cheaper ones are about one hundred fifty to two hundred dollars for unlimited copies. God. So there's a pretty there's <laughs> a pretty big gulf. Ones, by the way. Oh, uh, so for the for the purposes of comparison, a revised Birds of Paradise is fifteen bucks. Still, that's pretty yeah. good. I mean, that's in the upper so, echelon of revised spells. There is a big premium on Alpha, as you can expect. Still, a strong premium on Beta. You know, nine hundred to a thousand dollars. A significant drop off between Black and White bordered. So down from a thousand dollars in Beta to a hundred dollars depending on the condition. The, the near-mint ones go way up from there, but the, the low-condition ones could be had for 150 or so on Unlimited. That is a model for what would happen to a strong subset of cards if the reserved list didn't exist. Dual Lands is probably a good comparison, Steve. I mean, it's it's very clear that Alpha and Beta would still command a premium. Alpha more so these days. I think it's increased in popularity a lot in the last couple of years. And the white-bordered copies would sink dramatically as you observed the revised birds of paradise could be had for 15 bucks so it's almost a 10 to 1 for revised to unlimited and almost another 10 to 1 for unlimited to beta that provides us with a point of reference for what would happen to prices of cards if the reserved list either didn't exist or was removed systematically today it's just not plausible to say that reprints destroys the value of cards because this card is three g's at minimum (laughs) right it's just not a plausible argument and I mean, if the, I don't know that you can make a stronger a stronger case for abolishing the reserve list. Now, obviously, it could impact the revised version of the uh, you know the re, the revised version of a card. Re, revised but, duels are probably the best example. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't think they would crater. <laughs> I don't. No, no, they they wouldn't. Uh, you know, if you scaled up the comparative cost of a like a beta and an unlimited duel today to what Birds of Paradise cost today. I think the price, and I'm doing the, this math kind of on the fly here, but the price you'd land on for a revised duel would be something like fifty dollars, fifty to a hundred, probably scaling from from low desire ones to high desire ones, and so it gives us a kind of baseline. And this is the, not the purpose of this podcast, of course, but it gives us a kind of reference point for what would happen to prices if the reserved list were abolished. And so it's worth noting, you know, those of you who are interested in that topic. Pay attention to Birds of Paradise and a couple other cards that we'll talk about later. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is a card that the Birds of Paradise is only really played right now actively in Commander and some other niche formats. Like, it's not in Standard right now. It's not 
a staple in modern or pioneer or anything, any kind of reprint in a standard format would increase its desirability significantly for the older copies. And so it's obviously reprints play havoc with the prices and the speculation related to the prices of a card like this. A lot about Birds of Paradise. Obviously, we have a lot of affection for that card, and it's got a lot of history in the magic. We didn't even talk about all the zillions of green creatures that produce, you know, manas of any color, but obviously it's the progenitor for dozens of those. All right, Steve, let's talk about Black Knight. Black, black, summon knight, protection from white, and first strike, and it's a 2-2. I'd like to first acknowledge the fact that this, even though it's a grizzly bear in size, we never really refer to the knights as bears, do we? It's kind of an interesting historical note. (laughs) (laughs) This, obviously, we've talked about the fact that white and black have parallels, lots of parallels in alpha, and the black and the white knights are the kind of the the flag bearers for those parallels. And I've already alluded to the fact that the black knight is has a functional superiority to white knight just because of the existence of swords to plowshares and the fact that swords to plowshares is the best removal spell of all time. And black knight is on a short list of creatures that can't be removed from it in alpha. And, uh, that alone makes black knight worth considering in any kind of early alpha context. In addition to that, it has sweet uh, Jeff Mangus art. But anyway, see if you've got a lot more experience with the applications of black knight, both historically Whoa. and in, in the modern day. Well, probably one of the most important things to, to point out about Black Knight is it brought into focus a very critical question that was not always clear under Alpha Rules, which is, what does protection mean? Oh, God, and that sp- topic is, <laughs> just like banding, is so deep. Yeah. I mean, there, there were very common debates, like, does balance kill a Black Knight? Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And, and in the Alpha League, they actually play that it does not. That, you know, that swords, that balance doesn't, wrath, all those things, you know, don't kill Black Knight. Is there some basis in the alpha rules for that? Ambiguity. Okay. (laughs) We don't need to dig any further than that, really. I just wanted to get your thoughts. Which means that the the winner of the first Wizards tournament actually used a Black Knight and a Hive as the win conditions, and he had a bunch of balances (laughs) so that he could win with Black Knight over and over again. Yeah. Um, but, But Black Knight, you know, um, Obviously, is the anchor of any black weenie deck at least until Fallen Empires. Um, first strike is no, is nothing to sneeze at. Um, oh yeah, it's actually, yeah. <laughs> a lot of alpha creatures are pretty small. Don't ask me how first strike works with banding though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, black knight and, and you know white knight, the inversion are are kind of critical for the weenie str- weenie str- the monocolor weenie strategies. And you'll see, for example, so so. In under Eternal Central rules for old school ninety four, uh, I think two years ago Mono Black won the tournament. I actually beat the guy in the first round, then he went on a roll and went undefeated. So he had the highest finish after Swiss. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he had Black Knights. I think it was basically like Juzoms. He probably actually just had Pump Knights instead. But um, you know that that's that kind of card fits into the, that archetype pretty well. Hippie Juzam and some Knights. Well, obviously, there's a place for this card in the annals of history for many of the reasons that you just cited. It's also worth noting that the this this card, along with White Knight, form the basis for the knight sub-archetype of creatures throughout the rest of Magic. You alluded to Fallen Empires because they were the... Basically, Fallen Empires was the next iteration on the knights, right? 
Order of the Emperor and Order of the Ebon Hand were the natural extension of White and Black Knight. And they provided with them some mechanical advantages, which is the reason why they became quite so popular and quite powerful. But knights have throughout history been recapitulated in, especially in white and black as pairs, like in Mirage, there is Zelfrin knight and cadaverous knight, which took the same model and added flanking rather than first strike to the equation. Well, ironically, the white one also has first strike, but that's not the point. The point is, is these pairs of knights existed then throughout history and they kept getting bigger and more specialized, but in many sets for a magic thereafter, the, mechanics of a set were frequently the, the especially the combat mechanics were frequently highlighted in the form of knights like in invasion we had our first kind of cycle of multicolored knights where we got a blue white one with pro red and then a green white one with pro black that's a callback to this alpha and several other subsequent examples in the time spiral block had had recapitulations of these in the form of Blood Knight, which is a red one with pro white. So this card exactly, but in the form of red. And it's fascinating to think of while Alpha in hindsight or retroactively, I guess is what I should say. Alpha has one other knight in the form of Northern Paladin, which was is a paladin on paper, but a knight now. At printing, these were the only knights in Alpha. These two cards form the definition, the formative definition of the knight creature type in Magic, which is obviously a long-standing high fantasy archetype, right? Right. But, but in practice, we didn't get another knight until the dark. And then, come Fallen Empires, we get a, a strong reinterpretation of knights, and then it took off from there. There were knights in basically every set thereafter. So, from a trope standpoint, this is a real. This is really planting a flag in in Magic. Great point. It's also worth noting that this is the first card I think, yeah, it's the first card I think that we've reviewed that has a really sweet FNM foil promo with the old frame and the old art. If you've never seen it before, go look at the FNM promo Black Knights. They are so cool looking because any card, in my opinion, in this alpha model uh, in foil just really pops. It's really cool. I need to see that. Yeah, it's really sweet. Okay. Yep. Steve... We've come to the point in our show where we talk about <laughs> what is inarguably the most important card in Magic ever. We're talking about <laughs> Black Lotus. Basic Island? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Black Lotus. A zero-mana mono artifact that says adds, plural, adds three mana of any single color of your choice to your mana pool, then <laughs> is discarded. Tapping this artifact can be played as an interrupt. Black Lotus is perhaps the most mythic, lowercase m, card in Magic, right? It's not. It was yep. never really used for marketing, <clears throat> right? We got the Herloon Minotaurs and the Sarah Angels and other things. Black Lotus was never used in the marketing of the game. But when you talk about cards in hushed tones, this one is at the top of that list. <laughs> it is obviously formative to almost every format that it's ever been legal in uh kind of similar to balance in that and ancestral recall in that sense right we've covered cards that have that kind of effect on formats and it remains so today it's obviously restricted in vintage and legal in only niche formats again throwing out to canadian highlander and in the case of vintage it's kind of funny it's played in almost every deck that can play it 
technically almost every deck in the format, with the exception of Dredge, which in, almost entirely elides the issue of mana altogether for reasons we don't need to go into. Black Lotus is formative. It is the most powerful card. It is arguably the greatest design mistake in all of Magic, and at the same time, part of what makes Magic and Alpha and Vintage and other things by extension so alluring. Obviously, I have great affinity for it. I know you do as well. And it enables so much while providing such noteworthy stories and exciting moments of <laughs> so many games throughout history. Uh, what else can you say about this card? I'll let you take it away. Well, it really is an absurdity. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's like an unglued card is kind of what it's like. <laughs> I, I think just the only way to really appreciate how powerful it is is to look at comparisons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that probably the most illuminating point of comparison <laughs> is Lion's Eye Diamond. <laughs> which is so bad by comparison that activating it forces you to discard your hand. Mm-hmm. So, And yet that card is still broken beyond measure. They, I mean, They it's, honestly it, tried to think of what is the greatest drawback we could possibly add to this card, exactly. short of you lose the game, right? It, exactly. And it still failed to, to tamp it's it to the power of the totally card. totally <laughs> failed. <laughs> exactly. And in fact, there is one aspect in which... Lion's Eye Diamond is not strictly inferior to Black Lotus. Oh, absolutely. I think there's more than one, but what were you thinking of? Well, it's the fact that you can activate it even if it's tapped. <laughs> Which is inexplicable. So, Why in the world would they do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they wanted it to not be strictly inferior, right? Our whole situation yeah. better situationally worse. I guess. Um, so if your opponent has Root Maze <laughs> or Tangle Wire, you can, use, you can use the Lion's Eye Diamond mm-hmm. even when you can't use Black Lotus. Um, and I mean, part of it is, of course, that there are activated abilities you can use Lion's Eye Diamond with. You can use it in response to a spell, like a tutor or an ad nauseum or whatever. So it's it's obviously broken in that respect. Mm-hmm. But it just goes to show you how fundamentally out of whack, absurd, you know, whatever hyperbolic adjective or descriptor you want to apply, it applies to Black Lotus. It's the the best cre- best card of all time, and it creates kind of the most broken starts doesn't mean it's always incredible or always useful. It doesn't go into a dredge deck, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes I've seen people play incredibly lame spells with Black Lotus, <laughs> but it, it is still what it is, right? Yeah. It's just... And I should add, to your point, that there are a couple of interpretations of st- staple vintage decks over the years that have eschewed Black Lotus. Sometimes <laughs> those choices amount to irrationalizing, right? Some of the choices are maybe more cute than they are correct, I would say. But there have been interpretations of workshop decks that already have access to many, many functional lotuses, actually, through Mish's workshop, that have eschewed the card disadvantage of lotus. There are some Xerox decks throughout history that, through a combination of factors and and oddball mana configurations, have decided not to play it. I, I would posit that a few of those choices were, in hindsight, incorrect. But the simple truth is... It is the exception that proves the rule that this is the card that if you had to pick any other card in Magic, this would be the first one to put in any deck. And Steve, it, yeah. it furthers your point about how subsequent iterations are still problematic. In the same vein as Ancestral to Brainstorm, where Brainstorm ostensibly returns to you a third of the value that Ancestral does you know, on paper, the Lotus Petal that was introduced in Tempest which is in that same vein, right? A third of a Lotus is still too good and restricted in vintage and banned in multiple other formats. 
in much the same model that Brainstorm is too good for other formats, Lotus Petal being a third of Black Lotus is still too good for other formats. It just heightens the observation that this card was a ridiculous mistake from a balance standpoint. At the same time, and we don't need to belabor this point across this whole set, but would Magic be as good as it is today if they hadn't made this mistake in Alpha? Right? To, to put it another way, if you could go back in time and create Alpha again, would you keep Black Lotus in? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to... I can't... I mean... There's two ways of answering that question. One is what is objectively <laughs> correct and what is, you know, and then changing my personal experience yeah. and engagement. Yeah. Um, so I, I, objectively speaking, it's probably over the too much. It's probably too good. Um, but I wouldn't change it personally. And it's not like in contemporary vintage. I used to feel a lot of time in contemporary vintage that, oh my God, the opponent who had Black Lotus just won. I don't really think that's the case. I think Black Lotus is kind of kind of balanced in contemporary vintage it, it doesn't you know it, it's not like even in doomsday where it probably has peak value it's you still have to do some work to win you know it just doesn't win just by itself i see your point and i would reposition it a little bit and say that vintage has continued its downward pressure on efficiency throughout the years so much so that even the card disadvantage that Black Lotus represents is increasingly a factor in its effect on a game and its utility. The I would say that the reason why some of those decks that I alluded to earlier, not Dredge, but some of the other decks that are ostensibly mana decks, are seeking to cut Black Lotus occasionally is because the effect is balanced out by the card disadvantage to a strong degree now that's it's still not a deal breaker like it's still correct to play black lotus i think in every deck (laughs) these days but the impact on the long-term game plan or the practical game plan is real agreed we could spend the whole show talking about black lotus so i think we should probably move (laughs) on it seems like a shame, Steve. Black Lotus being the greatest card ever in the history of the game. You and I have played it so much, and at the same time, we don't need to say much about it in the sense that it has been formative, it's still dominant in any format where it's legal, and it's just an icon. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we don't really need to belabor the point. There's only four versions of it, unfortunately. Alpha, Beta, <sighs> Limited, and Collector's Edition, i.e. I guess that's technically five. And then there's the Oversize. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, there is a card that competes with it, is possibly the best, and that's Contract from Below, which we'll get to eventually. But. Yeah. Dramatically different equation there, but yeah, I completely agree. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on So Many Insane Plays. Yeah. <laughs>